3. Women at War and at the Poles Another direct outgrowth of World War I, coming in tandem with Prohibition, but lasting more permanently, was the 19th Amendment, submitted by Congress in 1919 and ratified by the following year, which allowed women to vote. Women's suffrage had long been a movement directly allied with Prohibition. Desperate to combat a demographic trend that seemed to be going against them, the evangelical pietists called for women's suffrage and enacted it in many Western states. They did so because they knew that while pietist women were socially and politically active, ethnic or liturgical women tended to be culturally bound to hearth and home, and therefore far less likely to vote. Hence, women's suffrage would greatly increase pietist voting power. In 1869, the Prohibitionist Party became the first party to endorse women's suffrage, which it continued to do. The Progressive Party was equally enthusiastic about female suffrage. It was the first major national party to permit women delegates at its conventions. A leading women's suffrage organisation was the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which reached an enormous membership of 300,000 by 1900 and three successive presidents of the major women's suffrage group, the National American Woman Suffrage Association, Susan B. Anthony, Mrs. Carrie Chapman Catt, and Dr. Anna Howard Shaw, all began their activist careers as prohibitionists. Susan B. Anthony put the issue clearly, quote, There is an enemy of the homes of this nation, and that enemy is drunkenness. Everyone connected with the gambling house, the brothel and the saloon works and votes solidly against the enfranchisement of women. And I say, if you believe in chastity, if you believe in honesty and integrity, then take the necessary steps to put the ballot in the hands of women. End quote. For its part, the German-American Alliance of Nebraska sent out an appeal during the unsuccessful referendum in November 1914 on women's suffrage. Written in German, the appeal declared, Our German women do not want the right to vote. And since our opponents desire the right of suffrage mainly for the purpose of saddling the yoke of prohibition on our necks, we should oppose it with all our might. America's entry into World War I provided the impetus for overcoming the substantial opposition to women's suffrage, as a corollary to the success of prohibition and as a reward for the vigorous activity by organised women in behalf of the war effort. To close the loop, much of that activity consisted in stamping out vice and alcohol, as well as instilling patriotic education into the minds of often suspect immigrant groups. Shortly after the US declaration of war, the Council of National Defence created an advisory committee on women's defence work, known as the Women's Committee. The purpose of the committee, writes a celebratory contemporary account, was to coordinate the activities and the resources of the organised and unorganised women of the country, that their power may be immediately utilised in time of need, and to supply a new and direct channel of cooperation between women and governmental department. Chairman of the Women's Committee, working energetically and full-time, was the former president of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, Dr. Anna Howard Shaw, and another leading member was the suffrage group's current chairman and an equally prominent suffragette, 
Mrs. Carrie Chapman Catt. The Women's Committee promptly set up organisations in cities and states across the country, and on June 19, 1917, convened a conference of over 50 national women's organisations to coordinate their efforts. It was at this conference that the first definite task was imposed upon American women by the indefatigable food czar Herbert Hoover. Hoover enlisted the cooperation of the nation's women in his ambitious campaign for controlling, restricting and cartelizing the food industry in the name of conservation and elimination of waste. Celebrating this coming together of women was one of the Women's Committee's members, the progressive writer and muckraker Mrs. Ida M. Tarbell. Mrs. Tarbell lauded the growing consciousness everywhere that this great enterprise for democracy which we are launching, the US entry into the war, is a national affair, and if an individual or a society is going to do its bit, it must act with and under the government at Washington. Nothing else, Mrs. Tarbell gushed, can explain the action of the women of the country in coming together as they are doing today under one centralised direction. Footnote. Actually, Mrs. Tarbell's muckraking activities were pretty much confined to Rockefeller and Standard Oil. She was highly favourable to business leaders in the Morgan ambit, as witness her laudatory biographies of Judge Elbert H. Gary of U.S. Steel, 1925, and Owen D. Young of General Electric, 1932. End footnote. Mrs. Tarbell's enthusiasm might have been heightened by the fact that she was one of the directing rather than the directed. Herbert Hoover came to the women's conference with the proposal that each of the women sign and distribute a food pledge card on behalf of food conservation. While support for the food pledge among the public was narrower than anticipated, educational efforts to promote the pledge became the basis of the remainder of the women's conservation campaign. The Women's Committee appointed Mrs. Tarbell as chairman of its Committee on Food Administration, and she not only tirelessly organised the campaign, but also wrote many letters and newspaper and magazine articles on its behalf. In addition to food control, another important and immediate function of the Women's Committee was to attempt to register every woman in the country for possible volunteer or paid work in support of the war effort. Every woman aged 16 or over was asked to sign and submit a registration card with all pertinent information, including training, experience and the sort of work desired. In that way, the government would know the whereabouts and training of every woman, and government and women could then serve each other best. In many states, especially Ohio and Illinois, state governments set up schools to train the registrars. And even though the Women's Committee kept insisting that the registration was completely voluntary, the state of Louisiana, as Ida Clark puts it, developed a novel and clever idea to facilitate the program. Women's registration was made compulsory. Louisiana's governor, Ruffin G. Pleasant, decreed October 17, 1917, Compulsory Registration Day, and a host of state officials collaborated in its operation. The State Food Commission made sure that food pledges were also signed by all, and the state school board granted a holiday on October 17th so that teachers could assist in the compulsory registration, 
especially in the rural districts. 6,000 women were officially commissioned by the state of Louisiana to conduct the registration, and they worked in tandem with the state food conservation officials and parish demonstration agents. In the French areas of the state, the Catholic priests rendered valuable aid in personally appealing to all their female parishioners to perform their registration duties. Handbills were circulated in French, house-to-house canvases were made, and speeches urging registration were made by women activists in movie theatres, schools, churches and courthouses. We are informed that all responses were eager and cordial. There is no mention of any resistance. We are also advised that even the Negroes were quite alive to the situation, meeting sometimes with the white people and sometimes at the call of their own pastors. Also helping out in women's registration and food control was another smaller but slightly more sinister women's organisation that had been launched by Congress as a sort of pre-war wartime group at a large Congress for Constructive Patriotism held in Washington, D.C. in late January 1917. This was the National League for Women's Service, NLWS, which established a nationwide organisation later overshadowed and overlapped by the larger Women's Committee. The difference was that the NLWS was set up on, quite frankly, military lines. Each local working unit was called a detachment under a detachment commander. District-wide and state-wide detachments met in annual encampments, and every woman member was to wear a uniform with an organisation badge and insignia. In particular, the basis of training for all detachments is standardised physical drill. A vital part of the Women's Committee work was engaging in patriotic education. The government and the Women's Committee recognised that immigrant ethnic women were most in need of such vital instruction, and so it set up a committee on education headed by the energetic Mrs. Carrie Chapman Catt. Mrs. Catt stated the problem well to the Women's Committee. Millions of people in the United States were unclear on why we were at war, and why, as Ida Clark paraphrases Mrs. Catt, there is the imperative necessity of winning the war if future generations were to be protected from the menace of an unscrupulous militarism. Presumably US militarism, being scrupulous, posed no problem. Apathy and ignorance abounded, Mrs. Catt went on, and she proposed to mobilise 20 million American women, the greatest sentiment-makers of any community, to begin a vast educational movement to get the women fervently enlisted to push the war to victory as rapidly as possible. As Mrs. Catt continued, however, the clarity of war aims she called for really amounted to pointing out that we were in the war whether the nation likes it or does not like it, and that therefore the sacrifices needed to win the war, willingly or unwillingly, must be made. These statements are reminiscent of arguments supporting recent military actions by Ronald Reagan. He had to do what he had to do. In the end, Mrs. Catt could come up with only one reasoned argument for the war, apart from this alleged necessity, that it must be won to make it the war to end wars. The patriotic education campaign of the organised women was largely to Americanize immigrant women 
by energetically persuading them a to become naturalized American citizens and b to learn mother English. In the campaign, dubbed America First, national unity was promoted through getting immigrants to learn English and trying to get female immigrants into afternoon or evening English classes. The organized patriot women were also worried about preserving the family structure of the immigrants. If the children learn English and their parents remain ignorant, children will scorn their elders. Parental discipline and control are dissipated, and the whole family fabric becomes weakened. Thus, one of the great conservative forces in the community becomes inoperative. To preserve maternal control of the young, then, Americanization of the foreign women through language becomes imperative. In Erie, Pennsylvania, women's clubs appointed block matrons, whose job it was to get to know the foreign families of the neighborhood, and to back up school authorities in urging the immigrants to learn English, and who, in the rather naive words of Ida Clark, became neighbors, friends, and veritable mother confessors to the foreign women of the block. One would like to have heard some comments from recipients of the attentions of the block matrons. All in all, as a result of the Americanization campaign, Ida Clark concludes: the organized women of this country can play an important part in making ours a country with a common language, a common purpose, a common set of ideals, a unified America. Neither did the government and its organized women neglect progressive economic reforms. At the organizing June 1917 conference of the Women's Committee, Mrs. Carrie Catt emphasized that the greatest problem of the war was to assure that women receive equal pay for equal work. The conference suggested that vigilance committees be established to guard against the violation of ethical laws governing labor, and also that all laws restricting, protecting. The labor of women and children be rigorously enforced. Apparently, there were some values to which maximizing production for the war effort had to take second place. Mrs. Margaret Dreyer Robbins, president of the National Women's Trade Unions League, hailed the fact that the Women's Committee was organizing committees in every state to protect minimum standards for women and children's labor in industry, and demanded minimum wages and shorter hours for women. Mrs. Robbins particularly warned that not only are unorganized women workers in vast numbers used as underbidders in the labor market for lowering industrial standards, but they are related to those groups in industrial centers of our country that are least Americanized and most alien to our institutions and ideals. And so, Americanization and cartelization of female labor went hand in hand. Footnote. Margaret Dreyer Robbins and her husband Raymond were virtually a paradigmatic progressive couple. Raymond was a Florida-born wanderer and successful gold prospector who underwent a mystical conversion experience in the Alaska wilds and became a Pietist preacher. He moved to Chicago, where he became a leader in Chicago's settlement house work and municipal reform. Margaret Dreyer and her sister Mary were daughters of a wealthy and socially prominent New York family. Who worked for and financed the emergent National Women's Trade Union League? Margaret married Raymond Robbins in 1905 and moved to Chicago, soon becoming longtime president of the league. 
In Chicago, the Robbinses led and organized progressive political causes for over two decades, becoming top leaders of the Progressive Party from 1912 to 1916. During the war, Raymond Robbins engaged in considerable diplomatic activity as head of a Red Cross mission to Russia. End footnote. Footnote. Interestingly, the National War Labor Board, NWLB, frankly adopted the concept of equal pay for equal work in order to limit the employment of women workers by imposing higher costs on the employer. The only check, affirmed the NWLB, on excessive employment of women is to make it no more profitable to employ women than men. End footnote. 4. Saving Our Boys from Alcohol and Vice One of organised womanhood's major contributions to the war effort was to collaborate in an attempt to save American soldiers from vice and demon rum. In addition to establishing rigorous dry zones around every military camp in the United States, the Selective Service Act of May 1917 also outlawed prostitution in wide zones around the military camps. To enforce these provisions, the War Department had ready at hand a Commission on Training Camp Activities, an agency soon imitated by the Department of the Navy. Both commissions were headed by a man tailor-made for the job, the progressive New York settlement house worker, municipal political reformer, and former student and disciple of Woodrow Wilson, Raymond Blaine Fosdick. Fosdick's background, life and career were paradigmatic for progressive intellectuals and activists of that era. Fosdick's ancestors were Yankees from Massachusetts and Connecticut, and his great-grandfather pioneered westward in a covered wagon to become a frontier farmer in the heart of the burned-over district of transplanted Yankees, Buffalo, New York. Fosdick's grandfather, a pietist lay preacher born again in a Baptist revival, was a prohibitionist who married a preacher's daughter and became a lifelong public school teacher in Buffalo. Grandfather Fosdick rose to become superintendent of education in Buffalo and a battler for an expanded and strengthened public school system. Fosdick's immediate ancestry continued in the same vein. His father was a public school teacher in Buffalo who rose to become principal of a high school. His mother was deeply pietist and a staunch advocate of prohibition and women's suffrage. Fosdick's father was a devout pietist Protestant and a fanatical Republican, who gave his son Raymond the middle name of his hero, the veteran Maine Republican James G. Blaine. Elder brother Harry Emerson, Raymond and Raymond's twin sister Edith, on emerging from this atmosphere, all forged lifelong careers of pietism and social service. While active in New York Reform Administration, Posdick made a fateful friendship. In 1910, John D. Rockefeller Jr., like his father a pietist Baptist, was chairman of a special grand jury to investigate and to try to stamp out prostitution in New York City. For Rockefeller, the elimination of prostitution was to become an ardent and lifelong crusade. He believed that sin, such as prostitution, must be criminated, quarantined and driven underground through rigorous suppression. In 1911, Rockefeller began his crusade by setting up the Bureau of Social Hygiene, 
into which he poured $5 million in the next quarter century. Two years later, he enlisted Fosdick, already a speaker at the annual dinner of Rockefeller's Baptist Bible class, to study police systems in Europe in conjunction with his activities to end the great social vice. Surveying American police after his stint in Europe at Rockefeller's behest, Fosdick was appalled that police work in the United States was not considered a science, and that it was subject to sordid political influences. Footnote. Fosdick was particularly appalled that American patrolmen on street duty actually smoked cigars. End footnote. At that point, the new Secretary of War, the progressive former mayor of Cleveland, Newton D. Baker, became disturbed at reports that areas near the army camps in Texas on the Mexican border, where troops were mobilized to combat the Mexican revolutionary Pancho Villa, were honeycombed with saloons and prostitution. Sent by Baker on a fact-finding tour in the summer of 1916, scoffed at by tough army officers as the Reverend, Fosdick was horrified to find saloons and brothels seemingly everywhere in the vicinity of the military camps. He reported his consternation to Baker, and at Fosdick's suggestion, Baker cracked down on the army commanders and their lax attitude toward alcohol and vice. But Fosdick was beginning to get the glimmer of another idea. Couldn't the suppression of the bad be accompanied by a positive encouragement of the good, of wholesome recreational alternatives to sin and liquor that our boys could enjoy? When war was declared, Baker quickly appointed Fosdick to be chairman of the Commission on Training Camp Activities. Armed with the coercive resources of the federal government, and rapidly building his bureaucratic empire from merely one secretary to a staff of thousands, Raymond Fosdick set out with determination on his twofold task, stamping out alcohol and sin in and around every military camp, and filling the void for American soldiers and sailors by providing them with wholesome recreation. As head of the Law Enforcement Division of the Training Camp Commission, Fosdick selected Bascom Johnson, attorney for the American Social Hygiene Association. Footnote. The American Social Hygiene Association, with its influential journal Social Hygiene, was the major organization in what was known as the Purity Crusade. The association was launched when the New York physician Dr. Prince A. Morrow, inspired by the agitation against venereal disease and in favor of the continents urged by the French syphilographer John Alfred Fournier, formed in 1905 the American Society for Sanitary and Moral Prophylaxis, ASSMP. Soon the terms proposed by the Chicago branch of the ASSMP, social hygiene and sex hygiene, became widely used for their medical and scientific patina, and in 1910 ASSMP changed its name to the American Federation for Sex Hygiene, AFSH. Finally, in late 1913, AFSH, an organization of physicians, combined with the National Vigilance Association, formerly the American Purity Alliance, a group of clergymen and social workers, to form the all-embracing American Social Hygiene Association, ASHA. In this social hygiene movement, the moral and medical went hand in hand. Thus, Dr. Morrow welcomed the new knowledge about venereal disease 
because it demonstrated that punishment for sexual sin no longer had to be reserved for the hereafter. The first president of ASHA was the president of Harvard University, Charles W. Eliot. In his address to the first meeting, Eliot made clear that total abstinence from alcohol, tobacco, and even spices was part and parcel of the anti-prostitution and purity crusade. End footnote. Johnson was commissioned a major, and his staff of forty aggressive attorneys became second lieutenants. Employing the argument of health and military necessity, Fosdick set up a social hygiene division of his commission, which promulgated the slogan "Fit to Fight." Using a mixture of force and threats to remove federal troops from the bases if recalcitrant cities did not comply, Fosdick managed to bludgeon his way into suppressing, if not prostitution in general, then at least every major red light district in the country. In doing so, Fosdick and Baker, employing local police and the federal military police, far exceeded their legal authority. The law authorized the president to shut down every red light district in a five-mile zone around each military camp or base. Of the 110 red light districts shut down by military force, however, only 35 were included in the prohibited zone. Suppression of the other 75 was an illegal extension of the law. Nevertheless, Fosdick was triumphant. Quote, Through the efforts of this commission on training camp activities, the red light district has practically ceased to be a feature of American city life. End quote. The result of this permanent destruction of the red light district, of course, was to drive prostitution onto the streets, where consumers would be deprived of the protection of either an open market or of regulation. In some cases, the federal anti-vice crusade met considerable resistance. Secretary of Navy Josephus Daniels, a progressive from North Carolina, had to call out the Marines to patrol the streets of resistant Philadelphia, and naval troops, over the strenuous objections of the mayor, were used to crush the fabled red light district of Storyville in New Orleans in November 1917. Footnote. While prostitution was indeed banned in Storyville after 1917, Storyville, contrary to legend, never closed. The saloons and dance halls remained open, and contrary to orthodox accounts, jazz was never really shut down in Storyville or New Orleans, and it was therefore never forced upriver. End footnote. In its hubris, the U.S. Army decided to extend its anti-vice crusade. To foreign shores, General John J. Pershing issued an official bulletin to members of the American Expeditionary Force in France, urging that sexual continence is the plain duty of members of the AEF, both for the vigorous conduct of the war and for the clean health of the American people after the war. Pershing and the American military tried to close all the French brothels in areas where American troops were located. But the move was unsuccessful because the French objected bitterly. Premier Georges Clemenceau pointed out that the result of the total prohibition of regulated prostitution in the vicinity of American troops was only to increase venereal diseases among the civilian population of the neighborhood. 
Finally, the United States had to rest content with declaring French civilian areas off limits to the troops. Footnote: Newton Baker's local biographer declared that Clemenceau, in his response, showed his animal proclivities as the tiger of France. End footnote. The more positive part of Raymond Fosdick's task during the war was supplying the soldiers and sailors with a constructive substitute for sin and alcohol, healthful amusements, and wholesome company. As might be expected, the Women's Committee and Organized Womanhood collaborated enthusiastically. They followed the injunction of Secretary of War Baker that the government cannot allow these young men to be surrounded by a vicious and demoralizing environment. Nor can we leave anything undone which will protect them from unhealthy influences and crude forms of temptation. The Women's Committee found, however, that in the great undertaking of safeguarding the health and morals of our boys, their most challenging problem proved to be guarding the morals of their mobilized young girls. For unfortunately, where soldiers are stationed, the problem of preventing girls from being misled by the glamour and romance of war and beguiling uniforms looms large. Fortunately, perhaps the Maryland Committee proposed the establishment of a patriotic league of honour, which will inspire girls to adopt the highest standards of womanliness and loyalty to their country. Footnote. In some cases, organized women took the offensive to help stamp out vice and liquor in their community. Thus, in Texas in 1917, the Texas Women's Anti-Vice Committee led in the creation of a white zone around all the military bases. By autumn, the committee expanded into the Texas Social Hygiene Association to coordinate the work of eradicating prostitution and saloons. San Antonio proved to be its biggest problem. End footnote. No group was more delighted with the achievements of Fosdick and his military training camp commission than the burgeoning profession of social work. Surrounded by hand-picked aides from the Playground and Recreation Association and the Russell Sage Foundation, Fosdick and the others, in effect, tried to create a massive settlement house around each camp. No army had ever seen anything like it before. But it was an outgrowth of the recreation and community organization movement, and a victory for those who had been arguing for the creative use of leisure time. The social work profession pronounced the program an enormous success. The influential Survey magazine summed up the result as the most stupendous piece of social work in modern times. Footnote: After the war, Raymond Fosdick went on to fame and fortune. First, as Under Secretary General of the League of Nations, and then for the rest of his life as a member of the small inner circle close to John D. Rockefeller Jr. In that capacity, Fosdick rose to become head of the Rockefeller Foundation and Rockefeller's official biographer. Meanwhile, Fosdick's brother, Reverend Harry Emerson, became Rockefeller's hand-picked parish minister, first at Park Avenue Presbyterian Church. And then at the new interdenominational Riverside Church, built with Rockefeller funds, Harry Emerson Fosdick was Rockefeller's principal aide in battling within the Protestant Church in favor of post-millennial, statist, liberal Protestantism, and against the rising tide of pre-millennial Christianity, 
known as fundamentalist since the years before World War I. End footnote. Social workers were also exultant about prohibition. In 1917, the National Conference of Charities and Corrections, which changed its name around the same time to the National Conference of Social Work, was emboldened to drop whatever value-free pose it might have had and come out squarely for prohibition. On returning from Russia in 1917, Edward T. Devine of the Charity Organization Society of New York exclaimed that the social revolution which followed the prohibition of vodka was more profoundly important than the political revolution which abolished autocracy. And Robert A. Woods of Boston, the grand old man of the settlement house movement and a veteran advocate of prohibition, predicted in 1919 that the 18th Amendment, one of the greatest and best events in history, would reduce poverty, wipe out prostitution and crime, and liberate vast suppressed human potentialities. Woods, president of the National Conference of Social Work during 1917-1918, had long denounced alcohol as an abominable evil. A post-millennial pietist, he believed in Christian statesmanship that would, in a propaganda of the deed, Christianize the social order in a corporate communal route to the glorification of God. Like many pietists, Woods cared not for creeds or dogmas, but only for advancing Christianity in a communal way. Though an active Episcopalian, his parish was the community at large. In his settlement work, Woods had long favoured the isolation or segregation of the unfit, in particular the tramp, the drunkard, the pauper, the imbecile, with the settlement house as the nucleus of this reform. Woods was particularly eager to isolate and punish the drunkard and the tramp. Inveterate drunkards were to receive increasing levels of punishment, with ever lengthier jail terms. The tramp evil was to be gotten rid of by rounding up and jailing vagrants, who would be placed in tramp workhouses and put to forced labour. For Woods, the World War was a momentous event. It had advanced the process of Americanization, a great humanizing process through which all loyalties, all beliefs, must be wrought together in a better order. The war had wonderfully released the energies of the American people. Now, however, it was important to carry the wartime momentum into the post-war world. Lauding the war collectivist society during the spring of 1918, Robert Woods asked the crucial question, Why should it not always be so? Why not continue in the years of peace this close, vast, wholesome organism of service, of fellowship, of constructive, creative power? 5. The New Republic Collectivists The New Republic magazine, founded in 1914 as the leading intellectual organ of progressivism, was a living embodiment of the burgeoning alliance between big business interests, in particular the House of Morgan, and the growing legion of collectivist intellectuals. Founder and publisher of the New Republic was Willard D. Strait, partner of J.P. Morgan & Co., and its financier was Strait's wife, the heiress Dorothy Whitney. Major editor of the influential New Weekly 
was the veteran collectivist and theoretician of Teddy Roosevelt's new nationalism, Herbert David Crowley. Crowley's two co-editors were Walter Edward Weil, another theoretician of the new nationalism, and the young, ambitious former official of the Intercollegiate Socialist Society, the future pundit Walter Lippmann. As Woodrow Wilson began to take America into World War I, the New Republic, though originally Rooseveltian, became an enthusiastic supporter of the war, and a virtual spokesman for the Wilson war effort, the wartime collectivist economy, and the new society moulded by the war. On the higher levels of ratiocination, unquestionably the leading progressive intellectual, before, during and after World War I, was the champion of pragmatism, Professor John Dewey of Columbia University. Dewey wrote frequently for the New Republic in this period, and was clearly its leading theoretician. A Yankee born in 1859, Dewey was, as Mencken put it, of indestructible Vermont stock, and a man of the highest bearable sobriety. John Dewey was the son of a small-town Vermont grocer. Although he was a pragmatist and a secular humanist most of his life, it is not as well known that Dewey, in the years before 1900, was a post-millennial pietist, seeking the gradual development of a Christianized social order and kingdom of God on earth via the expansion of science, community, and the state. During the 1890s, Dewey, as professor of philosophy at the University of Michigan, expounded his vision of post-millennial pietism in a series of lectures before the Students' Christian Association. Dewey argued that the growth of modern science now makes it possible for man to establish the biblical idea of the kingdom of God on earth. Once humans had broken free of the restraints of orthodox Christianity, a truly religious kingdom of God could be realized in the common incarnate life, the purpose animating all men and binding them together into one harmonious whole of sympathy. Religion would thus work in tandem with science and democracy all of which would break down the barriers between men and establish the kingdom. After 1900, it was easy for John Dewey, along with most other post-millennial intellectuals of the period, to shift gradually but decisively from post-millennial progressive Christian statism to progressive secular statism. The path, the expansion of statism and social control and planning, remained the same. And even though the Christian creed dropped out of the picture, the intellectuals and activists continued to possess the same evangelical zeal for the salvation of the world that their parents and they themselves had once possessed. The world would, and must still, be saved through progress and statism. A pacifist while in the midst of peace, John Dewey prepared himself to lead the parade for war as America drew nearer to armed intervention in the European struggle. First, in January 1916, in the New Republic, Dewey attacked the professional pacifists' outright condemnation of war as a sentimental fantasy, a confusion of means and ends. Force, he declared, was simply a means of getting results, and therefore would neither be lauded nor condemned per se. Next, in April, Dewey signed a pro-Allied manifesto, not only cheering for an Allied victory, but also proclaiming that the Allies were 
struggling to preserve the liberties of the world and the highest ideals of civilization. And though Dewey supported U.S. entry into the war so that Germany could be defeated, a hard job but one which had to be done, he was far more interested in the wonderful changes that the war would surely bring about in the domestic American polity. In particular, war offered a golden opportunity to bring about collectivist social control in the interest of social justice. As one historian put it, quote, Because war demanded paramount commitment to the national interest and necessitated an unprecedented degree of government planning and economic regulation in that interest, Dewey saw the prospect of permanent socialization, permanent replacement of private and possessive interest by public and social interest, both within and among nations. End quote. In an interview with the New York World a few months after U.S. entry into the war, Dewey exulted that this war may easily be the beginning of the end of business. For out of the needs of the war, we are beginning to produce for use, not for sale, and the capitalist is not a capitalist in the face of the war. Capitalist conditions of production and sale are now under government control, and there is no reason to believe that the old principle will ever be resumed. Private property had already lost its sanctity. Industrial democracy is on the way. Footnote. For similar reasons, Torsten Verblen, prophet of the alleged dichotomy of production for profit versus production for use, championed the war and began to come out openly for socialism in an article in the New Republic in 1918. End footnote. In short, intelligence is at last being used to tackle social problems, and this practice is destroying the old order and creating a new social order of democratic integrated control. Labour is acquiring more power, science is at last being socially mobilised, and massive government controls are socialising industry. These developments, Dewey proclaimed, were precisely what we are fighting for. Furthermore, John Dewey saw great possibilities opened by the war for the advent of worldwide collectivism. To Dewey, America's entrance into the war created a plastic juncture in the world, a world marked by a world organisation and the beginnings of a public control which crosses nationalistic boundaries and interests, and which would also outlaw war. The editors of the New Republic took a position similar to Dewey's, except that they arrived at it even earlier. In his editorial in the magazine's first issue in November 1914, Herbert Crowley cheerily prophesied that the war would stimulate America's spirit of nationalism and therefore bring it closer to democracy. At first hesitant about the collectivist war economies in Europe, the New Republic soon began to cheer and urged the United States to follow the lead of the warring European nations and socialise its economy and expand the powers of the state. As America prepared to enter the war, the New Republic, examining war collectivism in Europe, rejoiced that, on its administrative side, socialism had won a victory that was superb and compelling. True, European war collectivism was a bit grim and autocratic, but never fear. America could use the self-same means for 
democratic goals. The New Republic intellectuals also delighted in the war spirit in America, for that spirit meant the substitution of national and social and organic forces for the more or less mechanical private forces operative in peace. The purposes of war and social reform might be a bit different, but after all, quote, they are both purposes, and luckily for mankind, a social organization which is efficient is as useful for the one as for the other. End quote. Footnote. It is intriguing that for the New Republic intellectuals, actually existent private individuals are dismissed as mechanical, whereas non-existent entities such as national and social forces are hailed as being organic. End footnote. Lucky indeed. As America prepared to enter the war, the New Republic eagerly looked forward to imminent collectivization, sure that it would bring immense gains in national efficiency and happiness. After war was declared, the magazine urged that the war be used as an aggressive tool of democracy. Why should not the war serve, the magazine asked, as a pretext to be used to foist innovations upon the country? In that way, progressive intellectuals could lead the way in abolishing the typical evils of the sprawling, half-educated, competitive capitalism. Convinced that the United States would attain socialism through war, Walter Lippmann, in a public address shortly after American entry, trumpeted his apocalyptic vision of the future. Quote, We who have gone to war to ensure democracy in the world will have raised an aspiration here that will not end with the overthrow of the Prussian autocracy. We shall turn with fresh interests to our own tyrannies, to our Colorado mines, our autocratic steel industries, sweatshops and our slums. A force is loose in America. Our own reactionaries will not assuage it. We shall know how to deal with them. End quote. Footnote. A minority of pro-war socialists broke off from the anti-war socialist party to form the Social Democratic League and to join a pro-war front organized and financed by the Wilson administration, the American Alliance for Labor and Democracy. The pro-war socialists welcomed the war as providing startling progress in collectivism and opined that after the war, the existent state socialism would be advanced toward democratic collectivism. The pro-war socialists included John Spargo, Algie Simmons, W.J. Ghent, Robert R. Lamont, Charles Edward Russell, J.G. Phelps Stokes, Upton Sinclair, and William English Walling. Walling so succumbed to war fever that he denounced the Socialist Party as a conscious tool of the Kaiser and advocated the suppression of freedom of speech for pacifists and for anti-war socialists. End footnote. Walter Lippmann, indeed, had been the foremost hawk among the New Republic intellectuals. He had pushed Crowley into backing Wilson and into supporting intervention, and then had collaborated with Colonel House in pushing Wilson into entering the war. Soon Lippmann, an enthusiast for conscription, had to confront the fact that he himself, only 27 years old and in fine health, was eminently eligible for the draft. 
Somehow, however, Lippmann failed to unite theory and praxis. Young Felix Frankfurter, progressive Harvard law professor and a close associate of the New Republic editorial staff, had just been selected as a special assistant to Secretary of War Baker. Lippmann somehow felt that his own inestimable services could be better used planning the post-war world than battling in the trenches. And so he wrote to Frankfurter asking for a job in Baker's office. What I want to do, he pleaded, is to devote all my time to studying and speculating on the approaches to peace and the reaction from the peace. Do you think you can get me an exemption on such highfalutin grounds? He then rushed to reassure Frankfurter that there was nothing personal in this request. After all, he explained, the things that need to be thought out are so big that there must be no personal element mixed up with this. Frankfurter having paved the way, Lippmann wrote to Secretary Baker. He assured Baker that he was only applying for a job and draft exemption on the pleading of others and in stern submission to the national interest. As Lippmann put it in a remarkable demonstration of Kant, quote, I have consulted all the people whose advice I value, and they urge me to apply for exemption. You can well understand that this is not a pleasant thing to do, and yet after searching my soul as candidly as I know how, I am convinced that I can serve my bit much more effectively than as a private in the new armies. End quote. No doubt. As icing on the cake, Lippmann added an important bit of disinformation, for he piteously wrote to Baker, The fact is that my father is dying, and my mother is absolutely alone in the world. She does not know what his condition is, and I cannot tell anyone for fear it would become known. Apparently no one else knew his father's condition either, including his father and the medical profession, for the older Lippmann managed to peg along successfully for the next ten years. Footnote. In fact, Jacob Lippmann was to contract cancer in 1925 and die two years later. Moreover, Lippmann, before and after Jacob's death, was supremely indifferent to his father. End footnote. Secure in his draft exemption, Walter Lippmann hied off in high excitement to Washington, there to help run the war and a few months later to help direct Colonel House's secret conclave of historians and social scientists setting out to plan the shape of the future peace treaty and the post-war world. Let others fight and die in the trenches, Walter Lippmann had the satisfaction of knowing that his talents, at least, would be put to their best use by the newly emerging collectivist state. As the war went on, Crowley and the other editors, having lost Lippmann to the great world beyond, cheered every new development of the massively controlled war economy. The nationalisation of railroads and shipping, the priorities and allocation system, the total domination of all parts of the food industry achieved by Herbert Hoover and the Food Administration, the pro-union policy, the high taxes and the draft were all hailed by the New Republic as an expansion of democracy's power to plan for the general good. As the armistice ushered in the post-war world, the New Republic looked back on the handiwork of the war and found it good. We revolutionised our society. 
All that remained was to organize a new constitutional convention to complete the job of reconstructing America. But the revolution had not been fully completed. Despite the objections of Bernard Baruch and other wartime planners, the government decided not to make most of the war collectivist machinery permanent. From then on, the fondest ambition of Baruch and the others was to make the World War I system a permanent institution of American life. The most trenchant epitaph on the World War I polity was delivered by Rexford Guy Tugwell, the most frankly collectivist of the brain trusters of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. Looking back on America's wartime socialism in 1927, Tugwell lamented that if only the war had lasted longer, that great experiment could have been completed. We were on the verge of having an international industrial machine when peace broke, Tugwell mourned. Only the armistice prevented a great experiment in control of production, control of prices, and control of consumption. Tugwell need not have been troubled. There would soon be other emergencies, other wars. At the end of the war, Lippmann was to go on to become America's foremost journalistic pundit. Crowley, having broken with the Wilson administration on the harshness of the Versailles Treaty, was bereft to find the New Republic no longer the spokesman for some great political leader. During the late 1920s, he was to discover an exemplary national collectivist leader abroad, in Benito Mussolini. Footnote. In January 1927, Crowley wrote a New Republic editorial, An Apology for Fascism, endorsing an accompanying article, Fascism for the Italians, written by the distinguished philosopher Horace M. Callan, a disciple of John Dewey and an exponent of progressive pragmatism. Callan praised Mussolini for his pragmatic approach, and in particular for the élan vital that Mussolini had infused into Italian life. True, Professor Callan conceded, fascism is coercive, but surely this is only a temporary expedient. Noting fascism's excellent achievement in economics, education and administrative reform, Callan added that, in this respect, the fascist revolution is not unlike the communist revolution. Each is the application by force of an ideology to a condition. Each should have the freest opportunity once it has made a start. The accompanying New Republic editorial endorsed Callan's thesis and added that alien critics should beware of outlawing a political experiment which aroused in a whole nation an increased moral energy and dignified its activities by subordinating them to a deeply felt common purpose. End footnote. That Crowley ended his years as an admirer of Mussolini comes as no surprise when we realise that from early childhood he had been steeped by a doting father in the authoritarian socialist doctrines of Auguste Comte's positivism. These views were to mark Crowley throughout his life. Thus, Herbert's father, David, the founder of positivism in the United States, advocated the establishment of vast powers of government over everyone's life. David Crowley favoured the growth of trusts and monopolies as a means both to that end and also to eliminate the evils of individual competition and selfishness. Like his son, David Crowley railed at the Jeffersonian fear of government in America and looked to Hamilton 
as an example to counter that trend. Footnote. Born in Ireland, David Crowley became a distinguished journalist in New York City and rose to the editorship of the New York World. Crowley organized the first positivist circle in the United States and financed an American speaking tour for the Comptian Henry Edgar. The positivist circle met at Crowley's home and in 1871 David Crowley published A Positivist Primer. When Herbert was born in 1869, he was consecrated by his father to the goddess Humanity, the symbol of Comte's religion of humanity. End footnote. And what of Professor Dewey, the doyen of pacifist intellectuals turned drumbeaters for war? In a little-known period of his life, John Dewey spent the immediate post-war years, 1919-21, to 21, teaching at Peking University and travelling in the Far East. China was then in a period of turmoil over the clauses of the Versailles Treaty that transferred the rights of dominance in Shantung from Germany to Japan. Japan had been promised this reward by the British and French in secret treaties in return for entering the war against Germany. The Wilson administration was torn between two camps. On the one hand, there were those who wished to stand by the Allies' decision and who envisioned using Japan as a club against Bolshevik Russia in Asia. On the other were those who had already begun to sound the alarm about a Japanese menace, and who were committed to China, often because of connections with the American Protestant missionaries who wished to defend and expand their extraterritorial powers of governance in China. The Wilson administration, which had originally taken a pro-Chinese stand, reversed itself in the spring of 1919 and endorsed the Versailles Provisions. Into this complex situation, John Dewey plunged, seeing no complexity, and of course considering it unthinkable for either him or the United States to stay out of the entire fray. Dewey leapt into total support of the Chinese nationalist position, hailing the aggressive Young China movement and even endorsing the pro-missionary YMCA in China as social workers. Dewey thundered that while I didn't expect to be a jingo, Japan must be called to account, and Japan is the great menace in Asia. Thus, scarcely had Dewey ceased being a champion of one terrible world war than he began to pave the way for an even greater one. 6. Economics in Service of the State The Empiricism of Richard T. Ely World War I was the apotheosis of the growing notion of intellectuals as servants of the state and junior partners in state rule. In the new fusion of intellectuals and state, each was of powerful aid to the other. Intellectuals could serve the state by apologising for and supplying rationales for its deeds. Intellectuals were also needed to staff important positions as planners and controllers of the society and economy. The state could also serve intellectuals by restricting entry into, and thereby raising the income and the prestige of, the various occupations and professions. During World War I, historians were of particular importance in supplying the government with war propaganda 
convincing the public of the unique evil of Germans throughout history and of the satanic designs of the Kaiser. Economists, particularly empirical economists and statisticians, were of great importance in the planning and control of the nation's wartime economy. Historians playing preeminent roles in the war propaganda machine have been studied fairly extensively. Economists and statisticians playing a less blatant and allegedly value-free role have received far less attention. Although it is an outworn generalization to say that 19th century economists were stalwart champions of laissez-faire, it is still true that deductive economic theory proved to be a mighty bulwark against government intervention. For basically, economic theory showed the harmony and order inherent in the free market, as well as the counterproductive distortions and economic shackles imposed by state intervention. In order for statism to dominate the economics profession then, it was important to discredit deductive theory. One of the most important ways of doing so was to advance the notion that, to be genuinely scientific, economics had to eschew generalization and deductive laws and simply engage in empirical inquiry into the facts of history and historical institutions hoping that somehow laws would eventually arise from these detailed investigations. Thus, the German historical school, which managed to seize control of the economics discipline in Germany, fiercely proclaimed not only its devotion to statism and government control, but also its opposition to the abstract, deductive laws of political economy. This was the first major group within the economics profession to champion what Ludwig von Mises was later to call anti-economics. Gustav Schmoller, the leader of the historical school, proudly declared that his and his colleagues' major task at the University of Berlin was to form the intellectual bodyguard of the House of Hohenzollern. During the 1880s and 1890s, bright young graduate students in history and the social sciences went to Germany the home of the PhD degree, to obtain their doctorates. Almost to a man, they returned to the United States to teach in colleges and in the newly created graduate schools, imbued with the excitement of the new economics and political science. It was a new social science that lauded the German and Bismarckian development of a powerful welfare warfare state, a state seemingly above all social classes, that fused the nation into an integrated and allegedly harmonious whole. The new society and polity was to be run by a powerful central government, cartelizing, dictating, arbitrating and controlling, thereby eliminating competitive laissez-faire capitalism on the one hand and the threat of proletarian socialism on the other. And at or near the head of the new dispensation, was to be the new breed of intellectuals, technocrats and planners, directing, staffing, propagandizing, and selflessly promoting the common good, while ruling and lording over the rest of society. In short, doing well by doing good. To the new breed of progressive and statist intellectuals in America, this was a heady vision indeed. Richard T. Ely virtually the founder of this new breed, was the leading progressive economist and also the teacher of most of the others. 
as an ardent post-millennial pietist, Ely was convinced that he was serving God and Christ as well. Like so many pietists, Ely was born in 1854 of solid Yankee and old Puritan stock, again in the midst of the fanatical Burned-Over district of western New York. Ely's father, Ezra, was an extreme Sabbatarian, preventing his family from playing games or reading books on Sunday, and so ardent a prohibitionist that, even though an impoverished marginal farmer, he refused to grow barley, a crop uniquely suitable to his soil because it would have been used to make that monstrously sinful product, beer. Having been graduated from Columbia College in 1876, Ely went to Germany and received his PhD from Heidelberg in 1879. In several decades of teaching at Johns Hopkins and then at Wisconsin, the energetic and empire-building Ely became enormously influential in American thought and politics. At Johns Hopkins he turned out a gallery of influential students and status disciples in all fields of the social sciences, as well as economics. These disciples were headed by the pro-union institutionalist economist John R. Commons, and included the social control sociologists Edward Ellsworth Ross and Albion W. Small, John H. Finley, president of City College of New York, Dr. Albert Shaw, editor of the Review of Reviews and influential advisor and theoretician to Theodore Roosevelt, the municipal reformer Frederick C. Howe, and the historians Frederick Jackson Turner and J. Franklin Jameson. Newton D. Baker was trained by Ely at Hopkins, and Woodrow Wilson was also his student there, although there is no direct evidence of intellectual influence. In the mid-1880s, Richard Ely founded the American Economic Association in a conscious attempt to commit the economics profession to statism, as against the older laissez-faire economists grouped in the Political Economy Club. Ely continued as secretary-treasurer of the AEA for seven years, until his reformer allies decided to weaken the association's commitment to statism in order to induce the laissez-faire economists to join the organisation. At that point, Ely, in high dudgeon, left the AEA. At Wisconsin in 1892, Ely formed a new school of economics, political science and history, surrounded himself with former students, and gave birth to the Wisconsin idea, which, with the help of John Commons, succeeded in passing a host of progressive measures for government regulation in Wisconsin. Ely and the others formed an unofficial but powerful brain trust for the progressive regime of Wisconsin Governor Robert M. LaFollette, who got his start in Wisconsin politics as an advocate of prohibition. Though never a classroom student of Ely's, LaFollette always referred to Ely as his teacher and as the molder of the Wisconsin idea. And Theodore Roosevelt once declared that Ely first introduced me to radicalism in economics and then made me sane in my radicalism. Ely was also one of the most prominent post-millennialist intellectuals of the era. He fervently believed that the state is God's chosen instrument for reforming and Christianizing the social order, so that eventually Jesus would arrive and put an end to history. The state, declared Ely, 
is religious in its essence, and furthermore, God works through the state in carrying out his purposes more universally than through any other institution. The task of the church is to guide the state and utilize it in these needed reforms. An inveterate activist and organizer, Ely was prominent in the evangelical Chautauqua movement, and he founded there the Christian Sociology Summer School, which infused the influential Chautauqua operation with the concepts and the personnel of the social gospel movement. Ely was a friend and close associate of social gospel leaders, Reverends Washington Gladden, Walter Rauschenbusch, and Josiah Strong. With Strong and Commons, Ely organized the Institute of Christian Sociology. Footnote. John Rogers Commons was of old Yankee stock, descendant of John Rogers, Puritan martyr in England, and born in the Yankee area of the Western Reserve in Ohio and reared in Indiana. His Vermont mother was a graduate of the hotbed of pietism, Oberlin College, and she sent John to Oberlin in the hopes that he would become a minister. While in college, Commons and his mother launched a prohibitionist publication at the request of the Anti-Saloon League. After graduation, Commons went to Johns Hopkins to study under Ely, but flunked out of graduate school. End footnote. Ely also founded and became the secretary of the Christian Social Union of the Episcopal Church, along with Christian socialist W.D.P. Bliss. All of these activities were infused with post-millennial statism. Thus, the Institute of Christian Sociology was pledged to present God's kingdom as the complete ideal of human society to be realized on earth. Moreover, quote, Ely viewed the state as the greatest redemptive force in society. In Ely's eyes, government was the God-given instrument through which we had to work. Its preeminence as a divine instrument was based on the post-Reformation abolition of the division between the sacred and the secular, and on the state's power to implement ethical solutions to public problems. The same identification of sacred and secular which took place among liberal clergy enabled Ely to both divinize the state and socialize Christianity. He thought of government as God's main instrument of redemption. End quote. Footnote. Ely did not expect the millennial kingdom to be far off. He believed that it was the task of the universities and of the social sciences to teach the complexities of the Christian duty of brotherhood in order to arrive at the new Jerusalem, which we are all eagerly awaiting. The church's mission was to attack every evil institution until the earth becomes a new earth, and all its cities, cities of God. End footnote. When war came, Richard Ely was for some reason, perhaps because he was in his sixties, left out of the excitement of war work and economic planning in Washington. He bitterly regretted that, I have not had a more active part than I have had in this greatest war in the world's history. But Ely made up for this lack as best he could. Virtually from the start of the European war, he whooped it up for militarism, war, the discipline of conscription, and the suppression of dissent and disloyalty at home. A lifelong militarist, 
Ely had tried to volunteer for war service in the Spanish-American War, had called for the suppression of the Philippine insurrection, and was particularly eager for conscription and for forced labour for loafers during World War I. By 1915, Ely was agitating for immediate compulsory military service, and the following year he joined the ardently pro-war and heavily big-business-influenced National Security League where he called for the liberation of the German people from autocracy. In advocating conscription, Ely was neatly able to combine moral, economic and prohibitionist arguments for the draft. Quote, The moral effect of taking boys off street corners and out of saloons and drilling them is excellent, and the economic effects are likewise beneficial. End quote. Footnote. The Chamber of Commerce of the United States spelled out the long-run economic benefit of conscription, that for America's youth it would substitute a period of helpful discipline for a period of demoralizing freedom from restraint. End footnote. Indeed, conscription for Ely served almost as a panacea for all ills. So enthusiastic was he about the World War I experience that Ely again prescribed his favourite cure-all to alleviate the 1929 depression. He proposed a permanent peacetime industrial army engaged in public works and manned by conscripting youth for strenuous physical labour. This conscription would instil into America's youth the essential military ideals of hardihood and discipline. A discipline once provided by life on the farm but unavailable to the bulk of the populace now growing up in the effete cities. This small, standing conscript army could then speedily absorb the unemployed during depressions. Under the command of an economic general staff, the industrial army would go to work to relieve distress with all the vigour and resources of brain and brawn that we employed in the World War. Deprived of a position in Washington, Ely made the stamping out of disloyalty at home his major contribution to the war effort. He called for the total suspension of academic freedom for the duration. Any professor, he declared, who stated, opinions which hinder us in this awful struggle should be fired, if not indeed shot. The particular focus of Ely's formidable energy was a zealous campaign to try to get his old ally in Wisconsin politics, Robert M. La Follette, expelled from the U.S. Senate for continuing to oppose America's participation in the war. Ely declared that his blood boils at La Follette's treason and attacks on war profiteering. Throwing himself into the battle, Ely founded and became president of the Madison chapter of the Wisconsin Loyalty Legion and mounted a campaign to expel La Follette. Footnote. Ely drew up a super-patriotic pledge for the Madison chapter of the Loyalty Legion, pledging its members to stamp out disloyalty. The pledge also expressed unqualified support for the Espionage Act, and vowed to work against La Follettism in all its anti-war forms. End footnote. The campaign was meant to mobilise the Wisconsin faculty, 
and to support the ultra-patriotic and ultra-hawkish activities of Theodore Roosevelt. Ely wrote to TR that we must crush La Follettism. In his unremitting campaign against the Wisconsin senator, Ely thundered that La Follette has been of more help to the Kaiser than a quarter of a million troops. Empiricism rampant. The faculty of the University of Wisconsin was stung by charges throughout the state and the country that its failure to denounce La Follette was proof that the university, long affiliated with La Follette in state politics, supported his disloyal anti-war policies. Prodded by Ely, Commons and others, the university's war committee drew up and circulated a petition signed by the university president, all the deans and over 90% of the faculty that provided one of the more striking examples in United States history of academic truckling to the state apparatus. None too subtly using the constitutional verbiage for treason, the petition protested, quote, against those utterances and actions of Senator La Follette which have given aid and comfort to Germany and her allies in the present war. We deplore his failure loyally to support the government in the prosecution of the war. End quote. Behind the scenes, Ely tried his best to mobilize America's historians against La Follette to demonstrate that he had given aid and comfort to the enemy. Ely was able to enlist the services of the National Board of Historical Service, the propaganda agency established by professional historians for the duration of the war, and of the government's own propaganda arm, the Committee on Public Information. Warning that the effort must remain secret, Ely mobilized historians under the aegis of these organizations to research German and Austrian newspapers and journals to try to build a record of La Follette's alleged influence, indicating the encouragement he has given Germany. The historian E. Merton Coulter revealed the objective spirit animating these researches. Quote, I understand it is to be an unbiased and candid account of the senator's, La Follette's, course and its effect. But we all know it can lead but to one conclusion, something little short of treason. End quote. Professor Gruber well notes that this campaign to get La Follette was quote, a remarkable example of the uses of scholarship for espionage. It was a far cry from the disinterested search for truth for a group of professors to mobilize a secret research campaign to find ammunition to destroy the political career of a United States senator who did not share their view of the war. End quote. Footnote. In his autobiography, written in 1938, Richard Ely rewrote history to cover up his ignominious role in the Get La Follette campaign. He acknowledged signing the faculty petition, but then had the temerity to claim that he was not one of the ringleaders, as La Follette thought, in circulating this petition. There is no mention of his secret research campaign against La Follette. End footnote. In any event, no evidence was turned up. The movement failed, and the Wisconsin Professoriat began to move away in distrust from the Loyalty Legion. After the menace of the Kaiser had been extirpated, 
The Armistice found Professor Ely, along with his compatriots in the National Security League, ready to segue into the next round of patriotic repression. During Ely's anti-La Follette research campaign, he had urged investigation of the kind of influence which he, La Follette, has exerted against our country in Russia. Ely pointed out that modern democracy requires a high degree of conformity, and that therefore the most serious menace of Bolshevism, which Ely depicted as social disease germs, must be fought with repressive measures. By 1924, however, Richard T. Ely's career of repression was over, and what is more, in a rare instance of the workings of poetic justice, he was hoisted with his own petard. In 1922, the much-traduced Robert La Follette was re-elected to the Senate, and also swept the progressives back into power in the state of Wisconsin. By 1924, the progressives had gained control of the Board of Regents, and they moved to cut off the water of their former academic ally and empire builder. Ely then felt it prudent to move out of Wisconsin, together with his institute and while he lingered for some years at Northwestern, the heyday of Ely's fame and fortune was over. 7. Economics in Service of the State, Government and Statistics Statistics is a vital, though much underplayed, requisite of modern government. Government could not even presume to control, regulate or plan any portion of the economy without the service of its statistical bureaus and agencies. Deprive government of its statistics, and it would be a blind and helpless giant, with no idea whatever of what to do or where to do it. It might be replied that business firms too need statistics in order to function, but business needs for statistics are far less in quantity and also different in quality. Business may need statistics in its own micro-area of the economy, but only on its prices and costs. It has little need for broad collections of data or for sweeping holistic aggregates. Business could perhaps rely on its own privately collected and unshared data. Furthermore, much entrepreneurial knowledge is qualitative, not enshrined in quantitative data, and of a particular time, area and location but government bureaucracy could do nothing if forced to be confined to qualitative data. Deprived of profit and loss tests for efficiency, or of the need to serve consumers efficiently, conscripting both capital and operating costs from taxpayers, and forced to abide by fixed bureaucratic rules, modern government shorn of masses of statistics could do virtually nothing. Footnote. Thus, T.W. Hutchison from a very different perspective, notes the contrast between Karl Menger's stress on the beneficent unplanned phenomena of society, such as the free market, and the growth of social self-consciousness and government planning. Hutchison recognises that a crucial component of that social self-consciousness is government statistics. End footnote. Hence the enormous importance of World War I not only in providing the power and the precedent for a collectivised economy, but also in greatly accelerating the advent of statisticians and statistical agencies of government, 
many of which and who remained in government, ready for the next leap forward of power. Richard T. Ely, of course, championed the new empirical look-and-see approach, with the aim of fact-gathering to mould the forces at work in society and to improve existing conditions. More importantly, one of the leading authorities on the growth of government expenditure has linked it with statistics and empirical data. Quote, Advance in economic science and statistics strengthened belief in the possibilities of dealing with social problems by collective action. It made for increase in the statistical and other fact-finding activities of government. End quote. Footnote. Similarly, an authoritative work on the growth of government in England puts it this way. Quote, the accumulation of factual information about social conditions and the development of economics and social sciences increased the pressure for government intervention. As statistics improved and students of social conditions multiplied, the continued existence of such conditions was kept before the public. Increasing knowledge of them aroused influential circles and furnished working-class movements with factual weapons. End footnote. As early as 1863, Samuel B. Ruggles, American delegate to the International Statistical Congress in Berlin, proclaimed that statistics are the very eyes of the statesman, enabling him to survey and scan with clear and comprehensive vision the whole structure and economy of the body politic. Footnote. George Hildebrand remarked on the inductive emphasis of the German historical school that perhaps there is then some connection between this kind of teaching and the popularity of crude ideas of physical planning in more recent times. End footnote. Conversely, this means that stripped of these means of vision, the statesman would no longer be able to meddle, control, and plan. Moreover, government statistics are clearly needed for specific types of intervention. Government could not intervene to alleviate unemployment unless statistics of unemployment were collected, and so the impetus for such collection. Carol D. Wright, one of the first commissioners of labor in the United States, was greatly influenced by the famous statistician and German historical school member Ernst Engel, head of the Royal Statistical Bureau of Prussia. Wright sought the collection of unemployment statistics for that reason, and in general for the amelioration of unfortunate industrial and social relations. Henry Carter Adams, a former student of Engel, and like Ely, a statist and progressive new economist, established the Statistical Bureau of the Interstate Commerce Commission, believing that ever-increasing statistical activity by the government was essential for the sake of controlling naturally monopolistic industries. And Professor Irving Fisher of Yale, eager for government to stabilize the price level, conceded that he wrote The Making of Index Numbers to solve the problem of the unreliability of index numbers. Quote, Until this difficulty could be met, stabilization could scarcely be expected to become a reality. End quote. Carol Wright was a Bostonian and a progressive reformer. Henry Carter Adams, the son of a New England pietist Congregationalist preacher on missionary duty in Iowa, 
studied for the ministry at his father's alma mater, Andover Theological Seminary, but soon abandoned this path. Adams devised the accounting system of the Statistical Bureau of the ICC. This system served as a model for the regulation of public utilities here and throughout the world. Footnote. Furthermore, the first professor of statistics in the United States, Roland P. Faulkner, was a devoted student of Engels and a translator of the works of Engels' assistant, Auguste Mateson. End footnote. Irving Fisher was the son of a Rhode Island Congregationalist pietist preacher, and his parents were both of old Yankee stock, his mother a strict Sabbatarian. As befitted what his son and biographer called his crusading spirit, Fisher was an inveterate reformer, urging the imposition of numerous progressive measures, including Esperanto, simplified spelling, and calendar reform. He was particularly enthusiastic about purging the world of such iniquities of civilization as alcohol, tea, coffee, tobacco, refined sugar, and bleached white flour. During the 1920s, Fisher was the leading prophet of that so-called new era in economics and in society. He wrote three books during the 1920s praising the noble experiment of prohibition, and he lauded Governor Benjamin Strong and the Federal Reserve System for following his advice and expanding money and credit so as to keep the wholesale price level virtually constant. Because of the Fed's success in imposing Fisherine price stabilization, Fisher was so sure that there could be no depression that as late as 1930, he wrote a book claiming that there was and could be no stock crash, and that stock prices would quickly rebound. Throughout the 1920s, Fisher insisted that since wholesale prices remained constant, there was nothing amiss about the wild boom in stocks. Meanwhile, he put his theories into practice by heavily investing his heiress wife's considerable fortune in the stock market. After the crash, he frittered away his sister-in-law's money when his wife's fortune was depleted, at the same time calling frantically on the federal government to inflate money and credit and to reinflate stock prices to their 1929 levels. Despite his dissipation of two family fortunes, Fisher managed to blame almost everyone except himself for the debacle. As we shall see, in view of the importance of Wesley Clare Mitchell in the burgeoning of government statistics in World War I, Mitchell's view on statistics are of particular importance. Footnote. Wesley C. Mitchell was of old Yankee pietist stock. His grandparents were farmers in Maine and then in western New York. His father followed the path of many Yankees in migrating to a farm in northern Illinois. Mitchell attended the University of Chicago, where he was strongly influenced by Veblen and John Dewey. End footnote. Mitchell, an institutionalist and student of Torsten Veblen, was one of the prime founders of modern statistical inquiry in economics, and clearly aspired to lay the basis for scientific government planning. Mitchell stated that, Clearly, the type of social invention most needed today is one that offers definite techniques through which the social system can be controlled and operated to the optimum advantage of its members. As Professor Dorfman, friend and student of Mitchell's, put it, quote, 
To this end, he constantly sought to extend, improve, and refine the gathering and compilation of data. Mitchell believed that business cycle analysis might indicate the means to the achievement of orderly social control of business activity. End quote. Or, as Mitchell's wife and collaborator stated in her memoirs, quote, Mitchell envisioned the great contribution that government could make to the understanding of economic and social problems if the statistical data gathered independently by various federal agencies were systematized and planned so that the interrelationships among them could be studied. The idea of developing social statistics, not merely as a record but as a basis for planning, emerged early in his own work. End quote. Particularly important in the expansion of statistics in World War I was the growing insistence by progressive intellectuals and corporate liberal businessmen alike that democratic decision-making must be increasingly replaced by the administrative and technocratic. Democratic or legislative decisions were messy, inefficient, and might lead to a significant curbing of statism, as had happened in the heyday of the Democratic Party during the 19th century. But if decisions were largely administrative and technocratic, the burgeoning of state power could continue unchecked. The collapse of the laissez-faire creed of the Democrats in 1896 left a power vacuum in government that administrative and corporatist types were eager to fill. Increasingly then, such powerful corporatist big business groups as the National Civic Federation disseminated the idea that governmental decisions should be in the hands of the efficient technician, the allegedly value-free expert. In short, government, in virtually all of its aspects, should be taken out of politics. And statistical research, with its aura of empiricism, quantitative precision, and non-political value-freedom, was in the forefront of such emphasis. In the municipalities, an increasingly powerful progressive reform movement shifted decisions from elections in neighbourhood wards to citywide professional managers and school superintendents. As a corollary, political power was increasingly shifted from working-class and ethnic German Lutheran and Catholic wards to upper-class pietist business groups. By the time World War I arrived in Europe, a coalition of progressive intellectuals and corporatist businessmen was ready to go national in sponsoring allegedly objective statistical research institutes and think tanks. Their views have been aptly summed up by David Eakins. Quote, the conclusion being drawn by these people by 1915 was that fact-finding and policy-making had to be isolated from class struggle and freed from political pressure groups. The reforms that would lead to industrial peace and social order these experts were coming to believe, could only be derived from data determined by objective fact-finders, such as themselves, and under the auspices of sober and respectable organisations, such as only they could construct. The capitalist system could be improved only by a single-minded reliance upon experts, detached from the hurly-burly of democratic policy-making. The emphasis was upon efficiency, and democratic policy-making was inefficient. An approach to the making of national economic and social policy outside traditional democratic political processes 
was thus emerging before the United States formally entered World War I. End quote. Several corporatist businessmen and intellectuals moved at about the same time toward founding such statistical research institutes. In 1906-07, Jerome D. Green, secretary of the Harvard University Corporation, helped found an elite Tuesday evening club at Harvard to explore important issues in economics and the social sciences. In 1910, Green rose to an even more powerful post as general manager of the new Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research. And three years later, Green became secretary and CEO of the powerful philanthropic organization, the Rockefeller Foundation. Green immediately began to move toward establishing a Rockefeller-funded institute for economic research. And in March 1914, he called an exploratory group together in New York, chaired by his friend and mentor in economics, the first dean of the Harvard Graduate School of Business, Edwin F. Gay. The developing idea was that Gay would become head of a new scientific and impartial organization, the Institute of Economic Research, which would gather statistical facts and that Wesley Mitchell would be its director. Footnote. Edwin Gay was born in Detroit of old New England stock. His father had been born in Boston and went into his father-in-law's lumber business in Michigan. Gay's mother was the daughter of a wealthy preacher and lumberman. Gay entered the University of Michigan, was heavily influenced by the teaching of John Dewey, and then stayed in graduate school in Germany for over a dozen years, finally obtaining his PhD in economic history at the University of Berlin. The major German influences on Gay were Gustav Schmoller, head of the historical school, who emphasized that economics must be an inductive science, and Adolf Wagner, also at the University of Berlin, who favored large-scale government intervention in the economy in behalf of Christian ethics. Back at Harvard, Gay was the major single force, in collaboration with the Boston Chamber of Commerce, in pushing through a Factory Inspection Act in Massachusetts and in early 1911 Gay became president of the Massachusetts branch of the American Association for Labor Legislation, an organization founded by Richard T. Ely and dedicated to agitating for government intervention in the area of labor unions, minimum wage rates, unemployment, public works, and welfare. End footnote. Opposing advisors to John D. Rockefeller Jr. won out over Green, however and the Institute plan was scuttled. Mitchell and Gray pressed on, with the lead now taken by Mitchell's longtime friend, chief statistician and vice president of AT&T, Malcolm C. Rorty. Rorty lined up support for the idea from a number of progressive statisticians and businessmen, including Chicago publisher of business books and magazines, Arch W. Shaw, E. H. Goodwin of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Magnus Alexander, statistician and assistant to the president of General Electric, like AT&T, a Morgan-oriented concern. John R. Commons, economist and aide-de-camp to Richard T. Ely at Wisconsin, and Nahum I. Stone, statistician, former Marxist, a leader in the scientific management movement, and labor manager for the Hickey Freeman Clothing Company. This group was in the process of forming a Committee on National Income when the United States entered the war, and they were forced to shelve their plans temporarily. After the war, however, 
the group set up the National Bureau of Economic Research, NBER, in 1920. While the National Bureau was not to take final shape until after the war, another organization created on similar lines successfully won Green and Rockefeller's support. In 1916, they were persuaded by Raymond B. Fosdick to found the Institute for Government Research, IGR. The IGR was slightly different in focus from the National Bureau Group, as it grew directly out of municipal progressive reform and the political science profession. One of the important devices used by the municipal reformers was the Private Bureau of Municipal Research, which tried to seize decision making from allegedly corrupt. Democratic bodies on behalf of efficient, non-partisan organizations headed by progressive technocrats and social scientists. In 1910, President William Howard Taft, intrigued with the potential for centralizing power in a chief executive inherent in the idea of the executive budget, appointed the father of the budget idea, the political scientist Frederick D. Cleveland, as head of a commission on economy and efficiency. Cleveland was the director of the New York Bureau of Municipal Research. The Cleveland Commission also included political scientist and municipal reformer Frank Goodnow, professor of public law at Columbia University, first president of the American Political Science Association, and president of Johns Hopkins, and William Franklin Willoughby, former student of Ely, assistant director of the Bureau of Census. And later president of the American Association for Labor Legislation, the Cleveland Commission was delighted to tell President Taft precisely what he wanted to hear. The commission recommended sweeping administrative changes that would provide a bureau of central administrative control to form a consolidated information and statistical arm of the entire national government, and at the heart of the new bureau would be the budget division. Which was to develop, at the behest of the president, and then present an annual program of business for the federal government to be financed by Congress. When Congress balked at the Cleveland Commission's recommendations, the disgruntled technocrats decided to establish an institute for government research in Washington to battle for these and similar reforms. With funding secured from the Rockefeller Foundation, the IGR was chaired by Goodnow. With Willoughby as its director. Footnote: Vice Chairman of the IGR was retired St. Louis merchant and lumberman and former president of Washington University of St. Louis Robert S. Brookings. Secretary of the IGR was James F. Curtis, formerly Assistant Secretary of the Treasury under Taft and now Secretary and Deputy Governor of the New York Federal Reserve Bank. Others on the board of the IGR were ex-President Taft. Railroad executive Frederick A. Delano, uncle of Franklin D. Roosevelt and member of the Federal Reserve Board, Arthur T. Hadley, economist and president of Yale, Charles C. Van Hise, progressive president of the University of Wisconsin and ally of Ely, reformer and influential young Harvard law professor Felix Frankfurter, Theodore N. Vail, chairman of AT&T, progressive engineer and businessman Herbert C. Hoover. And financier R. Fulton Cutting, an officer of the New York Bureau of Municipal Research. End footnote. Soon, Robert S. Brookings assumed responsibility for the financing.
When America entered the war, present and future NBER and IGR leaders were all over Washington, key figures and statisticians in the collectivized war economy. By far the most powerful of the growing number of economists and statisticians involved in World War I was Edwin F. Gay. Arch W. Shaw, an enthusiast for rigid wartime planning of economic resources, was made head of the new Commercial Economy Board by the Council of National Defense as soon as America entered the war. Shaw, who had taught at and served on the administrative board of Harvard Business School, staffed the board with Harvard business people. The secretary was Harvard economist Melvin T. Copeland, and other members included Dean Gay. The board, which later became the powerful conservation division of the War Industries Board, focused on restricting competition in industry by eliminating the number and variety of products and by imposing compulsory uniformity, all in the name of conservation of resources to aid the war effort. For example, garment firms had complained loudly of severe competition because of the number and variety of styles and so Gay urged the garment firms to form a trade association to work with the government in curbing the surfeit of competition. Gay also tried to organise the bakers so that they would not follow the usual custom of taking back stale and unsold bread from retail outlets. By the end of 1917, Gay was tired of using voluntary persuasion and was urging the government to use compulsory measures. Gay's major power came in early 1918 when the shipping board, which had officially nationalised all ocean shipping, determined to restrict drastically the use of ships for civilian trade and to use the bulk of shipping for transport of American troops to France. Appointed in early January 1918 as merely a special expert by the shipping board, Gay in a brief time became the key figure in redirecting shipping from civilian to military use. Soon, Edwin Gay had become a member of the War Trade Board and head of its statistical department, which issued restrictive licenses for permitted imports, head of the statistical department of the Shipping Board, representative of the Shipping Board on the War Trade Board, head of the Statistical Committee of the Department of Labor, head of the Division of Planning and Statistics of the War Industries Board, WIB, and, above all, head of the new Central Bureau of Planning and Statistics. The Central Bureau was organised in the fall of 1918, when President Wilson asked WIB Chairman Bernard Baruch to produce a monthly survey of all the government's war activities. This conspectus evolved into the Central Bureau, responsible directly to the President. The importance of the Bureau is noted by a recent historian. Quote, The new bureau represented the peak statistical division of the mobilization, becoming its seer and profit for the duration, coordinating over a thousand employees engaged in research, and as the agency responsible for giving the president a concise picture of the entire economy, becoming the closest approximation to a central statistical commission. During the latter stages of the war, it set up a clearinghouse of statistical work, organized liaisons with the statistical staff of all the war boards, and centralized the data production process for the entire war bureaucracy. By the war's end, Wesley Mitchell recalled, we were in a fair way to develop, for the first time, a systematic organization of federal statistics. End quote.
Within a year, Edwin Gay had risen from a special expert to the unquestioned czar of a giant network of federal statistical agencies, with over a thousand researchers and statisticians working under his direct control. It is no wonder then that Gay, instead of being enthusiastic about the American victory he had worked so hard to secure, saw the armistice as almost a personal blow that plunged him. Into the slough of despond, all of his empire of statistics and control had just been coming together and developing into a mighty machine when suddenly came that wretched armistice. Truly, a tragedy of peace. Gay tried valiantly to keep the war machinery going, continually complaining because many of his aides were leaving, and bitterly denouncing the hungry pack who, for some odd reason, Were clamouring for an immediate end to all wartime controls, including those closest to his heart, foreign trade and shipping. But one by one, despite the best efforts of Baruch and many of the wartime planners, the WIB and other war agencies disappeared. For a while, Gay pinned his hopes on his Central Bureau of Planning and Statistics (CBPS), which, in a fierce bout of bureaucratic infighting, He attempted to make the key economic and statistical group advising the American negotiators at the Versailles Peace Conference, thus displacing the team of historians and social scientists assembled by Colonel House in the inquiry. Despite an official victory and an eight-volume report of the CBPS delivered to Versailles by the head of CBPS European team, John Foster Dulles of the War Trade Board. The bureau had little influence over the final treaty. Peace having finally and irrevocably arrived, Edwin Gay, backed by Mitchell, tried his best to have the CBPS kept as a permanent peacetime organization. Gay argued that the agency, with himself of course remaining as its head, could provide continuing data to the League of Nations, and above all could serve as the president's own eyes and ears. And mould the sort of executive budget envisioned by the old Taft Commission. CBPS staff member and Harvard economist Edmund E. Day contributed a memorandum outlining specific tasks for the bureau to aid in demobilization and reconstruction, as well as rationale for the bureau becoming a permanent part of government. One thing it could do was to make a continuing canvas of business conditions in the United States. As Gay put it to President Wilson, using a favourite organicist analogy, a permanent board would serve as a nervous system to the vast and complex organisation of the government, furnishing to the controlling brain, the president, the information necessary for directing the efficient operation of the various members. Although the president was very cordial to Gay's plan, Congress refused to agree. And on June thirtieth, nineteen nineteen, the Central Bureau of Planning and Statistics was finally terminated, along with the War Trade Board. Edwin Gay would now have to seek employment in, if not the private, at least the quasi-independent sector. But Gay and Mitchell were not to be denied, nor would the Brookings-Willoughby Group. Their objective would be met more gradually and by slightly different means. Gay became editor of the New York Evening Post under the aegis of its new owner and Gay's friend, J.P. Morgan partner Thomas W. Lamont. 
Gay also helped to form and become first president of the National Bureau of Economic Research in 1920, with Wesley C. Mitchell as research director. The Institute for Government Research achieved its major objective, establishing a budget bureau in the Treasury Department in 1921, with the director of the IGR, William F. Willoughby, helping to draft the bill that established the bureau. Footnote. In 1939, the Bureau of the Budget would be transferred to the Executive Office, thus completing the IGR objective. End footnote. The IGR people soon expanded their role to include economics, establishing an Institute of Economics headed by Robert Brookings and Arthur T. Hadley of Yale, with economist Harold G. Moulton as director. Footnote. Moulton was a professor of economics at the University of Chicago, and Vice President of the Chicago Association of Commerce. End footnote. The Institute, funded by the Carnegie Corporation, would be later merged, along with the IGR, into the Brookings Institution. Edwin Gay also moved into the foreign policy field by becoming Secretary-Treasurer and Head of the Research Committee of the new and extremely influential organisation, the Council on Foreign Relations, CFR. Footnote. Gay had been recommended to the group by one of its founders, Thomas W. Lamont. It was Gay's suggestion that the CFR began its major project by establishing an authoritative journal, Foreign Affairs. And it was Gay who selected his Harvard historian colleague, Archibald Kerry Coolidge, as the first editor, and the New York Post reporter, Hamilton Fish Armstrong, as assistant editor and executive director of the CFR. End footnote. And finally, in the field of government statistics, Gay and Mitchell found a more gradual but longer-range route to power via collaboration with Herbert Hoover, soon to be Secretary of Commerce. No sooner had Hoover assumed the post in early 1921 when he expanded the Advisory Committee on the Census to include Gay, Mitchell and other economists and then launched the monthly Survey of Current Business. The survey was designed to supplement the informational activities of cooperating trade associations and, by supplying business information, aid these associations in Hoover's aim of cartelizing their respective industries. Secrecy in business operations is a crucial weapon of competition and, conversely, publicity and sharing of information is an important tool of cartels in policing their members. The survey of current business made available the current production, sales and inventory data supplied by the cooperating industries and technical journals. Hoover also hoped that by building on these services, eventually, quote, the statistical program could provide the knowledge and foresight necessary to combat panic or speculative conditions, prevent the development of diseased industries, and guide decision-making so as to iron out, rather than accentuate, the business cycle. End quote. In promoting his cartelization doctrine, Hoover met resistance both from some businessmen who resisted prying questionnaires and sharing competitive secrets, and from the Justice Department. But a formidable empire builder, Herbert Hoover managed to grab statistical services from the Treasury Department, and to establish a Waste Elimination Division to organise businesses and trade associations to continue and expand the wartime conservation programme 
of compulsory uniformity and restriction of the number and variety of competitive products. As Assistant Secretary to head up this program, Hoover secured engineer and publicist Frederick Fiker, an associate of Art Shaw's business publication Empire. Hoover also found a top assistant and lifelong disciple in Brigadier General Julius Klein, a protégé of Edwin Gaze, who headed the Latin American division of the Bureau of Foreign and Domestic Commerce. As head of the new bureau, Klein organized 17 new export commodity divisions, reminiscent of commodity sections during wartime collectivism, each with experts drawn from the respective industries and each organizing regular cooperation with parallel industrial advisory committees. And through it all, Herbert Hoover made a series of well-publicized speeches during 1921, spelling out how a well-designed government trade program, as well as a program in the domestic economy, could act both as a stimulant to recovery and as a permanent stabilizer, while avoiding such unfortunate measures as abolishing tariffs or cutting wage rates. The best weapon, both in foreign and domestic trade, was to eliminate waste by a cooperative mobilization of government and industry. A month after the armistice, the American Economic Association and the American Statistical Association met jointly in Richmond, Virginia. The presidential addresses were delivered by men in the forefront of the exciting new world of government planning, aided by social science, that seemed to loom ahead. In his address to the American Statistical Association, Wesley Clare Mitchell proclaimed that the war had led to the use of statistics not only as a record of what had happened, but also as a vital factor in planning what should be done. As he had said in his final lecture in Columbia University the previous spring, the war had shown that when the community desires to attain a great goal, then within a short period, far-reaching social changes can be achieved. The need for scientific planning of social change, he added, has never been greater. The chance of making those changes in an intelligent fashion has never been so good. The peace will bring new problems, he opined, but it seems impossible that the various countries will attempt to solve them without utilising the same sort of centralised directing now employed to kill their enemies abroad for the new purpose of reconstructing their own life at home. But the careful empiricist and statistician also provided a caveat. Broad social planning requires a precise comprehension of social processes, and that can be provided only by the patient research of social science. As he had written to his wife eight years earlier, Mitchell stressed that what is needed for government intervention and planning is the application of the methods of physical science and industry, particularly precise quantitative research and measurement. In contrast to the quantitative physical sciences, Mitchell told the assembled statisticians, the social sciences are immature, speculative, filled with controversy and class struggle. But quantitative knowledge could replace such struggle and conflict by commonly accepted precise knowledge, objective knowledge, amenable to mathematical formulation, and capable of forecasting group phenomena. A statistician, Mitchell opined, is either right or wrong, 
and it is easy to demonstrate which. As a result of precise knowledge of facts, Mitchell envisioned, we can achieve intelligent experimenting and detailed planning rather than agitation and class struggle. To achieve these vital goals, none other than economists and statisticians would provide the crucial element, for we would have to be relying more and more on trained people to plan changes for us, to follow them up, to suggest alterations. In a similar vein, the assembled economists in 1918 were regaled with the visionary presidential address of Yale economist Irving Fisher. Fisher looked forward to an economic world reconstruction that would provide glorious opportunities for economists to satisfy their constructive impulses. A class struggle, Fisher noted, would surely be continuing over distribution of the nation's wealth. But by devising a mechanism of readjustment, the nation's economists could occupy an enviable role as the independent and impartial arbiters of the class struggle, these disinterested social scientists making the crucial decisions for the public good. In short, both Mitchell and Fisher were, subtly and perhaps half-consciously, advancing the case for a post-war world in which their own allegedly impartial and scientific professions could levitate above the narrow struggles of classes for the social product, and thus emerge as a commonly accepted, objective, new ruling class, a 20th century version of the philosopher kings. It might not be amiss to see how these social scientists, prominent in their own fields and spokesmen in different ways for the new era of the 1920s, fared in their disquisitions and guidance for the society and the economy. Irving Fisher, as we have seen, wrote several works celebrating the alleged success of prohibition, and insisted even after 1929 that since the price level had been kept stable, there could be no depression or stock market crash. For his part, Mitchell culminated a decade of snug alliance with Herbert Hoover by directing, along with Gay and the National Bureau, a massive and hastily written work on the American economy. Published in 1929 on the accession of Hoover to the presidency, with all the resources of scientific and quantitative economics and statistics brought to bear, there is not so much as a hint in recent economic changes in the United States that there might be a crash and depression in the offing. The recent economic changes study was originated and organised by Herbert Hoover and it was Hoover who secured the financing from the Carnegie Corporation. The object was to celebrate the years of prosperity presumably produced by Secretary of Commerce Hoover's corporatist planning, and to find out how the possibly future President Hoover could maintain that prosperity by absorbing its lessons and making them a permanent part of the American political structure. The volume duly declared that to maintain the current prosperity economists, statisticians, engineers and enlightened managers would have to work out a technique of balance to be installed in the economy. Recent economic changes, that monument to scientific and political folly, went through three quick printings and was widely publicised and warmly received on all sides. Footnote One exception was the critical review in the Commercial and Financial Chronicle, 
which derided the impression given the reader that the capacity of the United States for continued prosperity is well-nigh unlimited. End footnote. Edward Eyre Hunt, Hoover's longtime aide in organizing his planning activities, was so enthusiastic that he continued celebrating the book and its pion to American prosperity throughout 1929 and 1930. It is appropriate to end our section on government and statistics by noting an unsophisticated yet perceptive cry from the heart. In 1945, the Bureau of Labor Statistics approached Congress for yet another in a long line of increases in appropriations for government statistics. In the process of questioning Dr. A. Ford Hinrichs, head of the BLS, Representative Frank B. Keefe, a conservative Republican congressman from Oshkosh, Wisconsin, put an eternal question that has not yet been fully and satisfactorily answered. Quote, There is no doubt but what it would be nice to have a whole lot of statistics. I am just wondering whether we are not embarking on a program that is dangerous when we keep adding and adding and adding to this thing. We have been planning and getting statistics ever since 1932 to try to meet a situation that was domestic in character, but were never able to even meet that question. Now we are involved in an international question. It looks to me as though we spend a tremendous amount of time with graphs and charts and statistics and planning. What my people are interested in is, what is it all about? Where are we going? And where are you going? End quote. Appendix Toward the Centralization of Science, the National Research Council Scientific research before World War I was free, diffuse, individualistic and independent, with very little guidance or control exerted by the federal government. Most scientists, and Americans in general, approved of this system, but there were always one or two visionaries yearning for an alternative. George Ellery Hale, one of the founders of astrophysics, the director of Mount Wilson Observatory, and one of the founders of the California Institute of Technology, was one of those visionaries, particularly after he was named to the National Academy of Sciences, NAS, in 1902. The NAS had been charted in 1863 as a private organization of scientists to consult with the government on scientific and military matters during the Civil War. By the turn of the 20th century, the NAS was moribund, forgotten by all, including the President of the United States. But George Ellery Hale, turning from the joys of science to the rather different joys of bureaucratic empire and power building, had a different vision. He sought to make the NAS a vibrant activist organization, and one of his most important visions was that the NAS should, with the aid of government, acquire a dominant centralizing power over all scientific research in the nation. And sitting at or near the pinnacle of scientific power, of course, would be George Ellery Hale. He delivered a series of lectures and published articles at the NAS to that effect in 1913-14, but the old fuddy-duddies of the Academy weren't listening. George Hale did not come to his vision purely on his own. As director of the Mount Wilson Observatory, he had gained a powerful friend and political mentor, one of the most powerful men of the Eastern Establishment. 
Wall Street lawyer, Secretary of War, Secretary of State, U.S. Senator from New York, and personal attorney for J.P. Morgan, Elihu Root. Root, the son of a professor of astronomy, informed Hale upon his election to the unknown NAS of the untapped potential of the agency for advising and coordinating science on behalf of the government, and it was clear that Root would do all he could to further that objective. Then, as luck would have it, the World War began in Europe. By the spring of 1916, Hale was champing at the bit to enter the war on the Allied side, averring his deep hatred for Germans and bitterly attacking the anti-interventionist stance of Henry Ford and William Jennings Bryan. Hale was certainly succinct about what he would do with these dissidents. They ought to be imprisoned as traitors, he wrote, or thoroughly chloroformed. Hale pressured the more laggard patriots of the Executive Council of the NAS to offer the services of the Academy to the federal government in case of war. After the surprised president learned of the existence of the NAS, Wilson accepted the offer. George Ellery Hale quickly became chairman of a new NAS committee to plan the Academy's services after war came. His most enthusiastic collaborator on the NAS was Robert A. Millikan, a University of Chicago physicist who had become a member in 1915. Hale exulted that war would be the greatest chance we ever had to advance research in America. By June 1916, Hale and Millikan had decided that the NAS should create a new agency, the National Research Council, NRC, which would have the operating power to coordinate scientific research when war came. Under pressure from Elihu Root, Wilson approved the idea of the NRC in July. The next problem was to secure funding, since the NRC would be a privately funded agency and since the NAS had very little spare money of its own. Financial support was obtained from the Engineering Foundation, which committed its entire annual income of $10,000 to the project, in addition to a personal contribution of $5,000 put in by the founder and chairman of the Engineering Foundation, the Cleveland Machine Tool and Telescope manufacturer Ambrose Swayze an old friend of Hale. Its financing secured, the National Research Council was launched in September, dedicated to performing an inventory of all scientific researchers, projects and equipment in the country in preparation for war planning, to cooperate with educational institutions and research foundations, and to function as a clearinghouse to coordinate research projects and scientific information. Moreover, the NRC was to encourage research on national defence and resource problems. The board of the Engineering Foundation, launched in 1914, obtained representation of the various national engineering societies. Vice-chairman of the Engineering Foundation, and another old friend of the ubiquitous Hale, was another scientific visionary. The Serbian immigrant, physicist, inventor, and Columbia University professor Michael Pupin. While recognizing the importance of individualism and freedom in science, Pupin insisted that there was a far more important requisite for the growth and success of science, creative coordination, which he explicitly defined as cooperation enforced by compulsion. 
Without coercion, binding everything together, Pupin philosophized, all would be anarchy and chaos, including science. And of course, as Pupin correctly noted, the state is overwhelmingly the most important instrument of coercion. Therefore, there must be centralization of science under state dictation. Pupin's goal is what he termed, probably not ironically, ideal democracy, which consisted of the state organism being ruled and directed by the trained intellects guiding the destiny of the people. Of course, scientists were a crucial, if not the most vital, part of the trained intellect serving as brain of the social organism. Michael Pupin, of course, hailed the NRC as the first step toward the compulsory coordination of America's intellectuals and their organizations. They were an effective team for a collectivized science. Michael Pupin, the theoretician, and George Hale, the activist, assisted by Millikan. To ensure the NRC's stellar role in the war effort, Hale lobbied successfully to make the NRC an official department of the Council of National Defense, with sole responsibility for coordinating scientific resources for war. The NRC now happily set up subcommittees in each discipline. Hale's good friend Edwin Conklin as chairman of the biology subcommittee, James McKean Cattell in charge of the psychology subcommittee, and Pupin and Robert A. Millikan dominating the physics subcommittee. Footnote. Cattell was also a long-time advocate of government-supported and controlled science. His power base was the Committee of 100 on Scientific Research of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS, of which Cattell was secretary. The committee was established in 1913 to try to organize a scientific inventory of the nation. When war came, Cattell coordinated the AAAS activities with the NRC. End footnote. Millikan, who became a major personality and ideological force in American science during the 1920s, was a former student and protege of Michael Pupin. An assistant professor of physics at the University of Chicago, Millikan had floundered in his researches from 1896 on until finally becoming extremely successful. By 1912, he had embarked on his researches on electron charge that would win him the Nobel Prize. Millikan was made a member of the organizing committee of the NRC in 1916, and went from there to become a member of the executive committee and then vice president and chief administrative officer of the NRC, as well as chairman of the physics committee of the Anti-Submarine Council. So dedicated was Millikan to the war effort that he left Chicago to plunge into full-time war work in Washington, with a commission as an army officer. Footnote. Robert A. Millikan was the son of an Iowa preacher and attended the Yankee pietist stronghold of Oberlin College. From 1893 to 1895, he was the only graduate student in physics at Columbia, with Pupin one of his teachers. After obtaining his doctorate in 1895, Pupin loaned Millikan the money to do postdoctoral study at the University of Berlin. End footnote. Many of the nation's leading scientists and engineers entered the armed forces. Thus, physicist Ernest Merritt of Cornell 
entered the Navy in order to head up the New London, Connecticut anti-submarine warfare naval base staffed by university scientists. Well before the end of the war, the problem uppermost in the minds of the scientists was to make the NRC permanent. The organised scientists, and in particular the scientists connected with industry, from the beginning envisioned the NRC not merely as a wartime agency, but as a permanent government force sponsoring and coordinating the application to science in industry. Thus, George Hale circulated an anonymous, strictly confidential memorandum within the NRC Executive Council in May 1919, proclaiming the original intent and the future goal of the agency. Quote, The Academy organised the National Research Council with a view to stimulating the growth of science and its application to industry, and particularly with a view to the coordination of research agencies for the sake of enabling the United States, in spite of its democratic individualistic organisation, to bend its energies effectively toward a common purpose. End quote. As early as eight months before the armistice, the organised scientists began to agitate for a quick presidential order making the NRC a permanent peacetime agency. Since the agency, though governmental, had to be financed by private funds, the first step was to demonstrate secure, durable financing. The Carnegie Corporation, headed by none other than Hale's friend and mentor Elihu Root, happily obliged with a $5 million grant for an NRC building and an operating endowment. Soon, Hale's old friends at the Engineering Foundation assumed continuing financial responsibility for the NRC. And at that point, Elihu Root managed to persuade Colonel House to secure President Wilson's approval. Footnote. The leading lights of the Engineering Foundation now included... Hale's old friend Gano Dunn of the J.G. White Engineering Company, Frank B. Jewett, head of Bell Labs for the Morgan-oriented AT&T, and apostle of organised scientific research. Arthur D. Little, a Boston-born chemical engineer and head of the nation's largest engineering consulting firm, and President E. Wilbur Rice of Morgan-oriented General Electric. Jewett, son of a top engineer for the Morgan-dominated Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe Railroad, received a PhD in physics from the University of Chicago, studying under Millikan, and eventually joined AT&T as an electrical engineer. End footnote. Wilson created a permanent National Research Council by executive order on May 11, 1918. By the time of Wilson's imprimatur, the irrepressible George Hale was already circulating a letter proclaiming a shift in emphasis from military to permanent industrial research. To that end, he informed his colleagues of the NRC, he proceeded to create a new industrial relations division. The division was composed of six leaders from elite companies engaged in industrial research. Frank Jewett, director of the Western Electric Labs, a wholly owned subsidiary of AT&T. J.J. Carty, long-time chief engineer at AT&T. Arthur D. Little, the nation's engineering consultant. Raymond Bacon, director of the Mellon Institute. Charles E. Skinner, director of research at the Mellon-oriented Westinghouse Electric. 
and Willis Whitney, Director of Research at the Morgan-aligned General Electric. On May 29th, George Hale officially launched the Industrial Relations Division with a gala formal banquet at the University Club of New York, a banquet which symbolised and embodied the new continuing alliance of the federal government with the top brass in industrial science and research. Addressing the banquet, George Hale proclaimed that Hitherto the National Research Council activities have been mostly devoted to war, but plans have been under contemplation for industrial research, and the time has arrived to put those plans forward. In their banquet speeches, Hale and Elihu Root stressed the need for national coordination of industrial resources. Perhaps the most exuberant of the speakers was the original financer of the NRC, the industrialist Ambrose Swayze. Americans and other nations might at that moment be fighting and dying in one of the most devastating wars in history, but to Swayze, the war was an exhilarating experience. We who are living in these wonderful times, Swayze exclaimed, have thrilling opportunities and correspondingly weighty responsibilities. Enumerating the great advances occasioned by the war, Swayze noted that, whereas a year ago this country produced no optical glass, it is now manufacturing this material by the carload. Part of the great progress occasioned by the war, he pointed out, was due to the US seizure of German patents. Swayze concluded with a brief demurrer before exulting over the war's matchless benefits. While deeply deploring the war, Swayze proclaimed, it was bringing marvellous advances in the mental, moral and spiritual realms, with consequent great benefits to mankind. The main harvest of this banquet was the creation of an advisory committee of industrial leaders to the Industrial Research Division, and the publication of a pamphlet on the new division co-authored by some of the most distinguished leaders present at the banquet. Chairman of the advisory committee was the eminent Theodore N. Vail, president of AT&T, and other members included Cleveland H. Dodge, vice president of Phelps Dodge Mining and President Wilson's favourite industrialist, George Eastman, head of Eastman Kodak, Andrew Mellon, head of the mighty Mellon banking and industrial family and soon to become secretary of the treasury, Pierre Dupont, Ambrose Swayze, Elihu Root, Judge Elbert H. Gary, head of the Morgan-influenced U.S. Steel, E. Wilbur Rice, president of General Electric, and Henry S. Pritchett, president of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. Footnote. The son of an astronomer, Henry Pritchett was one of the most prominent astronomers in the country, formerly professor at Washington University of St. Louis, superintendent of the U.S. Coast and Geodetic Survey, and then president of MIT, before becoming the founder and first president of the Carnegie Foundation. Pritchett had long sought centralised government standardisation as part of a national industrial competition against Germany. End footnote. In the pamphlet, the various distinguished contributors beat the drums for a national coordination of science a veritable coordinated government-science-industry complex. Then, President Vail of AT&T declared that, quote, 
organization and coordination of research for industrial purpose is urgently necessary. Plans should be formulated at once. Whatever is done should be national in its comprehensiveness. Industry may be expected to support generously any organization which promises to effectively coordinate and correlate efforts for the increase of knowledge, since it is now generally recognized that industrial progress and success are chiefly dependent upon our knowledge. End quote. In the midst of the wartime model, it is not surprising that military-like discipline was a common theme of these industrial, scientific, and political leaders. Thus, Elihu Root, in his article "The Need for Organization in Scientific Research," opined that quote, "scientific men are only recently realizing that the effective power of a great number of scientific men may be increased by organization, just as the effective power of a great number of laborers." May be increased by military discipline. End quote. In the war, Root added, the power of science has amazingly increased the productive power of mankind. After the war, that same power will be applied again, and the prizes of industrial and commercial leadership will fall to the nation which organizes its scientific forces most effectively. And Harry S. Pritchett of the Carnegie Foundation, who had long admired the German model of a national physical laboratory and national coordination of science, called for post-war America to establish a similar system. Pritchett insisted that the research men of a nation are not isolated individuals, but an organized and cooperating army. In early 1919, the NRC was formally structured for the post-war world into a number of divisions. One of the most active in serving and subsidizing industry was the Industrial Relations Division, later renamed the Industrial Research Division, and finally the Industrial Extension Division, which established cooperative research programs in various industries. And initiated research projects in various areas of metals and electroplating. In particular, the Industrial Relations Division created a number of industrial research institutes in collaboration with various trade associations. Footnote: By 1919, the chairman of the Industrial Relations Division was John Johnston of U.S. Steel. End footnote. Another very active division of the NRC was the Engineering Division, launched during the war in 1918. The Engineering Division was founded under the auspices of the Engineering Foundation, which by now had become the research branch of the American Engineering Council, the umbrella organization of all the various engineering associations. Engineering Foundation head Ambrose Swayze. Also became a member of the new engineering division of the NRC. The function of the division was to encourage direct industrial research. The funds often to be supplied by the industry concerned, but the organizing and coordination to be performed by the NRC. The first project of the engineering division was a large-scale study of metal fatigue, financed by the Engineering Foundation and by General Electric. On the other hand, a project to study the heat treatment of carbon steel was financed by the federal government, and federal and state governments supported a program of highway research conducted by the division. Footnote: 
In 1919, chairman of the engineering division was electrical engineer Comfort A. Adams of Harvard, who was succeeded in 1923 by Frank Jewett. End footnote. Another important post-war arm of the NRC, the Research Information Service, also began during the war as the Research Information Committee under physicist and Bureau of Standards head Samuel Stratton to disseminate scientific information between the US and its European allies. After the war, the RIS prepared scientific compilations, sourcebooks, abstracts, handbooks and bibliographies and disseminated them, in George Hale's words, to those who can use it to advantage. In the words of Charles L. Reese, research and chemical director of DuPont, the service operated as an intelligence agency. The major dispute among the NRC-affiliated and connected scientists was whether or not scientific research in the post-war world should be thoroughly centralised under one governmental research institute and national laboratory in physics and chemistry. George Vincent, president of the Rockefeller Foundation, and his colleague Edward C. Pickering, head of the Harvard Observatory, had been agitating for the idea of a centralised research institute since 1913, trying to persuade the membership of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. During the war, Vincent, backed by Dr. Simon Flexner, head of the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research, wrote a letter to the NRC executive proposing the plan for the post-war world. Hale, Pritchett and Root were highly enthusiastic, but the more cautious Millikan and Whitney advocated three to six regional laboratories at existing university facilities. None of the contending parties, of course, had any desire to return to the good old days of decentralised, free and private scientific research. Finally, all parties agreed on a compromise plan, which provided for no national or regional laboratories, but did set up a massive fellowship programme in graduate physics and chemistry, administered by the government NRC and financed entirely by the Rockefeller Foundation. The science centralisers might not have achieved all of their aims, but they were well on the road. Chapter 14. The Federal Reserve as a Cartelization Device. The Early Years, 1913 to 1930. Editor's Footnote. It is important to keep in mind that a bank cartel is different than a traditional cartel. A traditional cartel restricts output and raises prices. The goal of a bank cartel, on the other hand, is not to restrict credit expansion and raise interest rates, but for banks to engage in credit expansion in unison and lower interest rates, and to maintain this by not calling on other banks' notes and deposits. Just like traditional cartels on the free market fail, bank cartels also fail because of internal and external pressure, as banks inside the cartel are faced with the irresistible temptation to call on others' notes and deposits and the notes and deposits eventually wind up in other banks outside of the cartel, including foreign banks. On the other hand, government can stabilise bank cartels, either by restricting entry to stifle the redemption mechanism, or by providing new sources of reserves. 
The Federal Reserve promoted general monetary expansion and also empowered New York City banks by increasing their interbank deposits relative to other Central Reserve cities through the Federal Reserve Bank of New York's liberal discount window policies and by injecting new reserves there first, as they led the monetary expansion in the 1920s. Moreover, the Fed personnel was heavily dominated by banking interests. End footnote. To most economists, historians and laypeople, a modern economy without a central bank is simply unthinkable. With that kind of mindset, the creation of the Federal Reserve System in December 1913 can be attributed to a simple, enlightened acceptance of the need to bring the economy of the United States into the modern world. It is generally held, in addition, that a central bank is necessary to curb the natural instincts of free market banks to inflate and, as a corollary, to level out economic fluctuations. It has become all too clear in recent years, however, that the Fed has scarcely succeeded in this supposed task. For since the establishment of the Fed, we have suffered the longest and deepest depression in American history, and we have, since World War II, experienced the unique phenomena of a chronic, accelerating secular inflation. Since instability, inflation and depressions have been far worse since the inception of the Federal Reserve, many economists have concluded that the Fed has failed in its task and have come up with various suggestions for reform to try to get it on the correct task. It is possible, however, that the current critics of the Fed have missed the essential point, that the Fed was designed to meet very different goals. In fact, the Fed was largely fashioned by the banks as a cartelizing device. The government interventions of the progressive era were systemic devices to restrict competition and cartelize industry, stratagems that followed on the previous failure of industry to sustain successful voluntary cartels. Just as other industries turned to the government to impose cartelization that could not be maintained on the market, so the banks turned to the government to enable them to expand money and credit, without being held back by the demands for redemption by competing banks. In short, rather than hold back the banks from their propensity to inflate credit, the new central banks were created to do precisely the opposite. Indeed, the record of the American economy under the Federal Reserve can be considered a rousing success from the point of view of the actual goals of its founders and of those who continue to sustain its power. A proper overall judgment on the actual role of the Fed was delivered by the vice chairman and de facto head of the Federal Trade Commission, Edward N. Hurley. The Federal Trade Commission was Woodrow Wilson's other major progressive reform, following closely on the passage of the Federal Reserve Act. Hurley was president of the Illinois Manufacturers Association at the time of his appointment, and his selection and subsequent performance in his new job were hailed throughout the business community. Addressing the Association of National Advertisers in December 1913, Hurley exulted that, through a period of years, the government has been gradually extending its machinery of helpfulness to different classes and groups, upon whose prosperity depends in a large degree 
the prosperity of the country. Then came the revealing statement: the railroads and shippers had the ICC, the farmers had the Agriculture Department, and the bankers had the Federal Reserve Board. Hurley concluded that to do for general business that which these other agencies do for the groups to which I have referred was the thought behind the creation of the Trade Commission. What then did the Federal Reserve do for the nation's bankers? One, the origins of the Federal Reserve, the dissatisfaction of New York bankers. The Federal Reserve did not replace a system of free banking. On the contrary, an approach to free banking existed in the United States only in the two decades before the Civil War. Under the cover of the wartime emergency, the Republican Party put through changes that had been long proposed by the Republicans' ancestor, the Whig Party. The National Bank Acts of 1863 to 65 replace the hard money free banking of pre-Civil War days with the quasi-centralized regime of the national banking system. By levying a prohibitive federal tax, the national banking system in effect outlawed state banknotes, centralizing the issue of banknotes into the hands of federally chartered national banks. By means of an elaborate set of categories and a structure of fractional reserve requirements, entry into national banking in the big cities was limited to large banks, and bank deposits were encouraged to pyramid on top of a handful of large Wall Street banks. Furthermore, an expansion of any one bank in the pre-Civil War era was severely limited, since the free market would discount the notes of shaky banks. Roughly proportionate to the distance of the circulating notes from the home base of the bank. Footnote: In contrast, notes of more solid banks circulated at par, even at great distances. End footnote. The National Banking Acts removed that restraint by forcing every national bank to accept the notes and demand deposits of every other national bank at par. Genuine redeemability of notes and deposits was also restrained by the continued legal prohibition of interstate or even intrastate branch banking, which severely hobbled the efficiency of clearing systems where one bank presents the obligations of another for redemption. Redemption was also curtailed by a rigid statutory maximum limit of three million dollars per month, by which national banknotes could be contracted. Furthermore, although private national bank liabilities were, of course, not legal tender, the federal government conferred quasi-legal tender status upon them by agreeing to receive all national banknotes and deposits at par in dues or taxes. The banking system of the United States after 1865 was, therefore, a halfway house between free and central banking. Banking was subsidized, privileged. And quasi-centralized under the aegis of a handful of large Wall Street banks. Even at that, however, the large national banks and their financial colleagues were far from satisfied. There was no governmental central bank to act as the lender of last resort. The banks could inflate more readily and uniformly than before the Civil War, but when they got into trouble and bank-generated booms turned into recessions. 
they were forced to contract and deflate to save themselves. As we will see further below, the banker's drive for fundamental change was generally couched in terms of an attack on the inelasticity of the national banking system. Translated into plain English, inelasticity meant the inability of the banking system to inflate money and credit, especially during recessions. Footnote. Friedman and Schwartz grant validity to the complaints of inelasticity in at least one sense, that deposits and notes were not easily interconvertible without causing grave problems. If bank clients wish to redeem bank deposits for bank notes, the fractional reserve requirements for deposits, but not for notes, meant that such simple redemption had a multiple contractionist effect on the supply of money and vice versa since the exchange of notes for deposits had an expansionist effect. Friedman and Schwartz conclude that this defect justified various centralizing remedies. They fail to point out another alternative, a return to the decentralized banking of pre-Civil War days, which did not suffer from such problems of interconvertibility. One curiosity of the national banking system is that the notes issued by the national banks were rigidly linked by law to the total holdings of federal government bonds by each bank. This provision, a holdover from various state bank systems imposed by the Whigs before the Civil War, was designed to tie the banks to state deficits and the public debt. The source of inelasticity, however, could easily have been remedied by abolishing this link, without imposing a central bank. Many of the early bank reforms proposed during the 1890s aimed to do just that. End footnote. The big banks' turn to the idea of a central bank came after the beginning of the 20th century. The increased dissatisfaction with the status quo was prompted particularly by the rising competition of state banks and private banks outside the direct purview of the national banks of Wall Street. State banks had recovered from their initial shock and, after the 1860s, grew rapidly by pyramiding loans and deposits on top of national banknotes. These state and other non-national banks provided increasingly stiff competition with Wall Street for the banking resources of the nation. State banks were free of the high legal capital requirements for entry into the national banking business and banking laws, especially in such important states as Michigan, California and New York, became more lenient during the 1890s. As a result, the proportion of non-national bank deposits to national banknotes and deposits, which had been 67% in 1873, rose to 101% in 1886 and to 145% in 1901. To make things worse for cartelization, New York City lost its monopoly of designated Central Reserve City status, the base of the nation's banking pyramid, to St. Louis and Chicago in 1887. As a result, the total bank deposits of St. Louis and Chicago, which had been only 16% of the combined total of the three major cities in 1880, rose sharply to 33% by 1912. Banking in the smaller reserve cities rose even more rapidly in this period. The bank clearings outside of New York, 
24% of the national total in 1882 rose to 43% by 1913. The major New York banks were understandably perturbed at the rising competition of non-New York and non-national banks. They were upset too by the fact that they had to compete with each other for the deposits of burgeoning state banks. As one New York banker put it, We love the country bankers, but they are the masters of the situation. We dance at their music and pay the piper. The New York national bankers were also particularly perturbed at the mushrooming growth of private trust companies in New York, which were gathering the major share of the new and profitable trust business, when national and most state chartered banks were prohibited by law from handling trust accounts. At the behest of the national banks, the New York Clearing House, a private organization for the clearing of notes and deposits, tried to impose reserve requirements on trust companies to hobble their competition with banks. In reply, 17 of them walked out of the clearing house for a decade. Finally, the House of Morgan formed the banker-owned Bankers Trust Company in 1903 to compete with the private trust companies. J.P. Morgan & Co. was the most powerful financial grouping in Wall Street, and hence in the country. An investment bank that came to own or control the bulk of the nation's important railroads, the House of Morgan controlled such leading Wall Street national banks as Guarantee Trust Company, the First National Bank of New York, and, before the 1930s, the Chase National Bank. Despite, or perhaps because of, its mammoth size and influence, Morgan was doing poorly in the gales of competition after 1900. In addition to the factors mentioned above that weakened New York banks, railroads, in which the Morgans had concentrated their forces, began to enter their long secular decline after the turn of the century. Furthermore, virtually all the mergers in the 1898-1902 period that tried to achieve monopoly control and monopoly profits in various industries, collapsed with the entry of new firms and suffered major losses. Some of the most egregious failures, including International Harvester, United States Steel and International Mercantile Marine, were Morgan creations. J.P. Morgan had long favoured corporatism and government cartelization where competition proved inconvenient. After decades of abject failure of Morgan-created railroad cartels, Morgan took the lead in establishing the Interstate Commerce Commission in 1887 to catalyze the railroad industry. Now, after slipping badly in the free market after 1900, Morgan joined other big business interests, such as the Rockefellers and the Belmonts, in calling for the compulsory cartelization of the American economy. This alliance of powerful big business interests and professionals who sought power and place constituted what is now known as the Progressive Era, approximately 1900 to 1918. The Federal Reserve Act was a progressive Wilsonian reform that, as Edward Hurley and others pointed out, did for the bankers what the other reforms had done for other segments of industry. Footnote. The major pressure group calling for progressive cartelization was the National Civic Federation, NCF, founded in 1900, 
an organized coalition of big business and intellectual technocrat groups, as well as a few corporatist labor union leaders. End footnote. 2. The Road to the Federal Reserve During the McKinley and Roosevelt administrations, Treasury Secretaries Lyman J. Gage and Leslie M. Shaw, respectively, tried to operate the Treasury Department as a central bank, pumping in money during recessions by purchasing government bonds on the open market and depositing large funds with commercial banks. In 1900, Gage called for the establishment of regional central banks, and Shaw suggested in his last annual report in 1906 that he be given total power to regulate the nation's banks. Their efforts failed, and these failures helped to spur the big bankers to seek a formal central bank. Neither Gage nor Shaw was an isolated treasury bureaucrat whose power was suddenly going to his head. Before his appointment, Gage was president of the powerful First National Bank of Chicago, one of the major banks in the Rockefeller orbit. He also served as president of the American Bankers Association. After leaving the Treasury Department, Gage became president of the Rockefeller-controlled U.S. Trust Company, and his hand-picked assistant at the department, Frank A. Vanderlip, left to become a top executive at the Rockefeller's flagship bank, the National City Bank of New York. Footnote. John D. Rockefeller was the largest stockholder of National City Bank. Its president until 1905 was James Stillman, two of whose daughters married sons of Rockefeller's brother, William. End footnote. Gage's appointment as Treasury Secretary was secured for him by Mark Hanna, close friend, political mastermind and financial backer of William McKinley. Hannah, a coal magnate and iron manufacturer, was a close business associate, as well as an old friend and high school classmate, of John D. Rockefeller Sr. Leslie Shaw was a small-town Iowa banker who became governor of his state in 1898, and continued as president of the Bank of Denison until the end of his term. He reached his post as governor by being a loyal supporter of the Des Moines Regency, the Republican machine in Iowa, and a close friend of the Regency's leader, the powerful and venerable U.S. Senator William Boyd Allison. Allison was the one who secured the Treasury position for his friend Shaw, and in turn was tied closely to Charles E. Perkins, a close Morgan ally, president of the Chicago, Burlington and Quincy Railroad, and kinsman of the Forbes Financial Group of Boston long associated with the Morgans. After the failure of Shaw's interventions, and particularly after the Panic of 1907, the big bankers turned in earnest to a drive for the establishment of a central bank in the United States. The movement was launched in January 1906, when Jacob H. Schiff, the head of the powerful investment banking firm of Kuhn Loeb & Co., urged the New York Chamber of Commerce to advocate fundamental banking reform. Heeding the call, the New York Chamber immediately established a special committee to study the problem and propose legislation. The committee was comprised of leaders from commercial and investment banking, including Isidore Strauss of R.H. Macy's, a close friend of Schiff, and Frank A. Vanderlip of the National City Bank. 
In March, the Special Committee report, not surprisingly, called for the creation of a strong central bank, similar to the Bank of Germany. The New York Chamber proved reluctant to endorse this far-reaching scheme, but the big bankers had the bit in their teeth. In mid-1906, the American Bankers Association followed suit by naming a commission of inquiry of leading bankers from the major cities of the country, headed by A. Barton Hepburn, chairman of the board of Chase National Bank. The Hepburn Commission was more cautious, and its report of November 1906 called for imperative changes in the existing banking system, including a system of regional clearinghouses for the issue of banknotes. The notes would be guaranteed by a common pool, built up by taxes levied on the notes. A variant of the Hepburn Plan was passed by Congress in May 1908, after the Panic of 1907, in the Aldrich Vreeland Act. Aldrich Freeland provided for the issuance of emergency currency by groups of bankers, clustered in national currency associations. Although this regional cartel scheme was devised as a stopgap measure, the congressional authorization was to be for seven years, a rather long, temporary period. In fact, however, Aldrich Vreeland provisions were used only once and that was in 1914, shortly after the launching of the Federal Reserve System. By far the most significant aspect of Aldrich Vreeland turned out to be its clause setting up a National Monetary Commission to study the American and foreign banking systems and to emerge with a plan of reform. The commission consisted of nine senators and nine representatives, and in standard bureaucratic procedure, The chairman of the commission was Senator Nelson W. Aldrich, and the vice-chairman was Representative Edward B. Vreeland. Representative Vreeland was a banker from the Buffalo area of New York, and little more need be said about him. Far more important was the powerful Senator Nelson W. Aldrich, a Republican from Rhode Island who made millions during his long years of service in the U.S. Senate. One of the prime movers in the creation of the Federal Reserve System, Nelson Aldrich was the father-in-law of John D. Rockefeller Jr., and may be fairly regarded as Rockefeller's man in the Senate. Footnote When the Rockefeller forces gained control of the Chase National Bank from the Morgans in 1930, one of their first actions was to oust Morgan man Albert H. Wiggins and replace him with Nelson Aldrich's son, Winthrop W., as chairman of the board. End footnote. From the inception of the National Monetary Commission until the presentation of its Aldrich plan to Congress four years later, Senator Aldrich and the Commission were a vitally important nucleus of the drive for a central bank. Particularly influential in the deliberations of the Commission were two men who were not official members. Aldrich asked J.P. Morgan to recommend a banking expert, and Morgan happily responded with Henry P. Davison, a Morgan partner. The other unofficial member was George M. Reynolds of Chicago, president of the American Bankers Association. Footnote. Investment banking houses were, and still are, partnerships rather than corporations and Morgan activities in politics as well as industrial mergers 
were conducted by Morgan Partners. Particularly conspicuous Morgan Partners in both fields were George W. Perkins, Thomas W. Lamont, Henry P. Davison, Dwight Morrow, and Willard Strait. End footnote. Aldrich and the National Monetary Commission, however, were by no means the only focus of the movement for a central bank. Another was Paul Moritz Warburg, one of the most vital influences on the creation of the Federal Reserve System. Warburg, scion of the great international banking family and the German investment banking firm of M.M. Warburg and Company of Hamburg, emigrated to the United States in 1902 to become a partner in the influential New York banking house of Kuhn Loeb & Co. Footnote. Or at least partially emigrated. Warburg spent half of each year in Germany, serving as a financial liaison between the two great banks, if not between the two countries themselves. Warburg was related to Jacob H. Schiff by marriage. Schiff was a son-in-law of Solomon Loeb, a co-founder of Kuhn Loeb & Co. And Warburg, husband of Nina Loeb, was another son-in-law of Solomon's by a second wife. The incestuous circle was completed when Schiff's daughter Freda married another partner, Warburg's brother Felix, which in a sense made Paul his brother's uncle. End footnote. From the moment he came to the United States, Warburg worked tirelessly, in person and in print, to bring the blessings of European central banking to this monetarily backward land. Sensitive to American political objections to the idea of centralization or of Wall Street control, Warburg always insisted, disingenuously, that his plan was not really a central bank. His first printed banking reform essay came in January 1907, in his A Plan for a Modified Central Bank. The plan called for centralized reserves and a centralized note issue as a key to assuring economic stability. The most elaborate versions of Warburg's reform plan were presented in two speeches in 1910, a United Reserve Bank of the United States and principles that must underlie monetary reform in the United States. Warburg's United Reserve Bank delineated the major features of the future Federal Reserve System. The key to its power was to be its legal monopoly on all note issue in the United States. To obtain such notes, the banks would have to keep their reserves at the Reserve Bank. Reserves would therefore be centralized at long last. Depositors at the bank would be strictly limited to the member banks and the federal government. The bank was to be governed by a board selected equally by three groups, the member banks, the stockholders of the Reserve Bank, and the federal government. Not surprisingly, Warburg's plan repeated the essential features of the operation of the German Reichsbank, the central bank in his native Germany. The greatest cheerleader for Warburg's plan, and the man who introduced his banking reform essays to Columbia University's Academy of Political Science, was Warburg's kinsman, the Columbia economist Edwin R. A. Seligman, of the investment banking family of J&W Seligman and Company. Footnote. Professor Seligman's brother, Isaac N., was married to Guta Loeb, sister of Paul Warburg's wife, Nina. 
This made Seligman the brother of Warburg's brother-in-law. End footnote. The top bankers were clear from the beginning that, to assuage widespread fears of centralised and Wall Street control, they would have to avoid the appearance of orthodox central bank on the lines of England or Germany. The chosen course was a spurious regionalism and decentralisation, the appearance of a virtually uncoordinated set of regional central banks. The idea was in the air when Victor Morowetz made his famous speech in November 1909 calling for regional banking districts under the ultimate direction of one central control board. Although reserves and note issue would be pro forma, decentralised in the hands of the regional reserve banks, all would really be centralised and coordinated by the central control board. This specious decentralisation was, of course, the scheme eventually adopted in the Federal Reserve System. Who was Victor Morowetz? He was a distinguished attorney and banker, and in particular the counsel and chairman of the executive committee of the Morgan-controlled Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe Railroad. In 1908, Morowetz had been, along with J.P. Morgan's personal lawyer, Francis Lynn Stetson, the principal drafter of an unsuccessful Morgan National Civic Federation bill for a federal incorporation law that would have cartelized and regulated American corporations. Later, Morowetz was to be a top consultant to another progressive reform of Woodrow Wilson's, the Federal Trade Commission. In late 1910, someone in the Aldrich Circle, probably Henry P. Davison, got the idea of convening a small group of leading advocates of a central bank in a top-secret conclave to draft a bill for a central bank. The clandestine meeting was held in November at a duck-shooting retreat for wealthy members, the Jekyll Island Club on Jekyll Island, Georgia. The cover story given to the press was that the conferees were going down for a duck-hunting expedition. Extraordinary measures were taken to ensure secrecy, with the conferees travelling down to Georgia under assumed names in a private railroad car chartered by Aldrich. Some reporters got wind of the meeting, but Davison managed to talk them out of any publicity. Footnote. So shrouded in secrecy did the meeting remain that details did not leak out until the publication of an authorised biography of Aldrich 20 years later. It is not even clear which club member arranged the facilities for the meeting, since none of the participants was a member. The best guess on the identity of the helpful Jekyll Island member is J.P. Morgan. End footnote. The Blue Ribbon participants at the week-long Jekyll Island meeting were Senator Nelson W. Aldrich, Rockefeller-in-law, Henry P. Davison, Morgan partner, Paul M. Warburg, Kuhn Co. partner. Footnote. Aldrich was in the audience when Warburg delivered his famous United Reserve Bank plan speech to the Academy of Political Science in 1910. The enthusiastic Aldrich, who had been greatly impressed by German central banking views, during the Monetary Commission's trip to Europe the previous year, promptly invited Warburg to attend the upcoming Jekyll Island gathering. End footnote. Frank A. Vandalip, 
vice president of Rockefeller's National City Bank, Charles D. Norton, president of Morgan's First National Bank of New York, A. Piat Andrew, Harvard economist and staff assistant to Aldrich on the Monetary Commission. There is no clearer physical embodiment of the catalyzing coalition of top financial and banking interests that brought the Federal Reserve System into being than the sometimes allied, often clashing Rockefeller Kuhn Loeb and Morgan interests, aided by economic technicians. Using the research of the National Monetary Commission, the Jekyll Island Conclave drafted a bill for a central bank. The ideas of this draft, which eventually became the Aldrich Bill, were basically Paul Warburg's, with a decentralized soupçon taken from Morowetz. The final writing was contributed by Vanderlip. The main disagreement at the meeting was that Aldrich wanted to hold out for a straightforward central bank on the European model, whereas Warburg and the other bankers, oddly enough more politically astute on this issue than the veteran senator, insisted that the reality of central banking be clothed in the palatable garb of decentralization. The Jekyll Island draft was presented by Aldrich to the full National Monetary Commission in January 1911. Slightly revised, it was introduced, together with the Commission report, a year later as the Aldrich Bill, which in turn became in all essentials the final Federal Reserve Act passed in December 1913. In the Aldrich-Jekyll Island plan, the central bank with branches was called the National Reserve Association. The main difference between the draft and the eventual legislation is that in the former, the National Board of Directors was largely chosen by the banks themselves rather than by the President of the United States. This provision was so blatantly cartelist that it was modified for political reasons to have the President name the board. The economist Henry Parker Willis, who played a large role in the enactment of the Federal Reserve System, lamented this alteration. Quote, Political prejudice proved too strong for the establishment of this form of financial self-government, or integration. End quote. Aldrich and the Monetary Commission took the unusual step of delaying their report to Congress for 12 months, from January 1911 to January 1912. With the Democratic victory in the congressional elections of 1910, it was necessary to spend a year drumming up support for a central bank among Democrats, bankers, and the lay public. Accordingly, at the beginning of February 1911, 22 top bankers from 12 cities met for three days behind closed doors in Atlantic City to consider the Aldrich plan. The conference warmly endorsed the plan. In the private deliberation, James B. Forgan, president of the Rockefeller-dominated First National Bank of Chicago, declared outright that everyone there approved of the Aldrich plan, and that, as Colco puts it, quote, The real purpose of the conference was to discuss winning the banking community over to government control directed by the bankers for their own ends. It was generally appreciated that the Aldrich plan would increase the power of the big national banks to compete with the rapidly growing state banks, help bring the state banks under control, 
and strengthen the position of the national banks in foreign banking activities. End quote. In November 1911, Aldrich won support for his plan from the American Bankers Association. In his address to their convention, he declared, The organization proposed is not a bank, but a cooperative union of all the banks of the country for definite purposes. The major propaganda organization created for the benefit of the lay public by Aldrich and his colleagues in the spring of 1911 was the National Citizens League for the creation of a sound banking system. The League grew out of a resolution that Paul Warburg had pushed through a meeting of the National Board of Trade in January 1910, setting aside January 18th of the following year as a monetary day, devoted to a businessmen's monetary conference. At that January 1911 meeting, the conference appointed a committee of seven, headed by Warburg, to organize a business leader's monetary reform league. A group of leading Chicago businessmen, headed by John V. Farwell and Harry A. Wheeler, president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, established the National Citizens League, with economist J. Lawrence Laughlin of the University of Chicago as operating head. Warburg and the other New York bankers chose Chicago as the site of the Citizens League to give the organization a bogus appearance of grassroots populism. In reality, banker control was virtually complete. The stated purpose of the League was to advance the cause of cooperation with dominant centralization of all banks by an evolution out of our clearinghouse experience. A decade later, Professor Henry Parker Willis, Laughlin's top assistant at the League, as well as former student and long-time disciple, conceded that the Citizens League had been the propaganda organ of the nation's bankers. There is no need to go into the minutiae of the splits within the Citizens League, or of the shift by the incoming Democrats in 1913 from the dreaded Republican name of Aldrich to a bill named by their own representative, Carter Glass. Much of this conflict revolved around the desire by Laughlin and the Democrats, and to some extent by Warburg, to shed the name Aldrich for a more palatable one. Nevertheless, there was very little substantive difference between the Glass Bill, which became the Federal Reserve Act, and the original Aldrich Plan. Friedman and Schwartz are surely correct in insisting on the near-identity of the two plans. The important point is that whatever the difference on minor technical points, the nation's bankers, and especially the big bankers, were overwhelmingly in favour of a new central bank. As A. Barton Hepburn of the Chase National exalted at the annual meeting of the American Bankers Association in August 1913, in the course of his successful effort to get the bankers to endorse the glass bill, quote, The measure recognised and adopts the principles of a central bank. Indeed, if it works out as the sponsors of the law hope, it will make all incorporated banks together joint owners of a central dominating power. Precisely. All in all, Professor Kolko sums up the point well. Quote, the entire banking reform movement, at all crucial stages, was centralised in the hands of a few men who for years were linked ideologically and personally with one another. 
the problem of the origin of the Federal Reserve Act and the authorship of specific drafts was later hotly debated by men who greatly exaggerated their differences in order that they might each claim responsibility for the guiding lines of the Federal Reserve System. Yet although they may have differed on details, they agreed on major policy lines and general theory. The confusion over the precise authorship of the Federal Reserve Act should not obscure the fact that the major function, inspiration and direction of the measure was to serve the banking community in general and large bankers specifically. End quote. 3. The Structure of the Federal Reserve The structure of the Federal Reserve System, which was enacted in December 1913 and opened its doors the following November, was at once cartelizing and inflationary. Footnote The terms inflation and inflationary are used throughout this article according to their original definition, an expansion of the money supply, rather than in the current popular sense of a rise in price. The former meaning is precise and illuminating. The latter is confusing because prices are a complex phenomena with various causes, operating from the sides of both demand and supply. It only muddles the issue to call every supply-side price rise, say due to a coffee blight or an OPEC cartel, inflationary. End footnote. The cartelizing nature of the Fed can be seen in its organisation, an intimate partnership between the federal government and the nation's banking community. There are 12 regional and district Federal Reserve banks, the stock of which is held by the member banks in the district. Each bank is governed by nine directors, of whom three are chosen directly by the banks in the district. Three others are supposed to represent commerce, agriculture or industry, but they too are chosen by the member banks in the district. That leaves only three directors appointed by the overall Federal Reserve Board in Washington. Furthermore, of the three publicly appointed directors, one, who becomes the chairman of the district bank, must be a person of tested banking experience, in short, an ex-banker. Not only are six, arguably seven, of each bank's directors private bankers, but the chief executive officer of each bank, originally called the governor and now the president, is appointed by the bank's directors themselves, not by the Central Reserve Board, even though the latter must approve the choice. The Central Board has seven members, two of whom must be former bankers. All are appointed by the President of the United States. Some critics of the Federal Reserve assert that it is really and simply a private central bank, since it is owned wholly by its member banks and it makes profits from its policies. But this view ignores the fact that all profits made by the banks are now taxed away by the Treasury. The point of the cartel is not to make profits directly as shareholders of each reserve bank, but to benefit from the cartelizing and inflationary policies of the entire system. At the same time, those who maintain that the Federal Reserve System is a wholly government-controlled institution overstate the case. It is true that all members of the Federal Reserve Board are government-appointed, and that all district bank officials are instructed to act within the guidelines set by the board, 
but every governor or president of a Federal Reserve Bank is selected largely by the bankers of the district, and these governors can exert a considerable amount of influence on Fed policy. Footnote. A banker's institution of far less importance is the Federal Advisory Council, composed of bankers selected by the board of directors of their district bank. The council's recommendations garner considerable publicity, but it has no power within the system. End footnote. As we will see below, the banker-elected governor of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York seized the reins of power from the Federal Reserve Board from the inception of the system in 1914 until his death 14 years later. The Federal Reserve System, like all central banking systems, is inherently inflationary. In the first place, the central bank acts as a lender of last resort, a giant governmentally privileged institution standing ready to bail out banks in trouble. Second, by coordinating bank activities, the central bank can pump in new reserves throughout the system and thereby induce a multiple expansion of bank money and credit. Since the banks can inflate uniformly, individual expanding banks no longer suffer from the constraining redemptions by non-expanding banks that prevail in a regime of free and decentralised banking. If a bank expands credit on its own, it will soon find that its expanded notes or deposits will be passed on from its own clients to clients of other banks, and that in the normal course of business, they will be returned to the expanding bank for redemption. Yet the expanding bank will not have the funds to redeem these claims. There is also a third reason, which might not be as evident. Even if legal reserve requirements remain the same, the centralising of reserves into the hands of the Fed by itself permits a considerable inflation of money and credit. In short, if, before the establishment of a central bank, every bank keeps its own cash reserves, and if afterward most of the cash is deposited in the central bank, the bank can then pyramid its own liabilities on top of its cash, thereby exerting a multiple leverage effect on the previously existing cash. In an illuminating book on the Federal Reserve and the Great Depression, Phillips, McManus and Nelson summarise this process. Quote, Thus, if the commercial banks prior to the inauguration of a system of bankers' banking are required to hold an average reserve, say, of 10% against deposit liabilities, their deposits may be 10 times that reserve, or they may expand credit roughly on a tenfold basis. With the reserves of the commercial banks transferred to the Federal Reserve Banks, and with the latter required to maintain a reserve of only 35% against the deposit liabilities due to the member banks, credit expansion may, at its utmost, proceed to approximately 30 times the amount of the reserves. Thus is seen that the establishment of a central banking system in the United States magnified the former expansive power virtually threefold. End quote. This statement overlooks the fact that the pre-Federal Reserve banking system was not free and decentralised, and it therefore exaggerates the quantitative inflationary effect of the creation of the Fed. But the basic point is correct. A fourth inflationary effect of the creation of the Fed is inherent not so much in its structure 
as in the legal power to change the reserve requirement of the banks. Thus, before the enactment of the Fed, the average minimum reserve requirement for the nation's banks was 21.1%. The Federal Reserve Act of 1913 slashed those reserve requirements to an average of 11.6%, a reduction of 45%. Four years later, in June 1917, reserve requirements were further lowered to an average of 9.8%, a cut of 54% since 1913. In short, added to whatever multiple inflation of money and credit was permitted by the centralization inherent in the existence of the Fed, a twofold expansion in four years was permitted by the slash in reserve requirements. Footnote The Committee on War Finance of the American Economic Association hailed this development in early 1919. Quote, Recent improvements in our banking system, growing out of the establishment of the Federal Reserve System and its subsequent development, have made our reserve money more efficient than it formerly was. In other words, have enabled a dollar in reserve to do more money work than before. This, in effect, is equivalent to increasing the supply of reserve money. End quote. It is indeed, provided that money's work is to be as inflationary as possible, and efficiency means producing as much inflation as rapidly as possible. End footnote. Furthermore, in an inflationary move that was to become highly significant in the 1920s, the Federal Reserve Act drastically lowered the reserve requirements for time deposits in the banks. Previously, there had been no distinction in the legal reserve requirements between demand and time deposits. Both had therefore averaged 21.1%. Now, however, the requirement for time deposits was lowered to 5%, and then to a negligible 3% in June 1917. 4. The Personnel of the Federal Reserve The people in positions of power in America's new central bank were at least as important as its structure. The bankers, warmly hailing the enactment of the Federal Reserve, waited eagerly to see who would be running the powerful new institution. Footnote Senator Aldrich wrote to a friend in February, quote, whether the bill will work all right or not depends entirely upon the character and wisdom of the men who will control the various organizations, especially the Federal Reserve Board. End footnote. Of the seven members of the Federal Reserve Board, two were, by statute at the time, ex officio, the Secretary of the Treasury and the Comptroller of the Currency. Before assuming their posts in the Wilson administration, these two men had been close business and financial associates. Secretary of the Treasury William Gibbs McAdoo had been a failing businessman in New York City when he was befriended and bailed out by J.P. Morgan and his associates. The Morgans set McAdoo up as president of the New York's Hudson and Manhattan Railroad until his appointment in the Wilson administration. McAdoo spent the rest of his financial and political life securely in the Morgan ambit. When he was president of the Hudson and Manhattan for a decade, McAdoo's fellow officers and board members were virtually all Morgan men. His vice presidents were Edmund C. Converse, 
president of the Morgan Run Bankers Trust Company, and Walter G. Oakman, president of Morgan's flagship commercial bank, Guarantee Trust. His fellow directors included Judge Elbert H. Gary, chairman of the board of Morgan's attempted steel monopoly, U.S. Steel, and a director of another failed Morgan monopoly attempt, International Harvester. Frederick B. Jennings, partner in the Morgan law firm of Stetson, Jennings and Russell, whose senior partner, Francis Lynn Stetson, was J.P.'s personal attorney. And John C. McCulloch, a director of the Morgan-controlled Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe Railroad. Directors of Hudson and Manhattan's parent company, the Hudson Companies, included William C. Lane, a vice president of Guarantee Trust and Grant B. Schley, a brother-in-law of one of the country's top Morgan lieutenants, George F. Baker, head of the First National Bank of New York. Shortly after his appointment as Secretary of the Treasury, William McAdoo cemented his political stature by marrying President Wilson's daughter. The comptroller of the currency was a long-time associate of McAdoo's, a Virginia banker and president of the Richmond Trust and Safe Deposit Company, John Skelton Williams had been a director of McAdoo's Hudson and Manhattan Railroad and president of the Morgan-oriented Seaboard Airline Railway. When McAdoo became Secretary of the Treasury, he appointed Williams as one of his two assistant secretaries. One of President Wilson's five appointees to the Federal Reserve Board was another close associate of McAdoo's, Charles S. Hamlin whom McAdoo had appointed as his other assistant secretary. Hamlin was a Boston attorney who had married into the wealthy Prune family of Albany, a family long connected with the Morgan-dominated New York Central Railroad. Of the other Wilson appointees to the board, one was none other than Paul M. Warburg. Others were Frederick A. Delano, uncle of Franklin D. Roosevelt, and president of the Rockefeller-controlled Wabash Railway. William P. G. Harding, president of the First National Bank of Birmingham, Alabama, and son-in-law of Joseph H. Woodward, head of the Woodward Iron Company, which had several prominent Morgan and Rockefeller men on its board. And finally, Professor Adolf C. Miller, economist at the University of California, Berkeley. Miller had married into the wealthy, Morgan-connected Sprague family of Chicago. His father-in-law, Otto S. A. Sprague, had been a prominent businessman and had served as a director of the Morgan-dominated Pullman Company. Miller's wife's uncle, Albert A. Sprague, was a director of numerous large firms, including the Chicago Telephone Company, a subsidiary of the mighty Morgan-controlled monopoly American Telephone and Telegraph Company. Footnote. Wilson also tried to appoint to the board his old friend Thomas D. Jones, a Chicago lawyer and director of the Morgan's International Harvester Company, but the Senate turned down the appointment. End footnote. The Federal Reserve Board thus began its existence with three Morgan men, one person in the Rockefeller ambit, a leader of Kuhn Loeb & Co., allied with the Rockefellers, a prominent Alabama banker, and an economist with vague family connections to Morgan interests. No board could have better symbolised the alliance of banking and financial interests, aided by a few economists, 
that had conceived and successfully driven through a radical transformation of the American banking system. But more important from the inception of the Fed through the 1920s was the man appointed as governor of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, who swiftly took control of the policies of the system. Benjamin Strong had spent virtually his entire business and personal life in the circle of top aides of J.P. Morgan. Secretary of several trust companies in New York City, Strong lived in the then wealthy suburb of Englewood, New Jersey, where he became close friends of three top Morgan partners, Henry P. Davison, Thomas W. Lamont and Dwight Morrow. Davison in particular became Strong's mentor, and in 1904 offered him the post of secretary of the new Morgan-created Bankers Trust Company. Strong soon married the daughter of the wealthy Edmund C. Converse, then president of the Bankers Trust, and succeeded Thomas W. Lamont as vice president. Not long after, Strong was acting as virtual president of the Bankers Trust under the aging Converse, and in January 1914, he officially became president of the company. Strong had favoured central banking reform at least since 1907, and in August 1911 he participated with Nelson Aldrich in a lengthy meeting on the Aldrich plan with Davison, Vanderlip and a few other leading bankers on Aldrich's yacht. He also spoke before the American Bankers Association on its behalf. When, at the suggestion of his close friend, Warburg, Strong was offered the post of governor of the New York Fed, he at first refused, since he wanted a real central bank run from New York by a board of directors on the ground. In short, a frankly and openly Wall Street-run cartelized banking system. After a weekend in the country, Davison and Warburg persuaded Strong to change his mind and accept. Presumably, he now realized that he could achieve a Wall Street-run cartel on a little less candid basis from his powerful new post at the heart of the nation's money market. Strong became governor of the New York Fed in October 1914. Strong moved for seizure of commanding power shortly after the organization of the Federal Reserve System. At the organizing convention of the system in October 1914, an extra-legal council of governors was formed. At the first meeting of the council in December, Benjamin Strong became chairman not only of the council, but also of its operating executive committee. From then on, Strong acted as chairman of the governors and assumed the dominant powers that the statute had envisioned for the Federal Reserve Board. William P.G. Harding, who became governor, now chairman, of the Federal Reserve Board in Washington in 1916, cracked down on the meetings of the council but Strong continued as the dominant force in the system, a position ensured by his being named the sole agent for the open market operations of all the Federal Reserve Banks. Two years after the establishment of the Federal Reserve, and a year before the American entry into World War I, Representative Carter Glass, a Democrat from Virginia who had drawn up the final Federal Reserve Bill in the House, looked back on his cartelizing handiwork and found it good. He pointed out that his objective was very far from injuring Wall Street financial dominance. Quote, the proponents of the Federal Reserve 
had no idea of impairing the rightful prestige of New York as the financial metropolis of this hemisphere. They rather expected to confirm its distinction, and even hoped to assist powerfully in wresting this scepter from London, and eventually making New York the financial centre of the world. Indeed, momentarily, this has come to pass, and we may point to the amazing contrast between New York under the old system in 1907, shaken to its very foundation because of two bank failures, and New York at the present time under the new system, serenely secure in its domestic banking operations and confidently financing the great enterprises of European nations at war. End quote. However, there was still a problem: the failure of the state chartered banks to join the Federal Reserve System. All national banks were compelled by law to join the system and to keep their reserves with the Fed. But the eagerness with which they joined is revealed by the fact that virtually no national banks abandoned their national status to seek state charters. State banks were free to join or not. And a bane of the Fed's existence is that virtually none of them did so, preferring the lesser regulation of state law. In a letter of October 1916, Benjamin Strong lamented the situation, writing, quote, "Frankly, our bankers are more or less an unorganized mob. Until they are educated by experience to the advantages of cooperation through the reserve system." I believe it is unsafe to rely upon reserves contributed by their voluntary action. End quote. In such a vein, has every cartelist reacted to the ambitions of individual firms or entrepreneurs to kick over the collective discipline of the cartel? All Fed officials felt the same way, and only political considerations have thus far prevented compulsory membership. Five, the Federal Reserve and World War One. The Federal Reserve System arrived fortuitously for the financing of U.S. entry into World War One, for it is doubtful whether the government would have been politically able to finance the war through taxes, borrowing from the public, or the simple printing of greenbacks. As it was, the Fed was able to engineer the doubling of the money supply from its inception in 1914. Until 1919, World War One also led to a strengthening of the power of the Federal Reserve System, and particularly of the dominance of Benjamin Strong and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. With banking subject to Treasury demands for financing the huge deficits, Secretary of the Treasury McAdoo and Benjamin Strong assumed virtual joint control of the Federal Reserve. As Willis wrote, "Quote." It was the entry of the United States into the World War that finally cast the decisive vote in favor of a still further degree of high centralization, and that practically guaranteed some measure of fulfillment for the ambitions that had centered around the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. End quote. Strong's new dominance was facilitated by the Treasury's making the Federal Reserve its sole fiscal agent. The Secretary of the Treasury had not done so before the war arrived. Instead, continuing the Jacksonian policy of depositing the dispersing funds from its own sub-treasury branches, the independent treasury system. Under the spur of war, however, 
McAdoo fulfilled Strong's long-standing ambition. The Fed was now clothed with full governmental power. Strong had previously written, quote, We must, if possible, persuade McAdoo to permit the reserve banks to become the real, active and effective fiscal agents for the government. If he does that, our place in the country's banking system will be established for all time. End quote. Strong's biographer summarises how Treasury operations during the war accelerated the dominance of the New York Fed. Quote, the war and the delegation of fiscal agency had a special effect on the New York Bank and on Strong's position in the system. Situated in the nation's great central money market, the New York Bank sold and distributed nearly half of all securities offered by the Treasury during the war and collected and dispersed great sums of money. At the country's foreign exchange centre and gateway to Europe, it handled most of the Treasury's foreign exchange business, made many financial arrangements for the Treasury with foreign countries, acted as a central depository of funds from the other reserve banks, as well as the New York District for payment to the representatives of foreign countries or to suppliers of munitions to them, and was the principal purchaser of acceptances. Thus, it was only natural that the New York Bank came to enjoy the prestige of being the principal bank for the government. The Treasury came to use it as a channel for communicating with the other reserve banks. Strong's counsel was given heavy weight by the Treasury, and both the New York Bank and Strong emerged from the war with greater prestige, both absolutely and relative to the other reserve banks and the board. End quote. Moreover, Strong had long wished to concentrate the country's gold coin and bullion in the hands of the Federal Reserve and outside the control of the public. In that way, cartelization would be intensified, and the inflationary potential of the Fed, which pyramided its own notes and deposits on top of its gold stock, would greatly increase. In 1917, in view of the war, the law was changed to permit the Federal Reserve to issue notes in exchange for gold. Previously, it could only issue them for commercial notes, and to require all legal bank reserves to be kept as deposits at the Fed rather than in cash. Furthermore, relaxed federal regulations on state banks in 1917 finally induced a considerable number of state banks to join the system intensifying the concentration of reserves and of gold still further. Finally, from September 1917 to June 1919, the United States went implicitly, though not formally, off the gold standard, at least for foreigners. Foreign exchange operations were controlled, and gold exports prohibited. As a result of all of these measures, gold was virtually nationalised, and successfully concentrated at the Fed. At the end of 1916, the gold reserves of the reserve banks were only $720 million, or 28% of the country's monetary gold stock. Two years later, gold reserves at the Fed were up to $2.1 billion, or no less than 74% of the nation's gold. 6. Internationalizing the Cartel 
The fortunes of the House of Morgan had been declining since the turn of the century, and so the Morgans saw a glorious opportunity open to them upon the outbreak of the war in Europe. The Morgans had close and long-time financial connections with England. In particular, Edward Grenfell, later Lord St. Just, senior partner of Morgan, Grenfell & Company, the London branch of J.P. Morgan & Company, was also a long-time director of the Bank of England. Grenfell had long been the main informal link between the Bank of England and the New York financial community, and the relationship was formalised when the Morgan Bank became the fiscal agent of the Bank of England. Led by partner Henry P. Davison at the end of 1914, the Morgans got themselves named virtually sole purchasing agent in the United States for British and French war goods. To pay for this immense export of arms and other materiel, the British and French were obliged to float immense loans in the United States, and the House of Morgan became the sole underwriter for these allied bonds in the United States. Not only did Morgan find these monopolies highly profitable, but it prospered relative to its great rival, Kuhn-Loben Company, which, being German and connected with German banking and finance, was excluded from Allied war operations. As the Morgans and the bond market geared up to finance massive munitions and other exports to the Allies, Davison's old friend and colleague Benjamin Strong stood ready to inflate money and credit to finance these foreign loans. Editor's footnote. Rothbard elsewhere described the motivations of the Morgan ambit in the drive for US involvement in World War I, citing the work of Charles Tansill. It is worth quoting his analysis in full. Quote, the House of Morgan was hip-deep in the Allied cause from 1914 on. Morgan's railroads were in increasingly grave financial trouble, and 1914 saw the collapse of Morgan's $400 million New Haven Railroad. Concentrating on railroads and a bit laggard in moving into industrial finance, Morgan had seen its dominance in investment banking slip since the turn of the century. Now World War I had come as a godsend to Morgan's fortunes and Morgan prosperity was intimately wrapped up in the Allied cause. It is no wonder that Morgan partners took the lead in whipping up pro-British and French propaganda in the United States, and to clamour for the US to enter the war on the Allied side. Henry P. Davison set up the Aerial Coast Patrol in 1915, and Willard D. Strait and Robert Bacon, both Morgan partners, took the lead in organising the businessman's training camp at Plattsburgh, New York, to urge universal conscription. Elihu Root and Morgan Jr. himself were particularly active in pressing for entering the war on the Allied side. Furthermore, President Wilson was surrounded by Morgan people. His son-in-law, Secretary of the Treasury William G. McAdoo, had been rescued from financial bankruptcy by Morgan. Colonel Edward M. House, Wilson's mysterious and powerful foreign policy advisor, was connected with Morgan Railroads in Texas. McAdoo wrote to Wilson that war exports to the Allies would bring great prosperity to the United States, so that loans to the Allies to finance such exports had become necessary. End quote. 
The war purchases for Britain and France totaled three billion dollars, and the House of Morgan earned a commission of thirty million dollars. Moreover, the Morgans were able to steer British and French war contracts to Morgan-affiliated firms, including General Electric and U.S. Steel. End footnote. The Wilson administration and the Federal Reserve Board were prepared to do likewise. Footnote. With the exception of the two pro-German members of the Federal Reserve Board, Warburg and Miller, both of German descent, fought unsuccessfully against bank financing of munitions exports to the Allies. End footnote. Benjamin Strong had scarcely been appointed when he began planning for an international cartel, a regime of international cooperation between the leading central banks of the world. In practice, such high-sounding terms could mean only cooperation for world monetary expansion. The classical gold standard, which basically prevailed before World War One, placed a firm restraint on the propensity of national central banks to inflate. The expansion of one country's currency would raise nominal income and prices in that country, cause a deficit in its balance of payments and an outflow of gold. Thereby causing a check on inflation and perhaps a compulsion on the central bank to deflate back to its previous position. International central bank cooperation or cartelization then and now means the establishment of formal and informal mechanisms to prevent pressures for redemption and contraction on an inflating nation's currency. If this were not the meaning. There would be no need for international cooperation, or indeed for central banking at all, since all any individual bank need do to keep itself afloat is to keep its rate of inflating to a minimum. In the latter part of 1915, Benjamin Strong worked on international central bank collaboration, and in February 1916 he sailed to Europe to launch the first step. The establishment of the banks of England and France as foreign agents or correspondents for the New York Fed. Strong had long admired the central banking record of the Bank of England, and close collaboration with that leading central bank was to be the keystone of the new regime of inter-central bank cartelization. In England, in March, Strong worked out an agreement of close collaboration between the New York Fed and the Bank of England. With both banks maintaining an account with each other, and the Bank of England purchasing sterling bills on account for the New York Bank, in his usual high-handed manner, Strong expressed his determination to go ahead with the agreement, even if the other reserve banks objected or failed to go along. Finally, after some backing and filling, the Federal Reserve Board endorsed the scheme. As well as the initiating of a similar agreement with the Bank of France, Strong made his agreement with the Governor of the Bank of England, Lord Cunliffe. But his most fateful meeting in England was with the then assistant to the Deputy Governor, Montague Norman. This meeting proved the beginning of the momentous Strong-Norman collaboration that highlighted the international financial world of the 1920s. Editor's footnote. The Morgans were also involved in the Strong Norman connection. Norman's close friends were directors of the aforementioned Morgan Grenfell and Company. 
They were also prominent in the Coolidge administration. One of Calvin Coolidge's political mentors was Morgan partner Dwight Morrow. Coolidge first offered the Secretary of State position to Morgan attorney Elihu Root, but after he declined, settled for Frank B. Kellogg, who had Morgan connections, along with his assistant secretary Joseph C. Grew. Dwight Morrow and Henry L. Stimson, a disciple of Root, were also involved in international relations with Mexico and Nicaragua. Secretary of the Treasury was Andrew C. Mellon, who was generally allied to the Morgan interests. Morgan influence continued in the Hoover administration, and Dwight Morrow served as an important unofficial advisor to Herbert Hoover. End footnote. Montague Collett Norman was born to banking on both sides of his family. His father was a partner in the British banking house of Martin and Company, and was related to the great banking family of Barings. His uncle was indeed a partner of Baring Brothers. Norman's mother was the daughter of Mark W. Collett, a partner in the international banking firm of Brown Shipley and Company. Brown Shipley was the London branch of the great Wall Street banking firm of Brown Brothers. Grandfather Mark Collett, furthermore, had been governor of the Bank of England in the 1880s. At the age of 21, young Norman began his working life at the family bank of Martin and Company, and then at Brown Shipley. In 1895, he went to work at the New York office of Brown Brothers, where he stayed for three years returning to London to become a partner of Brown Shipley in 1900. Strong and Norman became close friends as well as collaborators almost immediately, writing a steady stream of correspondence, personal and financial, and visiting each other at length every year from 1919 until Strong's death in 1928. They spent long vacations together, sometimes at Bar Harbour or Saratoga, but more often in southern France. 7. Britain and the Gold Exchange Standard Britain, the major gold standard country before World War I, ended the war facing a set of grave, interlocking financial and economic problems, most of its own making. Along with the other warring nations, Britain had inflated sharply to finance the war effort. Every country except the United States, which had de facto suspended gold exports, had therefore been obliged to go off the gold standard. At the end of World War I, Britain determined that its own and the world's economic health required a return to the gold standard. And in a fateful decision, it also determined, with surprisingly little discussion, that the pound sterling would have to be established at the traditional pre-war par of approximately $4.86. Because of the greater inflation in Britain than in the United States, the free market exchange rate of the two currencies was far lower than $4.86. The British government, with the help of J.P. Morgan & Company, succeeded in artificially pegging the pound at $4.75 from early 1916 until March 1919. Finally, the British let the pound float and it quickly plummeted, reaching a low of $3.21 in February 1920. Britain's curious insistence on returning to the gold standard at a par overvalued by some 34% 
meant that the British had to face a massive price deflation. It was particularly important for Britain, dependent as it always has been on exports to purchase large quantities of imports, to keep its export prices competitive, and for that deflation would be necessary. Although difficult at times, deflation did not present major problems before World War One, since price and wage rates were flexible downward. But during the war, a massive system of high-benefit unemployment insurance and a strong network of trade unions had developed in Britain, making deflation impossible without the repeal of welfare state measures and the rolling back of trade union power. Britain was not willing to take such heroic measures. In fact, it wished to continue permanently the pleasant system of cheap credit and inflation that it had pursued during the war. Yet it continued to insist on an unrealistic four dollars eighty-six par in order to regain London's pre-war prestige as the world's financial centre. Britain, in short, insisted on resting its post-war foreign monetary policy. On a pair of inconsistent but fiercely held axioms: one, a return to gold at the overvalued pre-war par, and two, a refusal to permit the deflation needed to make axiom one at all viable. In fact, it insisted on continuing an inflationary policy. Britain's entire international financial policy during the 1920s was an attempt to square the circle. To maintain these two inconsistent axioms, how could it do so? First, Britain would have to force or cajole other countries either to inflate themselves so that Britain would not lose gold to them, or to return to a peculiar new form of gold standard, which would retain the prestige of gold without the content. Thus, Britain, operating particularly through the Financial Committee of the League of Nations. An organization that it controlled induced or forced the vanquished or small victor states of post-war Europe, one, to return to gold at overvalued pars, thereby crippling their exports and subsidizing British imports, two, to acquire their own central banks so that they too could inflate in collaboration with the Bank of England to discourage exports or gold from flowing from Britain. And three, and perhaps most important, to return not to a classical gold standard, but to a new form of gold exchange standard. In a genuine gold standard, each currency is backed by gold, and gold flows in or out of the country. In the new form, each European country was expected to keep its reserves not in gold, but in pounds sterling, which would be backed by gold. Then, when Britain inflated. Instead of losing gold to other countries, the sterling balances would pile up in London, and themselves be used as a base on which to pyramid European currencies. Britain was further protected from its inflationary policies in the 1920s by pledging to redeem pounds not in gold coin, as before the war, but only in large-denomination gold bullion. This ensured that gold could not circulate within the country. And that gold would only be redeemed by large-scale international holders. Having manipulated most of the European countries into ceasing to become a threat to its inflationary policies, Britain was still faced with the problem of the United States. 
The danger was that a non-inflating, hard-money, genuinely gold-standard country such as the United States would soon drain inflating Britain of its gold, and thereby wreck the new jerry-built international monetary system. Britain, therefore, had to persuade the United States to inflate Parapassu with Great Britain. In particular, US price levels could be no lower than Britain's, and its interest rates no higher so that gold funds would not be attracted out of London and into the United States. To persuade the United States to inflate, ostensibly in order to help Britain return to the gold standard, then became the premier task of Montague Norman. Later in the 1920s, Émile Moreau, governor of the Bank of France and a caustic hard-money critic of Britain's international financial policy, recorded in his diary that England had established, quote, a basis for putting Europe under virtual financial domination. The Financial Committee of the League of Nations at Geneva has been the instrument of that policy. The method consists of forcing every country in monetary difficulty to subject itself to the committee at Geneva, which the British control. The remedies prescribed always involve the installation in the central bank of a foreign supervisor who is British or designated at the Bank of England, which serves both to support the pound and to fortify British influence. To guarantee against possible failure, they are careful to secure the cooperation of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Moreover, they pass on to America the task of making some of the foreign loans if they seem too heavy, always retaining the political advantages of these operations. End quote. Footnote. Norman did indeed dominate the financial committee of the League, particularly through three close associates, Sir Otto Niemeyer of the Treasury, Sir Arthur Salter, and Sir Henry Strakosch. The major theoretician of Norman's imposed gold exchange standard was Ralph Hawtrey, Director of Financial Studies at the Treasury. As early as 1913, Hawtrey was advocating international collaboration by central banks to achieve a stable price level. And in 1919, he was one of the first to call for international central bank cooperation in the context of a European gold exchange standard. End footnote. Moreau also recorded a fascinating report sent by his close aide in 1926 on the intentions of Montague Norman. The aide reported that the chief objective of Norman and his group was, quote, the setting up of links between the various banks of issue. The economic and financial organisation of the world appears to the governor of the Bank of England to be the major task of the 20th century. Hence his campaign in favour of completely autonomous central banks, dominating their own financial markets and deriving their power from common agreement among themselves. End quote. Norman succeeded in getting the nations of Europe to agree to adopt the post-war gold exchange standard at the Genoa Conference, called by the Supreme Council of the Allies in April 1922. All of the details of the financial world of the 1920s were agreed on then by the Financial Commission of the conference. Britain actually adopted this standard in 1925, 
and the other European nations followed at about the same time. The United States had decided at the last minute not to participate at Genoa because of Soviet participation. But the administration, especially the powerful Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover, was enthusiastic about the idea of inter-central bank collaboration of currency stabilization. 8. Open market purchases in the 1920s The Federal Reserve generated a monetary expansion averaging approximately 7% per annum in the great boom years from 1921 to 1929, an expansion propelled by an average annual increase of member bank reserves of 6% per year. Footnote. What would now be considered M2, all bank deposits and savings and loan shares, increased by 6.8% per annum from June 1921 to June 1929 whereas M2 plus net life insurance policy reserves increased by an average of 7.7% during the same period. The rationale for including the latter is that this completes the figure for all claims redeemable in dollars at par on demand. End footnote. By far the most important factor in generating the increased reserves was open market purchases by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. The purchases came in three great bursts, in 1921-22, in 1924, and in the latter half of 1927. In the first surge, the Fed tripled its holdings of government securities from $193 million in November 1921 to $603 million in June 1922. This was the Fed's famous discovery of the inflationary effect of open market purchases a discovery that the authorities were delighted to make. Before the war, there had been little government securities available on the market and almost no short-run floating treasury debt. There was therefore little scope for open market operations as a deliberate expansionary or restrictive policy, even if this method had been discovered. After World War I, however, there was suddenly a large mass of short-term floating debt on the market that needed to be rolled over. The Federal Reserve purchased the massive amounts in 1921-22, largely to acquire income-earning assets during the era of business recession. It then saw to its delight that a new and powerful instrument of monetary expansion and inflation had been discovered. That this discovery was to an extent anticipated by Benjamin Strong is indicated by a letter he wrote on April 18, 1922, to Undersecretary of the Treasury S. Parker Gilbert, who had wondered about the Fed's unusually large purchases of government securities. Strong explained that the policy had been designed not only to add to the Fed's income-earning assets, but also to establish a level of interest rates, or at least to maintain rates at a level, which would facilitate foreign borrowing in this country, and thus would assure more stable conditions and would facilitate business improvement. This indicates that, at least to some degree, Strong bought the securities in order to push interest rates lower, to expand money and credit, and to stimulate an economic upturn. Footnote 
Gilbert, who had come to the Treasury Department from the leading Wall Street law firm of Cravath and Henderson, now Cravath, Swain and Moore, later became a partner of J.P. Morgan and Company. End footnote. The expanded open market operations led Governor Strong to reconvene the Governor's Conference on a regular and systematized basis. In May 1922, the conference set up an executive committee that would henceforth centralize and execute open market operations for the entire system. Benjamin Strong was, not coincidentally, made chairman of this Governor's Committee. Footnote. The full name of the committee was highly descriptive. The Committee of Governors on Centralized Execution of Purchases and Sales of Government Securities by Federal Reserve Banks. End footnote. From that point on, and particularly from the time of the second committee meeting in October 1922, Strong was conducting open market purchases and sales for the entire system, instead of merely functioning as an agent and processing orders from other regional reserve banks. Strong fell ill in February 1923 and was out sick until October. Shortly after, in April, the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, prodded by Adolf Miller, took steps to try to take dominance of the system away from the absent Strong. The board dissolved the extra-legal Governor's Committee and reconstituted a new one, the Open Market Investment Committee, strictly under the control of the board. With Strong temporarily gone, the board managed to force the New York Fed to sell most of its remaining government securities, for Miller and the Treasury as well had continued to be uneasy at the large open market purchases the Fed had made the previous year. Strong was furious, both at the loss of his power and at the sale of securities, which he feared would cause a recession. In November, however, Strong came roaring back, seizing control of the Federal Reserve from that point until his final illness in the spring of 1928. Regaining his power over the Open Market Investment Committee, Strong, as chairman, created a special system investment account at the New York Fed into which committee purchases and holdings were put. He also let it be known that he would expand such purchases whenever any economic downturn loomed. Quote, the reserve system should not hesitate to resume open market purchases thereby again reducing bank borrowings and easing money rates, rather than permit an unwarranted state of mind alone to disturb the even course of the country's production and consumption. End quote. The next big burst of inflationary credit expansion came in 1924. Shortly after Strong's return, he began to purchase securities on a massive scale buying $492 million from October 1923 through 1924. The overriding reason was the determination to help Britain and Montague Norman return to gold at its overvalued par. To do so, the United States had to embark on an inflationary cheap money policy to lower interest rates and raise prices relative to Britain, so that Britain would not lose gold to the United States. In 1922, Norman had hailed the easy credit and drop in interest rates to match Britain's credit expansion. 
During that and the following year, Norman continued to pepper Strong with appeals and demands for further extensions of credit in the United States. But Strong felt that the time was not yet ripe. Finally, in 1924, with Britain's return to the gold standard looming the following year, Strong felt that the time was ripe and the massive open market purchases began. Furthermore, the pound sterling, which had risen to $4.61 by the end of 1922, with news of the impending return to gold, had fallen sharply to $4.34 by mid-1924. Only massive inflationary pressure in the United States could raise the pound to $4.86. Strong set forth his basic policies in a lengthy letter on May 27, 1924, to Secretary of the Treasury Andrew Mellon. Quote, there still remains the serious problem of the disparity of price levels in the different countries due to monetary disturbances and currency inflation, the correction of which must be undertaken before a return to actual gold payment will be safe. This may be illustrated by the case of British prices and our own. The pound sterling is roughly at 10% discount measured in our gold currency. At the present time, it is probably true that British prices for goods internationally dealt in are, as a whole, roughly in the neighbourhood of 10% above our prices, and one of the preliminaries to the re-establishment of gold payment by Great Britain will be to facilitate a gradual readjustment of these price levels before monetary reform is taken. In other words, this means some small advance in prices here and possibly some small decline in their prices. No one can direct price changes. They will be to a certain extent fortuitous, but can be facilitated by cooperation between the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve System in the maintaining of lower interest rates in this country and higher interest rates in England so that we will become the world's borrowing market to a greater extent and London to a less extent. The burden of this readjustment must fall more largely upon us than them. It will be difficult, politically and socially, for the British government and the Bank of England to force a price liquidation in England beyond what they have already experienced, in face of the fact that their trade is poor and they have over a million unemployed people receiving government aid. End quote. The inflationary open market purchases led to a fall of interest rates in the United States below Britain by mid-1924. Sterling rose again, reaching $4.78 by the spring of 1925. Britain resumed the gold standard at the pre-war par by the end of the year. This resumption was further aided by the New York Fed's loan of a line of credit of $200 million to Britain, accompanied by a similar credit of $100 million to Britain by J.P. Morgan & Company. The final great burst of inflation, and the most intense of the 1920s, came in the latter half of 1927, when the Federal Reserve purchased $225 million of government securities and $220 million of bankers' acceptances, adding $445 million to bank reserves from these two sets of purchases alone. 
The problem was that Britain's return to the gold standard quickly proved an unhappy one. The sharp rise in the value of sterling put great pressure on Britain's already depressed exports, especially on the coal industry. Britain's chronic depression intensified, and rigid wage rates intensified unemployment. A general strike and a lengthy coal mine strike in 1926 were the direct consequence of the return to gold at an overvalued par. Instead of deflating, therefore, to validate the $4.86, Britain insisted on inflating in a vain attempt to relieve the depression. Prices rose, the Bank of England lowered its discount rate, and the balance of payment deficit and the resulting gold outflow became much worse. The pressure on the sterling intensified. Unwilling to stop inflating and tighten credit, Montague Norman turned to Benjamin Strong, his old ally. Benjamin Strong purchased some sterling bills to reverse the dollar flow from Britain. And also sold France sixty million dollars in gold to forestall French demands for redemption of sterling, but these were just temporary expedients. So Strong invited three top central bankers for a highly secretive conference in New York in July 1927. So secret was the conclave that Strong, in his usual high-handed fashion, prevented Gates W. Magara, chairman of the board of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. From attending the meeting, and the Federal Reserve Board in Washington was also kept in the dark. Footnote: Gates Magara was a close business associate of Albert H. Wiggin, chairman of the board of Morgan's Chase National Bank. End footnote. In addition to Norman, the other European representatives were Professor Charles Rist, deputy governor of the Bank of France, and Halmar Schacht. Governor of the German Reichsbank, Strong and Norman tried hard to get Rist and Schacht to agree on a concerted and massive four-country cheap credit and inflation, but the Europeans vigorously refused, expressing alarm at the inflationary trend. While Rist and Schacht sailed for home, the Anglo-American combine stayed to weld their pact for inflation, expanded credit, and lower interest rates. Before Rist left, however, Strong told him buoyantly that he was going to give a little Cuda whiskey to the stock market. President Coolidge and Secretary Mellon endorsed the new inflationary policy. The only high-level objectors being Adolf Miller and Herbert Hoover. The Federal Reserve authorities stayed silent about the reasons for their sudden expansion in late 1927. With only Governor W. J. Bailey of the Kansas City Federal Reserve Bank repeating the line that Strong had told him, that the cheap credit policy, including the open market purchases, the lowering of rediscount rates, and the lowering of Fed buying rates on acceptances, was being pursued to help the farmers. Helping Britain, not a very popular policy in the American heartland at the time. Was kept under wraps as the major reason for the inflationary surge. The importance of helping Britain in the inflationary policy of the 1920s is seen in Benjamin Strong's comments to Sir Arthur Salter, Secretary of the League of Nations and a Norman associate, in Paris in May 1928. Rejecting the idea of a formal meeting of the world's central banks, 
Strong cited the political hostility in the United States. Then, as an aide summarized, quote, To illustrate how dangerous the position might become in the future as a result of the decisions reached at the present time, and how inflamed public or political opinion might easily become when the results of past decisions become evident, Governor Strong cited the outcry against the speculative excesses now being indulged in on the New York market, and the criticism of the Federal Reserve System for its failure to curb or prevent this speculation. He said that very few people indeed realized that we were now paying the penalty for the decision which was reached early in 1924 to help the rest of the world back to a sound financial and monetary basis. End quote. Footnote. In the autumn of 1926, a leading banker admitted that bad consequences would follow the cheap money policy, but added, that cannot be helped. It is the price we pay for helping Europe. End footnote. 9. Creating the Acceptance Market Nowadays there are two methods by which the Federal Reserve can add to bank reserves, and therefore to the inflating process of pyramiding new money on top of reserves as a base. One is open market operations. The other is changing the rediscount rate at which the Fed, as the lender of last resort, lends reserves to banks in trouble. But a third method was highly important in the 1920s, the intense subsidization, indeed the very creation, of a market in acceptances. Discount policy was inflationary during the 1920s. In the first place, rates were set below the market, instead of a penalty rate above it, thus inducing banks to borrow reserves from the Fed. Second, the Fed decided to lend continuously rather than only in emergencies. As the Federal Reserve Board wrote in its annual report of 1923, quote, The Federal Reserve banks are the source to which the member banks turn when the demands of the business community have outrun their own unaided resources. The Federal Reserve supplies the needed additions to credit in times of business expansion and takes up the slack in times of business recession. End quote. Presidents Harding and Coolidge repeatedly pledged to lower interest rates and to keep them low during the 1920s, and each did his best to fulfill that pledge. In 1922-23, 1925 and 1928, periods when the Federal Reserve was belatedly trying to stop its inflationary policies, the discounting process, spurred by artificially low rediscount rates, came to the bank's rescue. During the onrushing stock market boom in 1927, President Coolidge and Secretary Mellon stepped in whenever the boom showed signs of flagging and egged it on predicting lower interest rates and urging higher prices. In one of these statements, Mellon assured the market that there is an abundant supply of easy money which should take care of any contingencies that might arise. Furthermore, both Harding and Coolidge appointed Federal Reserve members who would implement the low-discount-rate, low-interest-rate policy. The most unusual aspect of the Federal Reserve-generated inflation of the 1920s 
was its creation and subsidization of the acceptance market in the United States. Commercial paper in the United States had always been confined to single-name promissory notes, often discounted at commercial banks. By contrast, in Europe, and particularly in Britain, foreign trade, not domestic, was habitually financed by the mechanism of an endorsement of the debt, or acceptance. The acceptance bank endorsed and purchased the note and then sold it to a dealer or bill broker, who in turn sold it to a commercial bank for discount. From the inception of the system, the Federal Reserve set out to bring a thriving acceptance market into being by massive subsidization. Since there had been virtually no naturally arising acceptance market in the United States, the demand for acceptances by discount banks was extremely slight. The Federal Reserve, therefore, undertook to buy all acceptances offered to it, either by the member banks or by a tiny group of designated dealers, and to buy them at a very low, subsidized rate. Generally, this rate was lower than the discount rate for similar commercial paper. In this way, the Federal Reserve provided reserves in a way unusually favorable to the banks. First, not only was the rate cheap, but acceptances were, like discounts and unlike open market operations, always there to be provided by a passive Federal Reserve. And second, the acceptances never had to be repaid to the Fed, and therefore, unlike discounts and like open market purchases, they constituted a permanent addition to the reserves of the banks. The dominance of the Federal Reserve in making a market for acceptances can be seen in the proportion of acceptances held by the Fed. On June 30, 1927, over 46% of bankers' acceptances were held by the Federal Reserve, over 26% for its own account and another 20% for foreign central banks. Footnote. The Fed held the same proportion in June 1929. End footnote. The subsidizing of acceptances was, from the early years, highly concentrated in New York City. In the first place, the New York Fed seized control of the acceptance policy in 1922 and kept it for the remainder of the decade. Second, the bulk of acceptances were on foreign transactions, and all of those acceptances were purchased by the Fed from only nine very large acceptance dealers located in New York City. Third, the number of acceptance banks was also quite small, 118 in the entire country in 1932, of which 40 were located in New York City, and three-quarters of all acceptances were executed by banks in New York City. The acceptance banks were generally large commercial banks, but also included the huge International Acceptance Bank of New York, the world's largest acceptance bank, which in the 1930s merged with the Kuhn Loeb-dominated Bank of Manhattan Company. Footnote. One of the nine designated acceptance dealers, the Discount Corporation of New York, was itself organized by a group of accepting banks to deal in bankers' acceptances. End footnote. Fed policy on acceptances played an inflationary role at crucial periods during the 1920s. 
In late 1922, this policy supplemented the role of discounts by far more than offsetting the open market sale of securities by the Fed. In the 1924 credit expansion, almost twice as many acceptances as government securities were purchased in the open market. And in the fateful 1927 inflationary surge, acceptances, bills bought, were equally as powerful in adding to reserves as the Fed's purchase of securities. Furthermore, during the latter half of 1928, when the Fed stopped buying securities in an attempt to get the runaway boom under control, massive purchases of acceptances kept the boom going. Benjamin Strong was, of course, the man who instituted and maintained the Federal Reserve creation and subsidising of the acceptance market. Indeed, Strong often took the lead in urging cheaper and cheaper rates to intensify the subsidy. For Strong, this policy was vital for the promotion of foreign trade and for facilitating international central bank collaboration and management of the world financial system. But by far the most enthusiastic and tireless advocate of ever greater Federal Reserve aid to the acceptance market was Strong's close friend, Paul Moritz Warburg. From the very beginning of Warburg's promotion of a central bank in 1907, that bank's subsidisation of acceptance paper was crucial to his plan. He scoffed at the prevalence of single-name promissory notes in the United States, a practice, he opined, that left the backward United States at about the same point that had been reached by Europe at the time of the Medicis, and by Asia, in all likelihood, at the time of Hammurabi. Warburg envisioned a money supply issued by a central bank based on acceptance paper purchased by that bank. We have seen that Paul Warburg was one of the most influential founders and shapers of the Federal Reserve System. He was on the board from 1914 to 1918, when he resigned because of his German ancestry. But he continued to be highly influential through the 1920s, as chairman of the Fed's Federal Advisory Council. In June 1923, Warburg boasted before the American Acceptance Council, a trade association of acceptance banks and dealers organised four years before, that he had been largely responsible for the Fed's acceptance-buying policy, as well as for the repeated statutory widening of eligibility for those purchases. In 1922, Warburg demanded still lower buying rates on acceptances, and in the spring of 1929, when he began to worry about the developing boom, he still called for the Fed to create a wider acceptance market. It is certainly plausible to hold that Warburg's unremitting zeal for massive federal subsidy of the acceptance market, as well as its cartelization in the hands of a few New York acceptance bankers and dealers, was connected to his status as a leading acceptance banker. For Paul Warburg was chairman of the board of the world's largest acceptance bank, the International Acceptance Bank of New York, from its inception in 1920. He also became a director of the important Westinghouse Acceptance Bank and of several other acceptance houses, and was the chief founder and chairman of the executive committee of the American Acceptance Council. 
His vaunting speech to that council in early 1923 was his presidential address. Footnote. It is fitting that after Benjamin Strong's death, Warburg paid him high tribute by hailing him for welding the central banks together into an intimate group, and concluding that members of the American Acceptance Council would cherish his memory. End footnote. 10. From Boom to Depression In the spring of 1928, with Benjamin Strong ill and absent after mid-May, the Federal Reserve became alarmed by the now-exploding stock market and tried to put an end to the inflationary boom. The Fed managed to contract reserves by selling securities, but its efforts were partially offset by large increases in rediscounting spurred by the Fed's failure to raise rediscount rates sufficiently and by the bank's shifting of credit from demand to time deposits, which required far less reserves. Still, the contraction of reserves took hold from May through July, and as a result, the rate of money growth levelled off sharply. Footnote. M2, which had risen at an annual rate of 7.7% in the latter half of 1927, 8.1% if net life insurance policy reserves are included, increased by only 3.2% in the first half of 1928, 4.3% if life insurance is included. End footnote. Stock prices rose far more slowly than before, and the gold drain out of the United States began to reverse. The boom could have ended in mid-1928, and the resulting contraction could have been mild. But this was not to be. Instead, the Fed's massive purchases of acceptances increased reserves in the latter half of the year, and the money supply growth rose again. One reason for the Fed's failure to stay its relatively less inflationary course was the great pressure it received from Europe. The short-run benefits of the inflationary injection of 1927 in Europe had already dissipated. The pound was sagging again, gold was flowing out of Britain, and interest rates were again higher in the United States than in Britain. With the exception of France, Europe clamoured against any tighter money in the United States, and the Fed's aggravation of inflation in late 1928 eased the flow of gold from Britain. And Benjamin Strong, though ill and travelling in Europe, kept up a stream of pressure for easier money. In mid-July, Strong looked back on his handiwork and found it good. In a letter to S. Parker Gilbert, he wrote that his policy since 1924 had, enabled monetary reorganisation to be completed in Europe, which otherwise would have been impossible. It was undertaken with the well-recognised hazard that we were liable to encounter a big speculation and some expansion of credit. Six months ago, we faced the new year with practically all the European nations in a strong position in monetary matters. Our course was perfectly obvious. We had to undertake it. The conditions permitted it, and the possibility of damage resulting abroad were, sick, at a minimum. End quote. Strong went on to express his concern at the very high rates then prevailing in New York, and looked forward to rate reductions in the fall. 
On his return to the United States in August, Strong continued to express concern, not over the inflationary boom and the runaway stock market, but over what he considered excessively high interest rates. He clearly wished to resume his old inflationary policy. After Strong's retirement in August, his faithful followers tried to tread the same path. His successor as governor, George L. Harrison, led the Open Market Committee to worry about excessively high rates and asked and obtained the board's permission for the authority to engage in massive open market purchases. The end of Strong's reign, he died in October 1928, led to indecisive splits and fragmented power within the Federal Reserve System. Although Harrison attempted to emphasize open market purchases, the majority of the board wanted the Fed to buy far more acceptances. Each faction wanted its own version of inflationary credit expansion. One reason for the Fed's emphasis on acceptances was the increasing adoption in Washington of the curious theory of moral suasion, which was to plague efforts to end the inflationary boom during the latter half of 1928 and through 1929. Until the end, President Coolidge was still trying to boost the stock market. But the new President Hoover and Governor Roy Young of the Federal Reserve Board had a different theory, that credit could remain cheap and easy for legitimate business, but be restrictive toward the stock market. As soon as Hoover assumed office, he tried moral suasion by intimidation, sending an old banker friend, Henry M. Robinson of Los Angeles, to New York to try to persuade the bankers to restrict stock loans, and calling a meeting of editors and publishers to warn them of high stock prices. Moral suasion was abandoned by June 1929. The Federal Reserve, after finally shutting off the acceptance window in March by raising its buying rate above the discount rate, delayed raising the rediscount rate under pressure from Hoover. Finally, it raised the rate in August, but typically, the Fed offset this check to the boom by lowering the acceptance rate at the same time. As a result of this unprecedented straddle, large Fed purchases of acceptances from July to October drove the stock market to new heights. These acceptances were largely sterling bills purchased by the New York Fed once again to help Britain. Great Britain was trying to inflate and pursue cheap credit in the midst of a worsening depression, and the Fed was trying to stem the renewed outflow of gold in the United States. Footnote. The grave fallacy in the efforts of 1928 and 1929 to keep credit abundant in trade and industry while restricting the stock market was pointed out in an excellent epitaph on this policy by A. Wilfred May. Quote, Once the credit system had become infected with cheap money, it was impossible to cut down particular outlets of this credit without cutting down all credit, because it is impossible to keep different kinds of money in watertight apartments. It was impossible to make money scarce for stock market purposes while simultaneously keeping it cheap for commercial use. When reserve credit was created, 
there was no possible way that its employment could be directed into specific uses once it had flowed through the commercial banks into the general credit stream. End footnote. With all eyes on the stock market, however, the great American boom of the 1920s was already over. For despite, or perhaps because of, the waffling and confusion of the Fed, the money supply remained level from the peak at the end of 1928 through September 1929. A recession was now inevitable. Unbeknownst to most Americans, the economy started turning downward around July 1929. Three months later, on October 24th, the great stock market crash brought the shift from boom to depression to the attention of everyone. The Federal Reserve did not meet the crash with any idea of laissez-faire or of allowing the economy to liquidate the malinvestments of the boom. On the contrary, its inflationist attitude during the boom was matched by a similar and even more aggravated outlook during the Depression. In an unprecedented act, the Fed inflated reserves wildly in one week, the week of the crash. In the last week of October, the Fed doubled its holdings of government securities and discounted $200 million for member banks, adding $350 million to total bank reserves. Almost all of these increased reserves were poured into New York in order to prevent liquidation of the stock market and to induce New York City banks to take over the broker's loans that non-bank lenders were in the process of unloading. As a result, member banks expanded their deposits during that fateful last week in October by $1.8 billion, a monetary expansion of nearly 10% in one week. Almost all of this amount, totaling $1.6 billion, came from increased deposits in New York City banks. The Federal Reserve at the same time sharply lowered its rediscount and acceptance rates. By mid-November, the great stock market break was over and, stimulated by artificial credit, began to rise again. Total bank reserves then fell so that at the end of November they had reached pre-crash levels. This contraction stemmed from a decline in discounts and acceptances, a gold outflow and increased money in circulation. The Fed tried to offset this in vain by purchasing more securities. If we compare October 23rd, the day before the crash, with the situation at the end of 1929, we find that bank reserves controlled by the Fed, all government securities, tripled in size. This expansion was offset by such uncontrolled factors affecting reserves as a decline in gold and an increase in cash in circulation brought on by falling public confidence in the banks and in the dollar itself. The Fed had done its best to inflate in the last quarter of 1929, but its efforts were thwarted by seasonal cash outflows and the exigencies of the gold standard. The result was that the total money supply remained level in the final quarter of 1929. President Hoover was proud of his experiment in cheap money, and in a speech to a White House conference of several hundred business leaders in December, 
hailed the nation's good fortune in possessing the magnificent Federal Reserve System, which had succeeded in saving banks, restoring confidence, and lowering interest rates. Hoover also revealed that he had done his part for the cause by personally urging the banks to rediscount more extensively at the Federal Reserve. Secretary of the Treasury Mellon issued one of his by now traditionally optimistic pronouncements, stating that there was plenty of credit available. And William Green, head of the American Federation of Labor, hailed the Federal Reserve for its success in ending the Depression. On November 22, 1929, Green opined, quote, All the factors which make for a quick and speedy industrial and economic recovery are present and evident. The Federal Reserve System is operating, serving as a barrier against financial demoralization. Within a few months, industrial conditions will become normal. Confidence and stabilization of industry and finance will be restored. End quote. Apparently, many leading Federal Reserve officials were disposed at the end of 1929 to let the market sweat it out and reach monetary ease by a wholesome process of liquidation. But this laissez-faire policy was not to be. Instead, Governor George L. Harrison, head of the New York Fed, led a policy of massive easy money. Rediscount rates at the Fed, buying rates on acceptances, and the call loan rate all fell drastically. At the end of August 1930, Governor Roy Young of the Federal Reserve Board resigned and was replaced by a thoroughgoing inflationist, Eugene Meyer Jr. Footnote Eugene Meyer Jr. was the son of a partner in the great international banking firm of Lazard Frères. Like stock speculator and close friend Bernard Baruch, Meyer had made a fortune through financial association with the wealthy Guggenheim family and with the Morgans in mining investments. At the time of Meyer's appointment, his brother-in-law George Blumenthal was a partner at J.P. Morgan & Company. End footnote. Total bank reserves rose during the year chiefly through large Fed purchases of government securities. But all this inflationism was to no avail, since a wave of bank failures struck toward the end of the year, and shaky banks had to contract their operations. The net result was that the total money supply remained level throughout the year. For a while, stock prices rose again, but they soon fell sharply, and production and employment kept falling steadily. Meanwhile, the New York Fed continued to lead collaborations with foreign central banks, often against the wishes of the federal administration. Thus, the new Central Bankers Bank, the Bank for International Settlements, BIS, was instigated by Montague Norman, and much of the American capital for the BIS was put up by J.P. Morgan & Company. The BIS treated the New York Fed as America's central bank, and Governor Harrison made a trip abroad in late 1930 to confer with European central bankers. Chairman of the BIS's first organizing committee was Jackson E. Reynolds, a director of the New York Fed, and the first president of the BIS was Gates W. McGarrah, 
who resigned as chairman of the board of the New York Fed to assume the post. Yet there was no legislative sanction for US participation in the bank. Despite the administration's and the Fed's systemic attempts to inflate and provide cheap money, the inflationists were not satisfied with the course of events. In late October, Business Week thundered against the supposed deflationists in the saddle, supposedly inspired by the large commercial and investment banks. In contrast, in the same month, Herbert Hoover apparently felt that the time had come for self-congratulation. In an address to the American Bankers Association, he summed up the multifaceted intervention of the preceding year. He hailed the Federal Reserve System as the great instrument of promoting stability and called for an ample supply of credit at low interest, which he pointed out was now available through the cooperation of the banks and the Federal Reserve System. Hoover proceeded to point out that the Federal Reserve was the locus of a vast system of cartelization. Quote, the reserve system and its member banks and the treasury participation in fact form a widespread cooperative organization acting in the broad interest of the whole people. To a large degree it can influence the flow of credit. Bankers themselves are represented at each stage of management and in addition the various boards and advisory committees represent also industry, agriculture, merchandising and the government. The reserve system therefore furnished an admirable centre for cooperation of the banking business with the production and distribution industries and the government in the development of broad and detached policies of business stability. End quote. Moreover, these broad and detached policies of cooperation had succeeded in combating the depression. Quote, we have all been much engaged with measures of relief from the effect of the collapse a year ago. At that time, I determined that it was my duty, even without precedent, to call upon the business of the country for coordinated and constructive action to resist the forces of disintegration. The business community, the bankers, labor and the government have cooperated in wider spread measures of mitigation than have ever been attempted before. Our bankers and the reserve system have carried the country through the credit storm without impairment. End quote. The rest is history. 11. Summary The bleak record of accelerating inflation and recession since the inception of the Federal Reserve in 1913 may be seen in a different light if we re-evaluate the purpose that this central bank was intended to serve. For the Federal Reserve was designed not to curb the allegedly inflationary tendencies of freely competing banks, but to do precisely the opposite, to enable the banks to inflate uniformly, without worrying about calls for redemption by non-inflating competitors. In short, the Federal Reserve was designed to act as a government-sponsored and enforced cartel, promoting the income of banks by preventing free competition from doing its constructive work on behalf of the consumer. 
The Federal Reserve emerged in an era when federal and state governments were embarked on precisely this kind of program in many sectors of industry, and it was designed to do for the banks what the ICC had done for the railroads, the Agriculture Department for the farmers, and the FTC for general industry. These actions of the Progressive Era came after widespread attempts in the late 1890s and earlier to cartelize or create monopolies voluntarily, attempts that almost all came to swift and resounding failure. Various large business groupings therefore came to the conclusion that government would have to play an active and enforcing role if cartelization was to succeed. This chapter demonstrates the unhappiness of particularly the large Wall Street banks with the inelasticity of the pre-Federal Reserve banking system, that is, its inability to create more money and credit. They were also unhappy with the growing decentralization of the nation's banking by the early part of the 20th century. After the failure of attempts by McKinley and Roosevelt, secretaries of the Treasury, to engage in central banking, and particularly after the Panic of 1907, large banking and financial groups, in particular those of Morgan, Rockefeller and Kuhn Loeb, began a drive to establish a central bank in the United States. Despite minor political disagreements, the numerous variants of Federal Reserve proposals, from the Aldrich Plan to the final bill in 1913, were essentially the same. The structure of the Federal Reserve Act was cartelizing and inflationary, and the personnel of the Federal Reserve Board reflected the dominance of the large banking groups, particularly the Morgans, in the drive for a central bank. The ruling force in the Federal Reserve System, from its inception until his death in 1928, was Benjamin Strong, governor of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, who all his life had been firmly in the Morgan ambit. Strong's policies were what one might expect. His willingness to inflate money and credit to purchase government deficits was critical to financing America's entry into World War I. He also moved quickly to internationalize the banking cartel by forming a close tie with the Bank of England, of which the Morgan Bank was fiscal agent. The Morgans were also closely connected with munitions and other war-related exports to Britain and France, and enjoyed the sole privilege of underwriting British and French war bonds in the United States. Benjamin Strong was obliged to inflate money and credit during the 1920s in order to help Britain return to an inflationary form of the gold standard at a highly overvalued pound. Only by Strong's increasing the supply of dollars could his close collaborator, Montague Norman, head of the Bank of England, hope to stem the flow of gold from Britain to the United States. Strong performed this inflationary role not only by keeping rediscount rates below the market and buying treasury securities on the open market, but also by subsidizing, indeed virtually creating, a market in bankers' acceptances which the Fed stood ready to buy in any amount offered at artificially cheap rates. This acceptance policy, designed to promote foreign trade, especially in London, was adopted under the influence of one of the founders of the Federal Reserve, Paul M. Warburg of Kuhn-Loeb & Company, 
who also became the nation's largest acceptance banker. When the stock market crash hit, the Federal Reserve and the Hoover administration were scarcely ready to allow free market processes to bring about recovery. Instead, the Fed, backed strongly by Hoover, inflated reserves wildly, and interest rates fell sharply. All, of course, to no avail. Chapter 15 Herbert Hoover and the Myth of Laissez-Faire 1. Herbert Hoover as Secretary of Commerce The conventional wisdom of historian and layman alike pictures Herbert Hoover as the last stubborn guardian of laissez-faire in America. The laissez-faire economy, so this wisdom runs, produced the Great Depression in 1929, and Hoover's traditional do-nothing policies could not stem the tide. Hence, Hoover and his hidebound policies were swept away, and Franklin Roosevelt entered to bring to America a new deal, a new progressive economy of state regulation and intervention fit for the modern age. The major theme of this chapter is that this conventional historical view is pure mythology, and that the facts are virtually the reverse. That Herbert Hoover, far from being an advocate of laissez-faire, was in every way the precursor of Roosevelt and the New Deal. That, in short, he was one of the major leaders of the 20th century shift from relatively laissez-faire capitalism to the modern corporate state. In the terminology of William A. Williams and the New Left, Hoover was a preeminent corporate liberal. When Herbert Hoover returned to the United States in late 1919, fresh from his post as relief administrator in Europe, he came armed with a suggested reconstruction program for America. The program sketched the outlines of a corporate state. There was to be national planning through voluntary cooperation among businesses and groups under central direction. Footnote. Hoover's earlier career confirms this appraisal of his views. There is no space here, however, to analyse his earlier ideas and activities. End footnote. The Federal Reserve System was to allocate capital to essential industries and thereby eliminate the industrial waste of free markets. Hoover's plan also included the creation of public dams, the improvement of waterways, a federal home loan banking system, the promotion of unions and collective bargaining, and governmental regulation of the stock market to eliminate vicious speculation. It is no wonder that progressive Republicans, as well as such progressive Democrats as Louis Brandeis, Herbert Crowley and others on the New Republic, Edward A. Feline, Colonel Edward M. House and Franklin D. Roosevelt, boomed Hoover for the presidency during the 1920 campaign. Hoover was appointed Secretary of Commerce by President Harding under pressure by the progressive wing of the party and accepted under the condition that he would be consulted on all the economic activities of the federal government. He thereupon set about deliberately to reconstruct America. Hoover was only thwarted from breaking the firm American tradition of laissez-faire during a depression by the fact that the severe but short-lived depression of 1920-21 
was over soon after he took office. He also faced some reluctance on the part of Harding and the cabinet. As it was, however, Hoover organized a federal committee on unemployment, which supplied unemployment relief through branches and sub-branches to every state and in numerous cities and local communities. Furthermore, Hoover organized the various federal, state and municipal governments to increase public works and persuaded the biggest business firms, such as Standard Oil of New Jersey and United States Steel, to increase their expenditure on repairs and construction. He also persuaded employers to spread unemployment by cutting hours for all workers, instead of discharging the marginal workers, an action he was to repeat in the 1929 Depression. Hoover called for these interventionist measures with an analogy from the institutions of wartime planning and collaboration, urging that Americans develop the same spirit of spontaneous cooperation in every community for reconstruction that we had in war. An important harbinger for Hoover's later depression policies was the President's Conference on Unemployment, a gathering of eminent leaders of industry, banking and labor, called by President Harding in the fall of 1921 at the instigation of Hoover. In contrast to Harding's address affirming laissez-faire as the proper method of dealing with depressions, Hoover's opening address to the conference called for active intervention. Furthermore, the conference's major recommendation for coordinated federal state expansion of public works to remedy depressions was prepared by Hoover and his staff in advance of the conference. Footnote. Playing a crucial role on this staff was Otto Todd Mallory, the nation's leading advocate of public works as a remedy for depressions. Mallory had inspired the nation's first such stabilization program in Pennsylvania in 1917 and had been a leading official on public works in the Wilson administration. He was also a leader in the American Association for Labor Legislation, an influential group of eminent citizens, businessmen and economists devoted to government intervention in the fields of labor, employment and welfare. The AALL, endorsing the conference, boasted that the conference's proposals followed the pattern of its own recommendations, which had been formulated as far back as 1915. Apart from Mallory, the conference employed the services of nine economists who were also officials of the AALL. The AALL singled out for particular praise Joseph H. DeFries of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, who appealed to business organizations to cooperate with the conference's program and to accept business responsibility for the unemployment problem. End footnote. Of particular importance was the provision that public works and public relief were to be supplied only at the usual wage rate, a method of trying to maintain the high wage rates of the preceding boom during a depression. Although these interventions did not have time to take hold in the 1921 depression, a precedent for federal intervention in an economic depression had now been set, as one of Hoover's admiring biographers writes, rather to the horror of conservatives. The President's Conference established three permanent research committees, headed overall by Hoover, 
which continued during the 1920s to publish studies advocating public works stabilization during depressions. One such book, Seasonal Operations in the Construction Industry, Washington, D.C., Conference on Unemployment, 1921, the foreword to which was written by Hoover, urged seasonal stabilization of construction. This study was in part the result of a period of propaganda admitted by the American Construction Council, a trade association for the construction industry, which of course was enthusiastic about large-scale programs of government contracts for the construction industry. This council was formed jointly by Herbert Hoover and Franklin D. Roosevelt in the summer of 1922, with the aim of stabilizing and cartelizing the industry and of planning the entire construction industry through the imposition of various codes of ethics and of fair practice. The codes were the particular idea of Herbert Hoover. Following the path of all would-be cartelists, who are hostile to no one more than the individualistic competitor, Franklin D. Roosevelt, president of the American Construction Council, took repeated opportunity to denounce rugged individualism and profit-seeking by individuals. Throughout the 1920s, Hoover supported numerous bills in Congress for public works programs during depressions. He was backed in these endeavors by the American Federation of Labor, the United States Chamber of Commerce, and the American Engineering Council, of which Hoover was for a time president. It was clear that the engineering profession would also benefit greatly from government subsidization of the construction industry. By the middle 20s, President Coolidge, Secretary Mellon, and the National Democratic Party had been converted to the scheme, but Congress was not yet convinced. After he was elected president, but before taking office, Hoover allowed his public works plan, the Hoover Plan, to be presented to the Conference of Governors in late 1928 by Governor Ralph Owen Brewster of Maine. Brewster called the plan the Road to Plenty, a name that Hoover had taken from Foster and Catchings, the popular co-authors of a plan for massive inflation and public works as the way to end depressions. Footnote. Waddill Catchings was a prominent investment banker who founded the Pollock Foundation for Economic Research, with Dr. William T. Foster as director. Foster was Brewster's technical advisor at the Governor's Conference. Foster and Catchings had called for a $3 billion public works program to iron out the business cycle and stabilize the price level. Foster and Catchings reciprocated by praising the Hoover Plan a few months later. The plan, they exulted, would iron out prices and the business cycle. Quote, it is business guided by measurement instead of hunches. It is economics for an age of science, economics worthy of the new president. End footnote. Although seven or eight governors were enthusiastic about the plan, the Governor's Conference tabled the scheme. A large part of the press hailed the plan extravagantly as a pact to outlaw depression. Leading the applause was William Green, head of the AFL, who hailed the plan as the most important announcement on wages and employment in a decade, and John P. Frey of the AFL, who announced that Hoover had accepted the AFL theory 
that depressions are caused by low wages. The press reported that Labour is jubilant because the new president's remedy for unemployment is identical with that of Labour. The close connection between Hoover and the Labour leadership was no isolated phenomenon. Hoover had long agitated for industry to encourage and incorporate labour unionism within the framework of the emerging industrial order. Moreover, he played a crucial role in converting the labour leaders themselves to the idea of a corporate state with unions as junior partners in the system, a state that would organise and harmonise labour and capital. Hoover's pro-union views first achieved prominence when as chairman of President Wilson's Second Industrial Conference, 1919-1920, he guided this conference of corporate liberal industrialists and labour leaders to criticise company unionism and to urge the expansion of collective bargaining, government arbitration boards for labour disputes and a programme of national health and old age insurance. Soon afterward, Hoover arranged a meeting of leading industrialists with advanced views in an unsuccessful attempt to persuade them to establish liaison with the AFL. In January 1921, the AFL Journal published a significant address by Hoover, which called for the definite organization of great national associations of economic groups and their mutual cooperation. This cooperation would serve to promote efficiency and mitigate labour-management conflict. Above all, workers would be protected from the unfair competition of the sweatshop. Still more did this mean protection of the lower-cost large employers from the competition of their smaller sweatshop rivals. A typical instance of monopolizers using humanitarian rhetoric to gain public support for the restriction and suppression of competition. Hoover went so far in this address as to support the closed shop, provided that the closure was to be for the sake of unity of purpose in aiding the employer to increase production and to mould a cooperative labour force. In conclusion, Hoover called for a new economic system, what was in effect a corporate state that would provide an alternative to old-fashioned laissez-faire capitalism on the one hand and Marxian socialism on the other. In an authoritative study, William English Walling, an intimate of Samuel Gompers, wrote of the crucial influence of Hoover's theories upon Gompers and the AFL, especially from 1920 on. This influence was particularly strong in persuading the labour leaders to endorse the idea of organising all the large occupation groups and then effecting their mutual harmony and cooperation under the aegis and control of the federal government. Capital and labour in each industry, organised in collaboration, were to have the role of government of that particular industry. Footnote Addressing the International Association of Technical Engineers, Architects and Draftsmen, in May 1921, Gompers spoke enthusiastically of the close entente that had developed between engineering groups and the AFL. It was Gompers, furthermore, who persuaded Hoover to accept the presidency of the American Engineering Council. End footnote.
It was indeed appropriate for French politician Edouard Herriot to praise Hoover in 1920 for his idea of fusing the economic trinity of labor, capital, and government into one system, thus putting an end to the class struggle. Another reason for Hoover's pro-union attitude was that he had adopted the increasingly popular thesis that high wage rates were a major cause of prosperity. It then followed that wage rates must not be lowered during depressions. In contrast to all prior depressions, including 1920 to 21, when wage rates were cut sharply, wage cutting was considered by Hoover to be impermissible and as leading to a failure in purchasing power and the perpetuation of depression. These views were to prove a fateful harbinger of the policies used during the Great Depression. One of Hoover's most important labor interventions during the 1920s came in the steel industry. He persuaded Harding to hold a conference of steel manufacturers in May 1922. After which he and Harding called upon the steel magnates to bow to the workers' demand to shift from a 12-hour to an 8-hour day. In doing so, Hoover was siding with the liberal wing of the steel industry, led by Charles R. Hook and Alexander Legg. Whose plants had already instituted the shorter workday, and who, of course, were anxious to impose higher costs on their lagging competitors. When Judge Gary of United States Steel and other leading steelmen refused to go along, Hoover acted to mobilize public opinion against them. Thus, he induced the National Engineering Societies to endorse the eight-hour day, and himself wrote the introduction to the endorsement. Finally, Hoover wrote a stern letter of rebuke for President Harding, which Harding sent to Gary on June eighteenth, nineteen twenty-three, forcing Gary to capitulate. Herbert Hoover also played a leading role in collectivizing labor relations in the railroad industry, thus catalyzing that industry still further than before and incorporating railway unions within the cartel framework. After repeated and largely unsuccessful interventions to try to gain pro-union concessions during the railroad strike of 1922, Hoover became a major author, along with union lawyers Donald Richburg and David E. Lilienthal, of the Railway Labor Act of 1926, by which the railway unions got themselves established in the industry. The ancestor of the New Deal's Wagner Act. The Railway Labor Act imposed collective bargaining upon the industry. In return, the unions agreed to give up the strike weapon. The great majority of the railroads warmly supported this new departure in American labor relations. In a major address before the United States Chamber of Commerce on May seventh, nineteen twenty-four, Hoover spelled out his corporatist views in some detail. He called for the self-regulation of industry by way of trade associations, farm groups, and unions. In a vein strongly reminiscent of English guild socialism, Hoover harked back to the Middle Ages for his model. The guilds, he asserted, obtained more stability through collective action. The job of the associations was to strengthen ethical standards in industry by eliminating waste and. Destructive competition. In short, Hoover was calling for the national cartelization of industry under the aegis of government.
Footnote. In his book American Individualism, Hoover had hailed the growing cooperation and associational activities of American industry and the consequent reduction of great wastes of over-reckless competition. End footnote. Samuel Gompers hailed this address and considered the new economic policy to be the same as the newly forged position of the AFL. Footnote. After Gompers' death in 1924, his successor, William Green, continued the close AFL collaboration with Hoover. End footnote. Herbert Hoover's entire program of activities as Secretary of Commerce was designed to advance the subsidization of industry and the interpenetration of government and business. As Hoover's admirer and former head of the United States Chamber of Commerce put it, Hoover had advanced the team play of government with the leaders of character in the various industries. Thus, Hoover expanded the Bureau of Foreign and Domestic Commerce fivefold, opening numerous offices at home and abroad. His trade commissioners and attaches aided American exports in numerous ways. He also reorganized the Bureau along commodity lines, with each commodity division headed by someone chosen by the particular trade or industry, from the trade he knows and represents. Furthermore, Hoover promoted the cartelization of each industry by inducing each trade to create a committee to cooperate with the Department of Commerce and to select the industry's choice for head of the commodity division. Officials in the department were systematically recruited from business to stay in the department for a few years and then to return to private business at higher-paying jobs. One favourite method of Hoover's for subsidising as well as cartelizing exports was to foster the creation of export trade associations. Thus, in 1926, Hoover repeatedly urged the coffee trade to band together and create a national coffee council, so that all American coffee buyers could join together to lower buying prices. Hoover and his aides craftily suggested to the coffee trade that one union leader and one woman consumer be named to the proposed coffee council as a public relations device to relieve public fears of a cartel. The difficulties of forming a coffee cartel proved insurmountable, but Hoover had more luck with the rubber industry, organising it to fight British cartel restrictions on Asian rubber production that had been imposed in 1922. Hoover led the rubber industry in a drive to induce Americans to buy less rubber, and hence to lower the price as well as to promote American-owned sources of supply, by such means as government subsidies to new United States-owned rubber plantations in the Philippines. An American rubber buying pool was established in 1926 and lasted until the end of British restrictions two years later. Footnote. Harvey Firestone was the most enthusiastic rubber user backing the Hoover program and also in organizing American-owned rubber plantations in Liberia. The mighty U.S. rubber company, on the other hand, already owned large rubber plantations in the Dutch East Indies, which were not subject to British restrictions. 
U.S. rubber was therefore the rubber user least enthusiastic about the buying pool. End footnote. As soon as he assumed office, Hoover induced President Harding to pressure investment bankers to require that the proceeds of their loans abroad be used to purchase American exports. When little came of this pressure, Hoover began to threaten congressional action if the banks did not agree. For Hoover, the aim of subsidizing exports was so important that even unsound foreign loans that could serve this purpose were considered worthwhile. Footnote. Hoover also clashed with banks that made foreign loans to Germany, since he was worried about the loans building up competitors to American firms, especially chemical manufacturers. End footnote. Hoover's opposition to foreign monopoly did not, of course, prevent him from supporting a protective tariff in the United States, thus providing privilege to American domestic as well as export firms. During the 1920s, Hoover was also active in promoting the cartelization of the domestic oil industry. As an active member of President Coolidge's Federal Oil Conservation Board since its inception in 1924, Hoover worked in collaboration with a growing majority of the oil industry in behalf of restrictions on oil production in the name of conservation. This was a conservation, by the way, that was urged regardless of whether American oil resources seemed to be scarce or abundant. Hoover was particularly interested in removing antitrust limitations on industrial cooperation in such restrictive measures. In the field of coal, Hoover sponsored repeated attempts at cartelization. The first attempt was a bill in 1921 to establish a federal coal commission to gather and publish statistics of the coal industry so as to publicize price data and thereby facilitate industry-wide price fixing. Failing a commission, the Department of Commerce was eager to take on the task. However, this and a later scheme by Hoover to encourage marketing cooperatives in coal by exemption from antitrust laws were defeated by the opposition of competitive low-cost southern coal operators. Undaunted, Hoover in 1922 prepared a full-fledged cartelizing plan. The idea was to establish unemployment insurance in the coal industry, so designed as to penalize in the cost of the plan the part-time and seasonal coal mines, and thereby to drive these higher-cost mines out of business. The coal industry would then form cooperatives, which would fix and allocate quotas on production, putting more mines out of operation, the owners to be compensated out of the increased cartel profits made by the rest of the industry. The district coal cooperatives were to market all the coal and then divide the revenues proportionately. But once again, Hoover could not command the needed support from the coal industry and the public. Footnote. During the coal strike in the spring of 1922, Hoover organized an emergency system of rationing and price controls. Harking back to his wartime experience, he established a network of district committees to hold down coal prices. After the typically Hooverian voluntary controls failed to work, Hoover called for governmental price-fixing, and by late September, Congress had passed a law appointing a federal fuel distributor 
to enforce fair prices. End footnote. Hoover played a similar role in catalyzing the cotton textile industry, favoring the open price plan for stimulating price agreements. Hoover used his Department of Commerce to provide the price publicity that might be illegal for a trade association. Hoover also played a role in forcing the cotton textile industry to establish a nationwide rather than a regional trade association, to the delight of the bulk of the industry. Hoover repeatedly urged the many reluctant firms to join this cotton textile institute, which gave promise of stabilizing the industry and eliminating waste in production. Hoover went so far as to endorse in 1927. The CTF's plan to urge each of the member firms to cut production by a certain definite amount. Footnote: The cotton textile industry urged Secretary Hoover to become the first president of their new institute. As it was, the president was a man recommended by Hoover. End footnote. One of the clearest indications of how far removed Hoover was from laissez-faire. Was his leading role in nationalizing the airwaves of the fledgling radio industry? Hoover put through the Nationalizing Radio Act in 1927 as a substitute for the court's increasing application of the common law, granting private ownership of the airwaves to the first radio stations that put them into use. One of the most pervasive and least studied methods by which Hoover helped to monopolize industry during the 1920s was to impose standardization and simplification of materials and products. In this way, Hoover managed to eliminate the least necessary varieties of a myriad of products, greatly reducing the number of competitive sizes, for example, of automobile wheels and tires. And threads for nuts and bolts. All in all, about three thousand articles were thus simplified. The recommendations for simplification were worked out by the Department of Commerce with the aid of the eager committees representing each trade. Hoover's approach to the farm question was consistent: a repeated emphasis on the cartelization of agriculture. Footnote. In the case of salmon fishing, Hoover called for federal regulations from 1922 on. In that year, he induced Harding to create salmon reservations in Alaska, thus cutting salmon production and raising prices. End footnote. At first, the favored means was the subsidizing by government of farm cooperatives. Hoover helped write the Act of August 1921. Which expanded the funds allotted to the War Finance Corporation, and permitted it to lend directly to the farm co-ops. He also supported the Farm Block Bill for an extensive system of federal intermediate credit banks and a federal farm loan board, which were to lend federal funds to farm co-ops. In the Department of Commerce, he was able to help farm co-ops with marketing programs. And with aid in finding export markets, Hoover soon enlarged his ideas of farm intervention. He was one of the earliest proponents of a federal farm board designed to raise and support farm prices by creating federal stabilization corporations that were to purchase farm products 
and to lend money to farm co-ops for such purchases. And to this end, in 1924, Hoover helped write the unsuccessful Kappa-Williams Bill. As a presidential candidate in 1928, he promised the farm bloc that he would promptly institute a farm price support program. Footnote. It was not only the farm bloc that wanted a nationally cartelized agriculture. Two of the fathers of the agitation for farm price support were George N. Peake and General Hugh S. Johnson, heads of the Moline Plough Company, one of the largest farm equipment manufacturers. As such, they were directly interested in the subsidizing of farmers. Big business in general was also enthusiastic, the farm price support plan being warmly supported by the Businessmen's Commission on Agriculture, established jointly by the US Chamber of Commerce and the National Industrial Conference Board. End footnote. It was a promise that he hastened to keep, for as soon as he became president, Hoover drove through the Agricultural Marketing Act of 1929. This act created a federal farm board with a revolving fund of $500 million to raise and support farm prices and to aid farm co-ops. The board was to conduct its price-raising operations through stabilization corporations for the various commodities, with the corporations also serving as marketing agencies for the co-ops. Furthermore, Hoover appointed to the board representatives of the various agricultural and farm co-op interests, a cartelization operated by the cartelists themselves. Footnote. Chairman of the eight-man FFB was Alexander Legg, president of International Harvester Company, one of the major farm machinery manufacturers, and, like Peake and Johnson, a protégé of financier Bernard M. Baruch, since the days of economic planning of World War I. Others represented on the board were the tobacco co-ops, the livestock co-ops, the Midwest grain interests, and the fruit growers. End footnote. 2. Herbert Hoover Fights the Great Depression Mobilizer and economic planner of World War I persistent advocate of cartelization and government-business partnership in stabilizing industry, pioneer in promoting a pro-union outlook in industry as a method of ensuring the cooperation of labor, booster of high wages as a sustainer of purchasing power and business prosperity, ardent advocate of massive public works schemes during depressions, advocate of government programs to boost farm prices and farm co-ops, no one could have been as ideally suited as Herbert Clark Hoover to be president at the onset of a Great Depression and to react with a radical program of statism to be trumpeted as a New Deal. And that is precisely what Herbert Hoover did. It is one of the great ironies of historiography that the founder of every single one of the features of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal was to become enshrined among historians and the general public as the last stalwart defender of laissez-faire. Let us consider the New Deal, a rapid intensification of government intervention that began in response to a severe depression, and featured cartelization of industry through government and business planning, bolstering of prices and wage rates, expansion of credit, 
massive unemployment relief and public works programs, support of farm prices, and propping up of weak and unsound business positions. Every one of these features was founded, and consciously so, by President Hoover. Hoover consciously and deliberately broke sharply and rapidly with the whole American tradition of a laissez-faire response to depression. As Hoover himself proclaimed during his presidential campaign of 1932, quote, We might have done nothing. That would have been utter ruin. Instead, we met the situation with proposals to private business and to Congress of the most gigantic program of economic defense and counterattack ever evolved in the history of the Republic. We put it into action. No government in Washington has hitherto considered that it held so broad a responsibility for leadership in such times. For the first time in the history of depressions, dividends, profits and the cost of living have been reduced before wages have suffered. They were maintained until the cost of living had decreased and the profits had practically vanished. They are now the highest real wages in the world. End quote. Footnote. One of the first observers who saw that the radical break with the past came with Hoover and not with FDR was Walter Lippmann, who wrote in 1935 that the, quote, policy initiated by President Hoover in the autumn of 1929 was something utterly unprecedented in American history. The national government undertook to make the whole economic order operate prosperously. The state attempted to direct by the public wisdom a recovery in the business cycle which had hitherto been left with as little interference as possible to individual exertion. End quote. Similarly, the perceptive term Hoover New Deal was coined by the contemporary observer and economist Benjamin M. Anderson. End footnote. Hoover began his gigantic program as soon as the stock market crashed on October 24, 1929. His most fateful act was to call a series of White House conferences with the nation's leading financiers and industrialists and induce them to pledge that wage rates would not be lowered and that they would expand their investments. Hoover explained the general aim of these conferences to be the coordination of business and government agencies in concerted action. Industrial group after group pledged that wage rates would be maintained. Hoover insisted that, contrary to previous depressions, when wage rates fell promptly and rapidly, and we might add the depression was then soon over, wage rates must now be the last to fall in order to prop up mass purchasing power. The entire burden of the recession, then, must fall upon business profits. The most important of these conferences occurred on November 21st, when such great industrial leaders as Henry Ford, Julian Rosenwald, Walter Teagle, Owen D. Young, Alfred P. Sloan Jr. and Pierre Dupont pledged their cooperation to the Hoover program. These agreements were made public, and Hoover hailed them at a White House conference on December 5th as, quote, an advance in the whole conception of the relationship of business to public welfare, a far cry from the arbitrary and dog-eat-dog attitude of the business world of some 30 or 40 years ago. End quote. The AFL lauded this new development. 
Never before, it proclaimed, have the industrial leaders been called upon to act together. By the following March, the AFL was reporting that the big corporations were indeed keeping their agreement to maintain wage rates. In September 1930, Hoover took another step to relieve unemployment and, by the way, to prop up wage rates. By administrative decree, Hoover in effect barred almost all further immigration into the country. In keeping with this policy of curing unemployment by forcing people out of the labor force, he deliberately accelerated the deportation of undesirable aliens, the deportation level reaching 20,000 per year. The wage agreement held firm in the midst of a cataclysmic depression and unprecedented and prolonged mass unemployment. Footnote. Particularly active in keeping industry in line was the President's Emergency Committee for Employment. End footnote. In fact, since prices were falling rapidly, this meant that the real wage rates of those lucky enough to remain employed were increasing sharply. The economist Leo Wallman noted at the time that it, quote, is indeed impossible to recall any past depression of similar intensity and duration in which the wages of prosperity were maintained as long as they have been in the depression of 1930 to 31. End quote. It was a record hailed by liberals from the AFL to John Maynard Keynes. It was only by 1932. After several years of severe depression and catastrophic unemployment, that businesses could keep up wage rates no longer. When, in the fall of 1931, the United States Steel Corporation finally summoned up the courage to cut wage rates, it did so over the opposition of its own president and to the accusation of William Greene that its 1929 pledge to the White House was being violated. The large firms were particularly slow to break the agreement, and even then many of the cuts were made in executive salaries where the unemployment problem was at a minimum. Even with the cuts in wages, wage rates fell by only 23% from 1929 to 1933, less than the decline of prices. Thus, real wage rates actually rose over the period by over 8% in the leading manufacturing industries. The drop in wage rates had been far more prompt and extensive in the far milder 1921 depression. In the face of this record of wage maintenance, the unemployment rate rose to 25% of the labor force by 1933, and to a phenomenal 46% in the leading manufacturing industries. There were, unfortunately, only a few observers and economists who understood the causal connection between these events. That maintenance of wage rates was precisely the major factor in deepening and prolonging mass unemployment and the depression. Hoover did his best, furthermore, to engineer a massive inflation of money and credit. In the crucial figure of government securities owned by the Federal Reserve banks, Federal Reserve holdings rose from $300 million in September 1929. To $1,840 million in March 1933, a sixfold increase. Ordinarily, this would have led to a sixfold expansion of bank reserves and an enormous inflation of the money supply. 
but the Hoover drive for inflation was thwarted by the forces of the economy. Federal Reserve rediscounts fell by half a billion due to sluggish business demand, despite a sharp drop in the Federal Reserve's discount rate. Cash in circulation increased by one and a half billion due to the public's growing distrust of the shaky and inflated banking system. And the banks began to pile up excess reserves because of their fear of making investments amidst the sea of business failures. The Hoover administration grew livid with the banks, and Hoover denounced the lack of cooperation of the commercial banks in the credit expansion drive. Atlee Pomerine, head of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, went so far as to declare that any bank that is liquid and does not extend its loans is a parasite on the country. Hoover told Secretary of the Treasury Ogden Mills to form a committee of leading industrialists and bankers to pressure the banks into extending their credit. Footnote: Chairman of the committee was Owen D. Young of General Electric. Included in the committee were Walter S. Gifford of AT&T, Charles E. Mitchell of National City Bank, and Walter C. Teagle of Standard Oil of New Jersey. End footnote. By the end of his term and the abject failure of his inflationist program, Hoover was proposing what are surely typical New Deal measures: bank holidays and at least temporary federal insurance of bank deposits. In fact, Hoover seriously considered invoking a forgotten wartime law, making the hoarding of gold—that is, redemption of dollars into gold—a criminal offence. Footnote. Furthermore, Hoover's secretary and undersecretary of the Treasury had decided by the end of their terms that the gold standard should be abolished. End footnote. Although he did not go that far. He did try his best to hamper the workings of the gold standard by condemning and blackening the names of people who lawfully redeemed their dollars in gold or their bank deposits into cash. In February 1932, Hoover established the Citizens Reconstruction Organization under Colonel Frank Knox of Chicago, dedicated to condemning hoarders and unpatriotic traitors. Leading industrialists and labor leaders joined the CRO. Hoover also secretly tried to stop the American press from printing the full truth about the banking crisis and about the rising public criticism of his administration. Neither was Hoover lax in increasing the expenditures of the federal government. Federal expenditures rose from $3.3 billion in fiscal 1929. To 4.6 billion dollars in fiscal 1932 and 1933, a rise of 40 percent. Meanwhile, federal budget receipts fell in half, from 4 billion dollars to less than 2 billion dollars, demonstrating that Hoover was so much of a proto-Keynesian that he was willing to incur a deficit of nearly 60 percent of the budget. This was, to that moment, the largest peacetime federal deficit in American history. Part of this massive rise of federal expenditures went, as one might expect, into public works. So promptly did Hoover act to expand public works, proposing a $600 million increase by December 1929, that by the end of 1929, the economist J. M. Clark 
was already hailing Hoover's great experiment in constructive industrial statesmanship. In February 1931, Hoover's Emergency Committee for Employment was instrumental in pushing through Congress Senator Wagner's Democrat New York Employment Stabilization Act, which established an Employment Stabilization Board to expand public works in a depression and a fund of $150 million to put the plan into effect. In happily signing the measure, Hoover gave a large amount of credit to the veteran public works agitator Otto Todd Mallory. In his memoirs, Hoover recalled with pride that his administration had constructed more public works than had the federal government over the previous 30 years, and that he personally had induced state and local governments to expand their public works programs by $1.5 billion. He also launched the Boulder, Grand Coulee and California Central Valley dams, and after agitating for the project since 1921, Hoover signed a treaty with Canada to build a St. Lawrence Seaway, a treaty rejected by the Senate. Footnote. It is instructive to note the attitude of private electrical companies toward the government-built Boulder Dam. They looked forward to purchasing cheap, subsidized governmental power, which they would then resell to their customers. The private power companies also saw Boulder Dam as a risky, sub-marginal project the costs of which they were happy to see shouldered by the taxpayers. End footnote. Furthermore, the Boulder Project was the first example of large-scale federal multi-purpose river basin planning. It must be noted, however, that in the last year of his term, Hoover, the veteran pioneer of public works stabilization, began to find the accelerating movement toward ever greater public works going beyond him as writers, economists, politicians, businessmen and the construction industry call loudly for many billions in public works, Hoover began to draw back. He began to see public works as costly and as bringing relief to a selected group only. He came to favour a relatively greater emphasis on federal grants in aid and on public works that would be self-liquidating. As a result, federal public works spending increased only slightly during 1932. As we shall see, Hoover's growing doubts on public works were symptomatic of a more general process of being left behind by the accelerating onrush toward collectivist thinking that developed during his final year as president. Another massive dose of government intervention was President Hoover's home loan bank system, established in the Federal Home Loan Act of July 1932. Supported enthusiastically by the Building and Loan Associations, the Act paralleled the Federal Reserve Act in relation to those associations. Twelve district banks were established under a Federal Home Loan Bank Board, with a $25 million capital supplied by the Treasury, as a compulsory central mortgage discount bank for the building and loan industry. Hoover had originally proposed a grandiose national mortgage discount system that would also include savings banks and insurance companies, but the latter refused to agree to the scheme. As it was, Hoover complained that Congress had placed excessively rigorous limits on the amount of discounting that could be made by the board, but he did his best to spur use of the new system. 
One of Mr. Hoover's clearest harbingers of the New Deal was his creation in January 1932 of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. The RFC was clearly inspired by and modelled after the old wartime War Finance Corporation, which had extended emergency loans to business. One of the leading originators of the RFC was Eugene Meyer Jr., Governor of the Federal Reserve Board and former Managing Director of the WFC. Most of the old WFC staff were employed by the new organisation. The RFC began in the fall of 1931 as the National Credit Corporation, through which leading banks were persuaded at a secret conference with Hoover and his aides to extend credit to shaky banks with Federal Reserve assistance. When the banks balked at this scheme, Hoover threatened legislation to compel their cooperation. In return for their agreement to the NCC, the administration agreed that it would be strictly temporary to be replaced soon by an RFC. The RFC bill was passed hurriedly by Congress in January 1932. The Treasury furnished it with half a billion dollars and it was empowered to issue debentures up to $1.5 billion. Meyer was chosen to be the chairman of the new organisation. In the first half of 1932, the RFC extended in the deepest secrecy $1 billion of loans, largely to banks and railroads. Footnote. Many large loans were made by the RFC to banks that were in the ambit of RFC directors themselves, or of others high up in the Hoover administration. Thus, shortly after General Charles Dawes resigned as president of the RFC, the bank that he headed, the Central Republic Bank and Trust Company, received a large RFC loan. End footnote. The railroads received nearly $50 million simply to repay debts to the large banks, notably J.P. Morgan & Co. and Kuhn Loeb & Co. One of the important enthusiasts for this policy was Eugene Meyer Jr. on the grounds of promoting recovery and, frankly, of putting more money into the banks. Meyer's enthusiasm might well have been bolstered by the fact that his brother-in-law, George Blumenthal, was an officer of J.P. Morgan & Co., and that he himself had served as an officer of the Morgan Bank. But Hoover wasn't satisfied with the massiveness of the RFC programme. He insisted that RFC be able to lend more widely to industry and to agriculture, and that it be able to make capital loans. This amendment, the Emergency Relief and Construction Act, passed Congress in July 1932. The Act nearly doubled total RFC capital from $2 billion to $3.8 billion and greatly widened the scope of RFC lending. During 1932, the RFC extended loans totaling $2.3 billion. Herbert Hoover's enthusiasm for government aid to industry and banking was not matched in the area of depression relief to the poor. Here, his instincts were much more voluntarist. Hoover steadfastly maintained his voluntary relief position until mid-1932. As early as 1930-31, he had been pressured on behalf of federal relief by Colonel Arthur Woods, the chairman of Hoover's Emergency Committee for Employment, 
who had previously been a member of Rockefeller's General Education Board. But in mid-1932, a group of leading Chicago industrialists was instrumental in persuading Hoover to change his mind and establish a federal relief program. In addition to widening the powers of the RFC loans to industry, Hoover's Emergency Relief and Construction Act was the nation's first federal relief legislation. The RFC was authorized to lend $300 million to the states for poor relief. Throughout the Depression, Herbert Hoover gave vent to his long-standing dislike of speculation and the stock market. In the fall of 1930, Hoover threatened federal regulation of the New York Stock Exchange, hitherto thought to be constitutionally subject only to state regulation. Hoover forced the exchange to agree, voluntarily, to withhold loans for purposes of short selling. Hoover returned to the attack during 1932, threatening federal action against short selling. He also induced the Senate to investigate sinister bear raids on the exchange. Hoover seemed to find it sinful and vaguely traitorous for the stock market to judge stock values on the basis of current low earnings. Hoover went on to propose what later came to pass as the New Deal's SEC, a regulation that Hoover openly applauded. Hoover's Federal Farm Board was ready to move when the Depression arrived, and the FFB proceeded on its proto-New Deal farm policy of attempting to raise and support farm prices. The FFB's first big operation was in wheat. The board advised the receptive wheat farmers to act like cartelists, in short, to hold wheat off the market and wait for higher prices. Soon it began to lend $100 million to wheat co-ops to withhold wheat stocks and thereby raise prices. And it established a central grain corporation to centralise and coordinate the wheat cooperatives. When the loans to co-ops failed to stem the tide of falling wheat prices, the grain corporation began to buy wheat on its own. The FFB loans and purchases managed to sustain wheat prices for a time, but by the spring of 1930 this had only aggravated the wheat surplus by inducing farmers to expand their production, and the only result was further declines in price. It became clear to the Hoover administration that the cartelizing and price-raising policy could not work unless wheat production was reduced. A typical Hooverian round of attempted voluntary persuasion ensued, led by the Secretary of Agriculture and the FFB. A group of economists was sent from Washington to urge the marginal northwestern wheat farmers, the original agitators for wheat price supports, to shift from wheat into some other crop. Secretary of Agriculture Arthur M. Hyde and the FFB's Alexander Legg toured the Middle West, urging farmers to lower their wheat acreage. But, as could be foreseen, none of this moral exhortation was effective, and wheat surpluses continued to pile up and prices to fall. By November, the government's Grain Stabilization Corporation had purchased over 65 million bushels of wheat to hold off the market, but to no avail. Then, in November 1930, Hoover authorised the GSC to purchase as much wheat as might be necessary to stop any further fall in wheat prices. 
but economic forces could not be defeated so easily, and wheat prices continued to fall. Finally, the FFB conceded defeat and dumped its accumulated wheat stocks, further intensifying the fall in wheat prices. Similar price support programs were tried in cotton, but with similar disastrous results. Chairman James C. Stone of the Federal Farm Board even tried to mobilize the state governors to plow under every third row of cotton, but still to no avail. Similar calamitous attempts at cartelization occurred in wool, butter, grapes, and tobacco. It was becoming clear that the cartelization program could not work unless there were compulsory restrictions on production. There were simply too many farmers for voluntary exhortations to have any effect. President Hoover began to move down that road, recommending at least that productive land be withdrawn from cultivation, that crops be ploughed under, and that immature farm animals be slaughtered, all to reduce the very surpluses that Hoover's price supports had accumulated. Footnote. It was left for the conservative senator Arthur H. Vandenberg, Republican Michigan, to propose the final link in the chain that was to form the New Deal's AAA, compelling farmers to cut production. End footnote. Meanwhile, President Hoover pursued cartelization in other fields with more success. In May 1931, he ordered the cessation of new leases in the federal forests for purposes of lumbering. He also withdrew over two million acres of forest land from production and into national forests, and increased the area of national parks by 40%. Footnote. Hoover also endorsed the privately financed Timber Conservation Board, formed to encourage cooperation in the lumber industry. In a prefigurement of the New Deal CCC, Hoover's Forestry Service put through a large-scale program of work relief for the unemployed in public works construction in the national forests. End footnote. Hoover put through the McNary Waitress Act of April 1930, which deliberately used postal airmail subsidies and regulation to bring commercial airlines under federal organization and control. Hoover's admiring biographers wrote that as a result of this law, quote, the routes were consolidated into a carefully planned national system of commercial airways. The nation was saved from a hodgepodge of airways similar to the tangle that had grown up in rail transportation. End quote. Hoover also urged upon Congress what would have been the first federal regulation of electric power companies. Hoover's original proposal was to give the Federal Power Commission the power to set interstate power rates in collaboration with state power commissions. But Congress refused to go that far, and the FPC, although expanded, continued to exercise power only over water power in rivers. In the coal industry, Hoover sympathized with the Appalachian Coal Combine which marketed three-quarters of Appalachian bituminous coal in an attempt to raise coal prices and allocate production quotas to the various coal mines. Hoover also called for the reduction of destructive competition reigning in the coal industry. 
Hoover was more specific in helping to catalyze the oil industry. Hoover and his Secretary of the Interior, Ray Lyman Wilbur, stimulated such states as Texas and Oklahoma to pass oil proration laws in the name of conservation, to curtail crude oil production and thereby raise prices, and to establish an interstate compact to collaborate in the proration program. Hoover also aided these laws by suspending all further oil leases on public lands, and by pressuring oil operators near the public domain to agree to restrict oil production. In sponsoring and encouraging proration laws particularly, Hoover was taking his stand with the large oil companies. Hoover and Wilbur's suggestion of general Sunday shutdowns of oil production was approved by the large companies, but defeated by the opposition of the smaller producers. The smaller firms particularly urged a protective tariff on imported crude and petroleum products, which Hoover finally agreed to in 1932. The tariff served to make the domestic cartel and proration laws more generally effective. In its restriction of imports, the tariff demonstrated that the drive for proration laws had little to do with simply conserving domestic oil reserves, but was rather aimed at cutting the supply of oil available to the domestic market. Despite these services by Hoover, the oil industry was still restive. The industry wanted more. It wanted federal legislation in outright support of restricting production and raising prices. Here too, President Hoover was beginning to lose the leadership of the accelerating cartelization movement in American industry. In the cotton textile industry, the trade association, the Cotton Textile Institute, which had long been close to Hoover, cunningly decided to press for monopolistic curtailment of production under the guise of humanitarianism. The device was to call for the abolition of night work for women and children. Such a drive was neatly calculated to appeal both to Hoover's and to the industry's monopoloid convictions as well as to his humanitarian rhetoric. CTI's campaign of 1930-31 to pressure the various mills to abolish night work for women and children was substantially aided by Hoover and his Department of Commerce, who actively helped to whip the non-cooperators into line. Hoover publicized his firm's support, and Secretary of Commerce Lamont sent personal letters to cotton textile operators, urging their adherence to the plan. Intense administration pressure continued throughout 1931 and 1932. Lamont called a special conference to which he brought several leading bankers and the endorsement of Hoover to pressure the holdouts into line. But this cartel scheme also failed, for cotton textile prices continued to fall. As a result, compliance with the curtailment of production began to crack. The cartel failed for reasons similar to the failure of the FFB. Despite the intense administration pressure, the production cuts remained only voluntary. So long as there was no outright governmental compulsion on the textile firms to obey the production quotas, prices could not be raised. By 1932, the cotton textile industry too was becoming impatient with its old friend Hoover. 
the industry was rapidly beginning to agitate for governmental coercion to make cartelization work. This attitude of the cotton textile, petroleum and agricultural industries spread rapidly throughout American industry during 1931 and 1932, an impatience with the pace of America's movement toward the corporate state. Under the impact of the Great Depression, American industry, along with the nation's intellectuals and labor leaders, began to clamor for the outright collectivism of a corporate state, for federal organization of trade associations into compulsory cartels for restricting production and raising prices. In short, a general clamor arose for an economy of fascism. The most important call for the compulsory cartelization of a corporate state was sounded by Gerard Swope, the veteran corporate liberal who headed General Electric. Swope delivered his famous Swope Plan before the National Electrical Manufacturers Association in the fall of 1931, and it was endorsed by the United States Chamber of Commerce in December. Particularly enthusiastic was Henry I. Harriman, president of the chamber, who declared that any dissenting businessmen would be treated like any maverick, they'll be roped and branded and made to run with the herd. Charles F. Abbott of the American Institute of Steel Construction hailed the Swope plan as a measure of public safety to crack down on the blustering individual who claims the right to do as he pleases. The AFL endorsed a similar program, with a slightly greater share to go to the unions in overall control. Particularly enthusiastic were John L. Lewis and Sidney Hillman, later to form the New Deal-oriented CIO. Dr. Virgil Jordan, economist for the National Industrial Conference Board, summed up the state of business opinion when he concluded, approvingly, that businessmen were ready for an economic Mussolini. In the light of Herbert Hoover's lengthy corporatist career, the business leaders naturally expected him to agree wholeheartedly with the new drive toward business collectivism. Hence, they were greatly surprised and chagrined to find Hoover sharply drawing back from the abyss, from pursuing the very logic to which his entire career had been leading. It is not unusual for revolutions to devour their fathers and pioneers. As a revolutionary process accelerates, the early leaders begin to draw back from the implicit logic of their own life work and to leap off the accelerating bandwagon that they themselves had helped to launch. So it was with Herbert Hoover. All his life he had been a dedicated corporatist, but all his life he had also liked to cloak his corporate state coercion in cloudy, voluntarist generalities. All his life he had sought and employed the mailed fist of coercion inside the velvet glove of traditional voluntarist rhetoric. But now his old friends and associates, men like his longtime aide and Chamber of Commerce leader Julius Barnes, railroad magnate Daniel Willard and industrialist Gerard Swope, were in effect urging him to throw off the voluntarist cloak and to adopt the naked economy of fascism. This Herbert Hoover could not do, and as he saw the new trend, he began to fight it, without at all abandoning any of his previous positions. 
Herbert Hoover was being polarized completely out of the accelerating drive towards statism. By merely advancing at a far slower pace, the former progressive corporatist was now becoming a timid moderate in relation to the swift rush of the ideological current. The former leader and molder of opinion was becoming passé. Footnote. Hoover had done his best to further corporatism in more moderate and gradual ways. In addition to the measures described above, Hoover sponsored the highly protectionist Smoot-Hawley Tariff in 1929-30, and he signed the Norris-LaGuardia Act of 1932, which sponsored labor unionism by outlawing contractual agreements not to join unions, and greatly curtailing the use of injunctions in labor disputes. End footnote. Hoover began to fight back, and to insist that a certain proportion of individualism, a certain degree of the old American system, must be preserved. The swope and similar plans, he charged, would result in a complete monopolization of industry, would establish a vast governmental bureaucracy, and would regiment society. In short, as Hoover told Henry Harriman in exasperation, the Swope Chamber of Commerce plan was simply fascism. Footnote. Hoover also resisted corporate collectivist pressure from within his own administration, notably from such men as Frederick Fiker, head of the Bureau of Foreign and Domestic Commerce, and his old friend, Secretary of the Interior, Ray Lyman Wilbur. End footnote. Herbert Hoover had finally seen the abyss of fascism and was having none of it. Franklin Roosevelt was to have no such scruples. Hoover's decision had vital political consequences, for Harriman told him bluntly at the start of the 1932 campaign that Franklin Roosevelt had accepted the Swope Plan, as he was to prove amply with the NRA and AAA. If Hoover persisted in being stubborn, Harriman warned, the business world, and especially big business, would back Roosevelt. Hoover's brusque dismissal led to big business carrying out its threat. It was Herbert Hoover's finest hour. America's legion of corporate liberals, who found their holy grail with the advent of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, never forgave or forgot Herbert Hoover's hanging back from America's entry into the promised land. To the angry liberals, Hoover's caution looked very much like old-fashioned laissez-faire. Hence Herbert Hoover's pervasive entry into the public mind as the doughty champion of laissez-faire individualism. It was an ironic ending to the career of one of the great pioneers of American state corporatism. The Mises Institute hopes you have enjoyed this audiobook. For a world of free market literature, media and discussion, visit Mises.org.